Oh, hey, Todd, how you doing? Al here. Listen, um, I, I know you're super busy. You got a lot going on. Uh, I, I really hate to bother you, but, um, well, there, there's something I've been meaning to tell you, and I'm afraid it just can't wait any longer. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Todd. Oh. Happy birthday to you. Hey, it's your birthday. Gotta be your birthday. You know what I was told today? You're 50 years old. Hey, it's your birthday. Oh, Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. That was Weird Al. That really was Weird Al. That wasn't a fake Weird Al. That wasn't a sound alike to Weird Al. That was Weird Al. He was singing about my 50th birthday, which wasn't today or this month, but I am 50. I did turn 50 this year. It's a bit late, but I appreciate it. You may think maybe this is one of these things like Cameo, where you can have a celebrity make something for you. No. I did not pay to have that made, nor did somebody else pay to have that made for me, nor was this about another Todd who's turning 50. So in case you're thinking it's any of those three things, it's not. It was not made for somebody else. It was not paid for by me or paid for by anybody else. And that was really Weird Al Yankovic with a chorus behind him singing about my birthday. So what is this? How did I get this? Why was this made for me? I will tell you later in the show. You can think about it in the meantime. Anyway, it's been a little while since we've been on here. What happened was I took a trip to Vegas. So that's why I couldn't come on the prior weekend, the first weekend of April. I took a trip to Vegas. And I planned to come on about a week ago, right around when I came back. And uh, unfortunately, I had a cold. I came down with a cold, probably from playing a lot of hours of cash. Well, a lot of cash poker, I believe, got me sick. And I think probably right around the end of the session is when it happened, or the several sessions I did. Because I started feeling symptoms on Wednesday morning, very early Wednesday morning. And I had last played on Sunday night. So it was about two and a half days, and it was definitely a cold. It wasn't COVID. It wasn't the flu. It was a cold, but it was a fairly bad cold. The symptoms peaked on Saturday morning, this past Saturday. So I thought it might be quite some time till I could do radio again. And uh, then it started to rapidly get better, but I still had a cough going on last night, and I'm not completely better. I still have to blow my nose. I still have to cough sometimes, so... You have to bear with me tonight if you hear sudden silence on the show. It's because I muted it to do that. And I definitely wanted to come on here because as I have been gone for this time, topics, big topics have built up which need discussion, especially because our main topic is one that I brought out, something that I have been pressing, something that I am responsible for being a big topic in poker. And... 
That is the ACR situation. So that's going to be our top story tonight. But there's other big things that are happening, including something that just came out a few hours ago. So that's the one good thing about this being delayed is that we have a fresh story to talk about as well. There's a lot of stuff to get into. Backlog of topics for the evening about poker, about Las Vegas. And I'm glad to be back talking to you guys here. The free roll was kind of a comedy of errors. We do have a free roll. $50, 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third, thanks to Matt the Rat. So I appreciate that donation from him. Very nice guy. I hope to see him this summer. And the free roll was scheduled originally for 9.15. Then I had to deal with an issue that was going on uh, involving the forum, so I had to delay it a bit. And uh, so I actually stopped the free roll about 10 minutes in, knowing that I wouldn't be on the air before late registration ended and uh, reset it for 9.40. And then I got the bad news that I accidentally reset the free roll for April 20th at 9.40, and today is April 13th. Oops. (laughs) So then I had to go back and fix it again. So bottom line is make sure you are registered because you may have been thrown out of it twice. But the good news is you can go register right now. So if you played around 9.15 and busted, you can go right back and re-register. And if you have not registered yet, or if you have and it's not starting for you, it should have started already, started at 9.55 three minutes ago, you can get in right now until 10.20 in this $50 free roll. And I apologize for all the confusion regarding that to have to possibly re-register twice tonight. But that's the way it goes sometimes. It's free money. So keep that in mind. Anyway, if you want to call the show, as always, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is that number. There's also a Mount Charleston line. I saw Mount Charleston with snow on it. I went and checked on the phone while I was in Las Vegas. But I also saw from a distance. I was in somebody's hotel room at the Aria. In all this time in Vegas, I never was in an Aria hotel room. Even though Colonel Fabersham technically has a room that is in his name that he can redeem. He was awarded a free room at Aria for his dissatisfaction with the parking lot in the early days of the hotel. And he was right, but problem is, since Colonel Nigel Fabersham isn't real, he can't redeem it. But anyway, I had never actually been in an Aria room before, but I finally was, and it had a view of Mount Charleston, and I could see across the Las Vegas Valley, I could see Mount Charleston with snow on it because of a recent storm that dumped some snow up there. So I said, I better go check on that phone because I'm going to come back on the air soon. And it's fine. The phone is doing fine in my cabin in Mount Charleston. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the number to the Mount Charleston line, which is a separate line into the show. You can text the show or me at any time by dialing or actually by texting the main number, 775-372-8355. You cannot text the Mount Charleston line because it's an old 70s rotary phone. But the main number, 775-372-8355, accepts texts at all times of the day and night, whether we are on the air or not. And I will probably respond to you. And if we're on the air live, then I may read your text on the air unless you ask me at the beginning not to. Don't be shy. Don't be afraid to text me if you have something to say. 
And by the way, if there's something you don't like about the show, even if you're overall a fan of the show and there's something you just don't care for that much, then go ahead and tell me. I like to have feedback on the show, both positive and negative. Now, if it's negative, please do it respectfully. Don't text me a bunch of insults in a nasty fashion, but you can say, I don't care for such and such type of segment. Please don't do this again. I'm not saying that I will do what you say, but I will take it under consideration. I kind of try to figure out what the audience wants to hear, and that's what I present you guys. And if there's something you really do like, tell me that as well. It does feel good when I do a segment and then I get some feedback, say, hey, that was great, I really enjoyed it. And when I see that, it makes me want to do that type of segment more often. 775-372-8355. Also, you can just text me about anything that you'd like to talk about, any concern of yours, even if it has nothing to do with me. We have a call to listen line. We've had it for six and a half years. It is very simple. You just call and you listen. It does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require a computer or the internet or an app. No, 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 no. It's very simple. You just call up a phone number in the U.S. and you listen. We have two of them. 605-313-0736 and 641-741-1095. You can find all of these phone numbers I've given you on the radio tab of PokerFraudAlert.com in case you forget them. And the call to listen line, it never buffers and it never freezes. And it does not require a very good connection. Even a weak cell phone connection can call up the call to listen line and you can hear it or you can call it from a landline and it will never freeze. It's very nice, the call to listen line. And unless you have T-Mobile, which would cost one cent a minute, which is beyond my control, every other phone company that can call U.S. numbers for free can call the call to listen line to their heart's content for free. And I'm totally fine with that. If you want to go to sleep with it on, I don't care. I do not care. I don't pay per minute, so I don't care. If I did pay per minute, I probably wouldn't have it. Because I know you guys, you would turn it on, fall asleep, and I would watch money fly out of my Jew wallet, and I couldn't have that. We have a chat room. You can chat in there with other people. If you're listening live, you do need a forum account in good standing. Our free roll this week, remember it's $50, 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. Check out the rules at pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll. All lowercase, pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll to understand the requirements to win the free money, which are not very difficult, but they are requirements. And I will pay you in various ways, real cash money. I can send it by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by Bitcoin, by various other cryptocurrencies, or even other methods you can think of where people send each other money online. Just message me Dan Space Druff on the forum. Dan Space Druff on the forum to claim your prize. You can also email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. Okay, here's the agenda, and we'll get going. By the way, we have had Brandon on here a bunch recently, which I am happy about. And will he be on tonight? I'm guessing he'll probably show up at some point. He's probably uh, sleeping or unavailable right now, but I'm guessing he'll come on. And if he doesn't, no problem. I actually saw him when I was in Vegas. And fortunately, he did not catch whatever I had, probably because I had just caught it from playing poker and was not contagious yet because I got symptoms about two and a half days later. I saw him just before I left town. Before I get going, I want to tell you something quickly about the death of Gilbert Gottfried. Now, he didn't have any kind of poker association to my knowledge. 
However, Gilbert Gottfried was someone that I found in the late 1980s on the USA Network. He had a show that he was the host of. There was actually a second host because uh, the show aired on Friday and Saturday nights. I think he did Friday and the other host did Saturday. The other host was Rhonda Shear, who was a former Playboy model. So Gilbert was the comedian and then Rhonda was supposed to be like the sexy host. I wasn't really into Rhonda because she really wasn't that funny and the sexy part didn't do much for me because she was like almost 20 years older than me. So I wasn't into older women like that when I was a teenager. I was into other teenagers. So Rhonda didn't do much for me, but I really liked Gilbert and I really enjoyed USA Up All Night. In fact, I even got my brother into watching it. I said, you got to watch this thing. There's, this, there's these really low-budget movies that they play on here and there's this really funny guy who, who's like introducing them and doing little skits in between the segments and then he watched it and he really enjoyed it too so we used to watch it a lot together while I was uh, still living at home and then I even watched it when I went away to college and it really got me into enjoying B-movies where before that I really hadn't watched B-movies I didn't have an interest in B-movies and I actually found a few B-movies I really liked thanks to USA Up All Night. I know it wasn't Gilbert programming these, but it was his hosting of the show that got me interested in it. And he was very funny. So I became a fan of his, and I sometimes listened to him on Howard Stern. And I kind of followed his career. I never got to see him perform, and I never will, because he passed away at the age of 67. And there was a lot of outpouring of love for him on social media. A lot of people really liked Gilbert. He was a lot more famous than I realized. I knew people knew who he was, but I didn't expect this much impact from his death. Anyway, in his later years, he was basically taking whatever work he could get. And he was one of those celebrities who did those cameo videos for people where you can pay celebrities to make a custom video for you or for others. And yeah, I guess it adds up. It's not a ton of money, but if they're getting $100 here, $200 there, over and over and over again for like one or two minute videos, if they do a bunch of them in a few hours, they could rake in several thousand dollars and the work isn't that hard and they could do it right from home. So Aaron Massey, who's known as uh, Never Miss Massey to some people, uh, he also has a brother who plays poker named Ralph Massey who's known as the Silver Stash on Twitter. And Ralph makes a lot of funny little videos on Twitter himself. But Aaron played kind of a little prank on his brother, and I didn't even know about this until he posted it after Gilbert's death. But Aaron played a little prank on his brother by getting Gilbert to do a 40th birthday message for him. But instead of your standard birthday message where... Gilbert would be wishing him a happy birthday and saying, I hope you have a great day. Instead, he had Gilbert insult him and call him names and say he sucks at poker. And in fact, it was a pretty politically incorrect message. And by the way, this was fairly recently because I think Ralph Massey turned 40 not too long ago. So it's not like this was made 10 years ago. So listen to what Gilbert said. He could probably get canceled for this stuff, but I, I guess not anymore because he's not around. Pretty funny, though. Listen to what uh, Aaron Massey had made for his brother, Ralph. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is for Ralph, and it's from your friends. Happy birthday, happy 40th birthday, and I'm going to call Hendon Mob. 
to add results for you because you stink at poker. You stink at poker. And uh, you're a miserable fuck. And you're a fag. And your breath stinks like a thousand homeless men, diseased homeless men, all took a shit in your mouth and then pissed in it afterwards. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Ralph, happy birthday to you. <laughs> now, obviously, Aaron asked him to say all this stuff, and Gilbert had no idea what the Hinden mob is, but it was funny <laughs> hearing him say all that stuff and even calling him a fag, and I think this is like in 2021 when this was done. So Gilbert didn't care. Gilbert was not afraid of being canceled. Gilbert was himself the same guy he's always been. You didn't hear this language on USA Up All Night, but occasionally he would kind of slip in something semi-dirty and it would get past the censors. So RIP Gilbert Gottfried, and I kind of regret not going to one of his shows. I, I had a friend who went to one of his shows and really enjoyed it. So it's one of these things like when the person dies, you go, ah, I wish I saw this person. But now I will never get to. But entertaining guy. And he was a Jew also, in case you're wondering. Let's get to the show here. Remember on the last episode, we were talking about a budding scandal on ACR. Something that nobody else was talking about, except for me. Now, I was not a victim of it. I don't even play on ACR. And in fact, nobody close to me was a victim of it. So I was not taking up for myself or any Poker Fraud Alert members or any friends of mine. But I was taking up for the community, as I do. As you guys know, if people come to me with concerns about being cheated in poker, especially by a poker site, I will attempt to help them. I always have, and I always will. And I ask for nothing in return. In this case, it was something that was pretty disturbing. At least the allegations were disturbing. And when Brandon and I were discussing it, we were wondering whether we should believe this. Because if true, it was something that really had the makings of being a disturbing online poker scandal. On March 22nd, a guy known as Gamble Gamble, who's at underscore was all a dream on Twitter, underscore was all a dream on Twitter, posted a thread about how someone breached his account on ACR, requested a withdrawal for almost all his money. He had almost 9K in there. They withdrew almost like the entire thing, like 8,800 of his 9K. And ACR would not give him any info on it. And he was appealing for someone to do something about it. He said that he did not request this withdrawal, that nobody reset his password, that his password still worked and that someone got into his account, and that the strangest part was that he had an email saying that there's a new device logging into his account and to click to authorize it, and he never clicked that link. And in fact, the withdrawal was done before he even saw that email. And he wondered how they did that. How could this person have gotten into his account and done a withdrawal and not had to click the new device link? Because basically when ACR sees that a new device is logging in, it says, whoa, 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 this is something unfamiliar to us. So to prove it's really you, we're going to send you an email and you have to click the link in your email that this is really you. And if you don't, even if you have the password, you can't log in. 
But somehow that person, whoever stole the money from him, was able to bypass that without clicking that link. And he said he was able to check, because he has Hotmail, he claims Hotmail has a feature where you can see who has logged into your account. And he said he did not see a single unfamiliar IP logging into his account. So it wasn't like someone breached his email to click that link. And he also said that the email was unopened. So it looked like to him it was an inside job in some way. However, at the same time, I was skeptical. I didn't know this guy. For all I knew, he was making up the whole story. Maybe he chunked off all the money somewhere else, and now he's trying to get ACR to double cash him out. Maybe he was careless with his computer, and a friend, or so-called friend, went on his computer and did this, and he doesn't realize it. He said he lived with a girlfriend. Maybe the girlfriend did it. There were a lot of possibilities to where ACR was not responsible. Because ultimately, you are responsible to maintain the security of your own account. And if somebody breaches the account due to your own negligence, then it's not ACR's problem. And that's the way it's always been in online poker, not just with ACR. It's the case with Ignition and Bovada. That's the case with PokerStars and Party Poker and GG Poker and all the sites going all the way back over two decades of online poker that if someone gets into your account and somehow loses or withdraws money, and by the time you catch it, the money is unrecoverable, then it's just tough luck. And that makes sense because the site cannot be expected to reimburse you for your mistakes. They can try to help you get it back, but if it's unrecoverable, you have to eat it. And I totally support that. That's totally fine. That's totally fair. So I didn't know. I asked him a bunch of questions in response, and I mentioned that in the last show. I'm not going to go over it all again. You can go back to the last show we did at the end of March, if you want to hear about all that. But I asked him a bunch of questions, making sure that this was not his error. I was trying to figure out on which side was the breach. Was it on his side or was it on ACR's side? Because if it was on ACR's side, that's a big problem, right? Imagine if ACR has someone getting into accounts that's an insider at the company and withdrawing your money. That's a huge scandal, right? So I really was interested in this. I really wanted to figure out whose side it was on. And Brandon was saying he kind of doubted the guy's story. And I said, look, you know, I'm kind of mixed on this one. I'm not sure who to believe. And I understood why Brandon was skeptical. Even I was kind of skeptical. But I always like to listen. I always like to try to get as many details as possible. And Brandon Supported that as well. Brandon also felt we should do that. So I told the guy to have ACR tell him the IP address that logged in and the Bitcoin address that was used to cash out. Because that would say a lot. If it was from his own IP, well, there was probably someone in his own house or malware he had on his computer or something like that. But if it was an IP that had nothing to do with him, well, then that really starts to look like it's ACR, especially if that IP is something that is at or near ACR's headquarters. And the Bitcoin address, we could look at that as well and look at the movement of money. We we can really start to get some clues as to what happened, even if we can't identify an exact culprit. So that was my plan. And I figured, look, why would ACR ever hide this? This is his withdrawal. He's asking for the IP address and the Bitcoin address that requested a withdrawal of his money from his account. So it's his right to know this, right? So that's why I told him to ask. Well, they weren't giving him the info. They were just... uh, responding to his email saying we're looking into it, but they just ignored his requests 
for the IP address and the Bitcoin address, which already was a bit suspicious. Like, why, why would they not give that? Why would he not have a right to know the IP and the Bitcoin address where his money went? Why would that ever be a secret? Well, during this show, he messaged me, and I reported this in the last show. During the show, he messaged me, and this really made me think he was on ACR's side, and that's where we left it off. During the show, he messaged me that ACR gave him back the entire $8,800 that had been stolen from him. Now, why is that so significant? Well, can you imagine ACR refunding a player almost $9,000 if it was their fault that their account got breached? Of course not. We're not talking about $90. We're talking about almost $9,000. So you can't even say, well, it was just for customer goodwill. When it's a small amount of money, yeah, it can be for customer goodwill. Not $9,000. No company gives you $9,000 for customer goodwill. So when you're looking at a large sum of money being reimbursed, that means that ACR realized that they had some fault in the situation and they were making it right and eating the money. That was obvious to me, just from common sense. ACR is not a charity. It should not be a charity. It is a business. It functions to make money. Them just giving someone $9,000 back that was through a withdrawal that they did not request, if it was that person's fault, they wouldn't give back the money. And if the person complained, ACR could say, look, this is up to you to keep your account secure. And every other poker site would have done the same thing. And they'd be right. Then after the show, I started to get reports from other people and they were sending me screenshots, which looked identical to the one he sent me of the reimbursement. And other people were also getting fairly large sums of money put back in their account. So the way it read on their screen when they went to the cashier on ACR, it'd say payment category fraud, payment method, security reimbursement, description reintegration due to a breaching incident a breaching incident whoa ho ho a breaching incident really sounds like it's something on their end a breaching incident is not when a customer is stupid and allows their account to be compromised a breaching incident i would think sounds like their system got breached especially if they're giving back large sums of money so someone got even more back than he did Someone I spoke to, and I believe them, they sent me screenshots, got back almost $14,000 in a very, very similar situation. Now, this Gamble Gamble guy was the only one who got the email to click a link to authorize a new device. Interestingly enough, everybody else, and I started having a number of people come forward to me privately about this, a few publicly too, but a number of people came forward to me privately and told me and sent me proof that... They had their accounts breached and withdrawals made in the exact same fashion, but none of them got an email saying a new device was logging in. All they got was a withdrawal notice. So the first email they got is, okay, we've processed your withdrawal. And they're like, oh shit, I didn't do this. And they go on and the money's gone. So that really made me think, if they're refunding multiple people for as much as $14,000, not total, but like each, that this must be something they're aware is happening on at least a semi-wide scale. Now, 
props to ACR for actually giving people the money back. They could just shrug their shoulders and say, nope, your fault, too bad. And that would be that. And these people wouldn't have any recourse other than complaining on social media. So I guess I'll give ACR credit for giving the people the money back, though it would sometimes take uh, weeks to get the money back. It wouldn't be instantaneous. I guess they'd have to do an investigation to make sure the person is telling the truth that they really got the money stolen rather than just doing a withdrawal themselves and claiming it was stolen. So I understand the time that's taken to look at that. And I'm glad ACR gave back the money. However, we still have a problem here. The problem is that there's someone getting into ACR accounts and withdrawing people's money. We can't just say, well, if they're paying people back, what's the problem? It's a big problem if this is happening. Why is this happening? How is this happening? How can people feel good about leaving money on ACR if some person can just get into their account at any time and withdraw the money within minutes, which is what they have been doing? Now, this has not been happening to everyone. This hasn't been happening to most players. And the biggest players on the site, the ones that have hundreds of thousands of dollars there, have not been touched to my knowledge. However, some middle stakes players, ones who have like 9K, 13K, 14K, they have been hit. Not all of them, not most of them, but some of them. I don't know the total number. I keep being asked how many people were hit. I don't know, but I had a number of people come forward to me. So it wasn't like three. A number of people came forward to me, and there's a lot of people who did not come forward to me. There's a lot of people who have not said anything on social media. Maybe they don't have social media. Maybe they don't know what to say or what to do. Maybe some people don't even realize it happened. Maybe if it did happen, they are blaming themselves. Now, something I told every single victim was that they should request and demand the Bitcoin address that is being used for these fraudulent withdrawals and the IP address that was used when they were requested. And every single person I spoke to except for one said that this request was just ignored that ACR would answer other things, but they would just completely ignore that request no matter how many times they made it. Except one guy, one guy finally got an answer here, and it was not a good answer. The guy got an answer from ACR that, quote, we are not giving out the details of the investigation, including IP addresses. What? We are not giving out details of the investigation, including IP addresses. And by the way, they wouldn't give Bitcoin addresses either. Now, why would that be? I could understand if they would say, we're not giving it at this time until we're done investigating. But why not at all? Why don't you have a right to know where your money went? Your money gets withdrawn from your account. It's supposed to be your money that goes to your Bitcoin address. And you tell them it didn't go to my Bitcoin address. And then they say, yeah, you're right. It didn't go to your Bitcoin address. Here's the money back. And you say, okay, well, can you tell me where it went? No. Can you tell me the IP address of the person requesting it? No. Why are they protecting this? Someone, some idiot on Twitter is like, well, the privacy reasons, they can get sued. No, 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 uh-uh. When a request is made from your account, then... It becomes your property, basically. No one has any kind of expectation of privacy when they breach your account and attempt to withdraw your money. So anyone on your account, 
you have a right to know their IP address. Anyone on your account, you have a right to know where your money was sent. The thief could not sue ACR, which, by the way, is not located in the U.S., so good luck suing them. But even if they were in the U.S., they could not sue ACR going, what, you gave out my info? What? Come on, where's my privacy? No, the account holder has a right to know all details regarding access to their account and especially where their money was sent. So there's only one reason, one reason, one reason only why this info would not be given out, and that's because ACR does not want you to see what is really happening. Now, what do I believe here? Do I think that ACR is just stealing from people? Do I think that this is uh, Phil Nagy just putting a little bit of extra money in his pocket? No. I want to say right now, First of all, I am not anti-ACR. You've listened to this show for how long? When have I ever told you not to play ACR? In fact, when people have asked me, hey, I'm in the U.S., I can't play legalized online poker. I'm in a state that doesn't have it, which is most of you. Where should I play? And I say, well, these are both flawed sites, but if you're going to play on one, I would recommend either Bovada Ignition or ACR. I've said this a lot of times. So I have actually recommended ACR as a flawed, albeit viable and uh, mostly trustworthy option for online poker for years. And they've never been a sponsor here. I don't have any kind of affiliate links to them. I have never been one who has been a paid promoter of theirs. I just answer honestly, like those are the two places that are safest to play in the U.S. if you're going to play on an offshore site. So I am not an ACR hater. And in fact, I didn't jump on a lot of the ACR hate bandwagons that have been going on social media over the years. And some of the people who criticize them have some good points about a lot of bots being on there, about ACR not doing enough to stop them, and a number of other issues. As I said, it's a flawed site, but not flawed enough to where I've told people they should just outright stay away. Just just kind of watch yourself there. However, this is the worst thing I've seen. This is a very, very bad situation where someone is getting into these accounts and somehow bypassing the need to click on a link in the sent to the email to verify the new device logging in. So they can go on a new device that ACR has never seen before and somehow they can bypass that restriction. That's very disturbing. And then they can withdraw all your money. That's very bad, right? That's something you need to know. If it is happening, you need to know that this is stopped and that it's never going to happen and that they've closed the hole, that this can't happen again. And you need to kind of be told what happened. They don't have to give you every single detail. And they don't have to tell you every detail on how they closed it because they may not want whoever breached it to do it again. They don't want to give them more clues on how to break the system again. But they owe the players some explanation for what happened here. So between a number of unrelated victims coming forward with evidence that people are having their accounts breached and withdrawals made and that large sums of money are being put back in these accounts after they get hit, albeit weeks later, albeit only after people complain, but still, they get back large sums of money, meaning ACR knows it's something on their end, and ACR will not give anyone the IP addresses or Bitcoin addresses of these withdrawals under any circumstances at any point now or in the future. Between all of that, I am very confident in stating that this had to be some sort of an inside job. Now, why is this not a gigantic story in poker? Why is this not like the biggest thing right now? 
ACR is one of the two major U.S.-facing offshore sites right now and has been for years. So how is it not a gigantic story that there is someone getting into accounts at will and withdrawing? Why is that not a gigantic story? Do you see it on Poker News? No. You see it on Card Player? No. Why don't you see these stories? If you Google, you will see very little coverage of this. You'll see Poker Fraud Alert. You will see Poker.org, and Haley Hintz did a write-up. And then there's one other at uh, uspoker.com. But how come the major poker news sites are not covering this? Well, why do you think? Who do you think is a major advertiser on these major poker news sites? Yes, ACR. So if they were to cover ACR with such a negative story that will scare people from depositing there and will cause people to panic and withdraw there, then ACR would lose a lot of business and ACR would not want to advertise on a site that would cover them in this way. So there's no coverage. So props to the few sites that did, but I'm disappointed in mainstream poker news for not covering this very big story, which trust me, they're all very aware of. And that's why you should listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and that's why you should read PokerFraudAlert.com, because you know how many poker site sponsors and affiliate deals I have? Zero point zero. And you know how much money Poker Fraud Alert makes every month? Zero point zero. And do you know how many close friends I have who work for or own or manage online poker sites? Zero point zero. So I'm going to tell you how it is. And yet at the same time, I'm going to be fair. I'm not going to jump on every conspiracy theory about sites being crooked or being rigged. I'm not going to always blindly take the player's side. As you saw, even with this situation, I was very skeptical of the guy who brought it to me, even though at the end, it looks like he was telling the complete truth. But I always need to look at it from every angle, and I always do. I want to be fair to all sides. Some people just love to jump on the player's side automatically, and I don't. I want to make sure that the player is telling me the truth. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. In this case, it looks like they all were. So I'm not an ACR hater, and I'm also not an ACR shill or someone with an incentive to keep quiet about them. So you'll always get the true facts of these situations from Poker Fraud Alert. And if I'm missing something, if I'm not seeing a story, bring it to me, and I will look into it. That's how I found this one. I wasn't a follower of this Gamble Gamble guy, but when someone alerted me to it, then I made contact with him, and I said, let's go to work on this. Now, ACR had nothing to say about this for quite some time. In fact, they made no statement about this until April 7th, more than two weeks since I became aware of this and started to talk about it. They were hoping this would go away on its own, and it would have had I not covered it, because nobody else was covering it at the time. For two weeks, nobody was covering it. I was putting it all over Twitter. I was telling people to retweet for awareness. I'm sure ACR was furious about this. I'm sure ACR did not like seeing this. But look, again, nothing against ACR, but this was an important story and people needed to know because people keep a lot of money on there. And if people's accounts are getting breached, 
by thieves and their money stolen than the poker community needs to know. And even if the whole thing is patched and fixed, then we need to know going forward for sure that it's going to be safe and we need to know why and we need to know the truth. I understand why ACR doesn't want this discussed because it will cause people to leave the site and withdraw their money and not deposit there. I understand from a business standpoint why they don't want this out, but it got out. So they've got to handle it. Anyway, ACR responded. To who? Who got the response from them? Oh, it would be a gentleman known as Todd Wittellis on April 7th. This is their statement. First statement they made to anyone. We recently had a handful of accounts that were susceptible to a security vulnerability due to a credential stuffing attack. Oh, my goodness. So they're admitting a vulnerability. Hmm. These sort of attacks are all too common in all online environments. We take them very seriously and work to defend and secure whenever vulnerabilities are identified. All account balances that were affected were given full refunds. Now, you may be thinking, huh? What are they talking about? What is a credential stuffing attack? Well, I will tell you what a credential stuffing attack is. See, fortunately, I have a computer science background. I was a programmer prior to being a poker player. So I have a deep understanding of this stuff. And while there are many far better computer security experts than me, I have enough understanding of the underlying concepts to tell when I'm being bullshitted, where others who don't have that expertise do not have such abilities. So I'll explain this to you. I know most of the audience isn't super technical, so I'll explain this to you. And good news is that even though this sounds like something very confusing and very technical, it actually isn't. It's actually very easily explained. So what is a credential stuffing attack that they admitted took place? And by the way, this is very big because they're no longer saying, oh, you know, this this wasn't our fault. They're saying, yeah, there is a security vulnerability due due to a credential stuffing attack. So what is that? A credential stuffing attack is very simple. In recent years, huge databases full of email and password combinations were hacked. Not on ACR, but just companies around the world. Big companies around the world have databases of people's email addresses and the passwords they use. And hackers around the world have been getting in and stealing these databases and decrypting the passwords so they have the passwords that are associated with these email addresses. In fact, you've probably gotten emails from some of these hackers or people who bought these email password combos on the black market trying to trick you that they've breached your computer. Like you'll get, hey, uh, bad news for you. We got into your account. We've been watching everything you've been doing. And just to give you proof, here's the password you've been using. And they give you a real password you've been using somewhere. And you're like, crap. Well, they must be into my computer because they know my password. Well, actually, they don't. And actually, they're not into your computer. They just have your email and password from a database hack of a company where you had previously logged in. So they're not watching you. And and the theme of these emails is that they've seen you watching embarrassing porn and also accessed your webcam and uh, got you on your webcam jerking off to this porn. And they're going to send this to all your contacts unless you send them Bitcoin. So, of course, it's all a lie. 
They have not looked at your webcam. They're not into your computer. They've never seen what porn you've accessed. They just have a list of passwords and email addresses, and they're trying to trick you. And I guess this is kind of a lucrative scam because people are falling for it. But what does this have to do with ACR? Well, you can buy these combos on the black market of emails and passwords that have been hacked from these databases. And a lot of people will use the same password everywhere. There's a lot of misconceptions about secure passwords. So what do you think is a more secure situation? Someone who uses a very simple password on every site they log into, like let's say on each site they make the password slightly different, but it's very simple. So on site number one, they use password Bobby1. On site number two, they make the site Bobby2. And let's say the person's name is actually Bobby. Okay, so the person's name is Bobby, and they actually use the password Bobby1 on the first site, Bobby2 on the second site, Bobby3 on the third site. So they don't use the same password on every site, but it's just separated by one number on each site. Now, wouldn't you think it'd be very easy to hack that password? So how secure is that password versus someone who uses a password that is just a bunch of random numbers and letters and uh, special characters, and that's 16 characters long, and they use the same password on every site, but it's something impossible to guess because it's this crazy long string of letters and numbers and, and symbols. So which person has a more secure situation between the two? I know neither is ideal because one person's using the same password everywhere and the other one's using really simple passwords that are very similar to his name. But which one is worse? Well, believe it or not, these days, the one who uses the complex password that's the same everywhere is far more vulnerable. Because what a credential stuffing attack does is it takes these lists of emails and passwords and someone programs an automated bot to try to log in to all of these password and email combinations and see how many they get into. And then the computer saves all the ones that were successful. And then the hackers at that point decide what to do with it, with the accounts they breach. But it only tries all of these once. So in the case with a person using passwords like Bobby1, Bobby2, Bobby3, it would fail because they use a slightly different password on each site and the bot doesn't try similar combos. It just moves on to the next one. So they take a password they know that person has used and they use it with that email that they got from previous hacks or may have bought from previous hacks and then they try it on every other site they can. That's what a credential stuffing attack is. So what ACR is trying to say is that People were getting into ACR by taking previously used passwords on other sites that were hacked that had nothing to do with them and just logging into ACR with that. So if some of their users use the same password as they use elsewhere, well, what can ACR do about it? This is the person's own stupid fault, and these hackers were getting in and withdrawing their money. Well, sounds like a good explanation, right? One little problem, though. Maybe you already figured out what that problem is. What about that new device link? How come that is not stopping them? Now, let's say somebody provided me with a master list of every single email and password combination on America's card room. Not from some other database. Let's say someone gave me all the email and password combos on ACR and told me which accounts they were connected to. Could I get in? No. Why? because I would get stuck when it would say, we see a new device logging into this account, please click the link to your email. And since I can't get into that person's email, then I would be unable to click the link which would authorize my login. 
Well, somehow, whoever was doing this was able to bypass that step. Somehow, they were able to not only log in without uh, clicking that link, but in all but one of the cases, this link was never even emailed to anybody, and they were just able to get in. So how is that happening? That's not a credential stuffing attack. A credential stuffing attack is where there is no check on a new device logging in. And then whoever has the email password combo that's being reused on another site, the hackers just get right in. But not on ACR. ACR requires that you click a link when a new device logs in. And if you don't have access to that person's email, you can't get in even if you have their password. Now you may have the question, what if that person's email has the same password? Well, I'll tell you why that doesn't happen very often. Usually people are at least smart enough to know that they shouldn't use the same email password as they do on sites where they're signing up because you'll think, well, hey, if I'm giving the site this password, I don't want them logging into my email. So I don't trust those who work for this site that they don't breach my email. So I'm going to keep my email different and then I'll use the same password on other sites. That's what a lot of people do. And in fact... I asked some of these people after ACR made this claim that this is what happened. And not only did they tweet this to me, but then that same day when they were receiving media inquiries from the few forms of poker media who questioned them about it, they said the same thing, that it was a credential stuffing attack and they've closed the vulnerability. Well, that raises the second question. How do you close a vulnerability to this? I thought that's what the device access link was about. How do you close that vulnerability if you already had it closed via the link that people would click to authorize a new device? It's almost like there was something else going on that they don't want to admit to. So I asked people, did you use the same password on ACR as you have on other sites? Well, actually, everybody who responded to me did say that yes, Their ACR password was the same password as they use on other sites, but not other poker sites. So then you may say, oh, okay, well, well, then ACR is telling the truth. It looks like it was a credential stuffing attack. No, not just a credential stuffing attack. This shows that it probably was a credential stuffing attack plus something else, because remember, these people still would be protected because the new device email would go out and the breachers could not click it without access to these people's email. And I asked them a second question. Are you using the same password for your email as elsewhere? And all of them told me no. So for the email, they kept a separate password. But they did use a email password combo that they had used elsewhere on other websites, albeit not poker sites, that may have been used by these hackers if they had hacked those databases. So I do believe at this point that someone had a database of email and password combinations that were then tried on ACR and the hackers got in that way. And that part's not ACR's fault, but where ACR's fault comes in and where we still don't have an explanation is how they were bypassing that link that is emailed when a new device is seen. And ACR won't answer that. 
they won't give us any info. And they still won't give the information about the IP address or the Bitcoin address that was used for withdrawal. And why is that? Why are they protecting this? Why is this a secret? This community is very smart and very crypto savvy. Think of all the crypto experts there are in poker. Think of all the people who could tear this apart. People much better than me at this stuff with crypto. And could tear this apart and figure out a lot about the thieves that were doing this. And the IP addresses, those could be used as well to narrow down who did this or at least where they were. There's a lot that can be found out by this information. But for some reason, ACR doesn't want us seeing that. Now, why would they care if these were just some Russian hackers who did this, who bought a, a database of email and password combos and then tried them on ACR and got through on some of them and hit withdrawals? Why would ACR care about protecting them? Why would ACR care about giving you that IP address or giving you that Bitcoin address? They wouldn't. They would only care if they're afraid that further investigation by the community would reveal information that they'd prefer not be known, such as that it resolves to people or areas that are very close to where they are. So they're hoping that they can just quietly give back the money, eat the loss here, which isn't a huge loss because it wasn't a huge number of accounts yet. They are being honest when they say that a handful of accounts. How big is a handful? I don't know. It's not like five, but it's not like, a thousand, okay? So the total money stolen compared to what ACR makes, which is a lot. ACR is basically printing money. They're a very profitable site. So the money they're paying out to people, since it's not a mass hacking, is kind of a drop in the bucket. And they would much rather just pay it back, shut down the conversation, in fact, not even have a conversation, and move on. Now, you may say, well, look, let's say an insider got in and did this. If it's not management, which I believe it's not management, I strongly believe that management and ownership of ACR is not behind this and, in fact, is not happy this happened. So, look, can they really control if they get some rogue employees, especially since they're in a third world country and it's, it's hard to get help, especially in places like that, that aren't going to try to cheat you at some point? that there's only so much they can do to prevent that. I understand that. And I understand why they don't want something like this out if they are proactively trying to do something about it and refund people the money and close the hole. I understand all that. And I try to give some leeway where that is concerned. But here's what bothers them, is that the first known instance of this was on January 26th. And it continued all the way up through April 3rd. That was the last time it happened was April 3rd. So between January 26th and April 3rd, they had these incidents and they were not stopping it. And look, they were actually giving these security refunds to people and it was still happening after that. So for sure you can't say that they weren't aware. They were aware and somehow they weren't stopping it. So with all the time that passed, we're talking about now more than two full months that passed while this was happening. And they didn't put an end to this horrible vulnerability they had. Then that's a flaw on their end in their procedure in dealing with these type of breaches. And that's really bad. And obviously, insiders there had a way to do this. Obviously, insiders had a way to obtain that link or just bypass needing to click that link at all. 
Now, how would they obtain this link, and how could they prevent it from going out? I have a theory. The, by the way, this is all theory I'm giving you here, but I think I'm pretty close with my assessment of this. ACR admitted in their tweets that there was a breach, there, there was an attack, and that's why they gave the money back, so that part is not speculation. But the rest of this is speculation, but it's speculation with a lot of uh, circumstantial evidence that really points to ACR having a lot more than just a credential stuffing attack. So a way that they could get this link without you ever receiving it is via the email server. If somebody who works for ACR has access to the outgoing email server, which ACR may not have taken many steps to prevent that, because it's very obvious you encrypt passwords, you really protect the passwords, blah, blah, blah. So it's very possible that whoever wanted to do this could not get the passwords without buying a list of email password combos from elsewhere and then just trying them on ACR. It's possible that whoever did this just either didn't have the access or didn't have the uh, decryption abilities to break into the passwords in that way directly through the ACR server. That they had to get the password somehow from an outside source by just trying the same password that these same people have used on other sites by buying a list like that. But then what they would have the power to do, maybe, was get access to and even stop that email that goes out with that link. And I can see this on Poker Fraud Alert. If you sign up a new account on Poker Fraud Alert, it emails you a confirmation link you need to click. Well, I can tell you, I can look at the text of every email that goes out from the Poker Fraud Alert server, from the server side. So anyone with the equivalent access to me on Poker Fraud Alert can see this link that goes out to verify your Poker Fraud Alert account or to reset your password. So what if somebody with server access could see the outgoing email in the mail server of ACR, and when it would send that out, not only would they copy that link and click it themselves, but they would terminate that email and prevent it from being sent out in the first place, and maybe in the case of that Gamble Gamble guy, they were a bit too slow when it got out anyway. Maybe something like that. I'm just guessing here, but that is one way it definitely could have occurred. Pretty ingenious plan, actually. But someone buys a list of email password combos, They run an automated program to compare them to registered email addresses on ACR and strips out everything that's not registered to ACR. So now they only have a list of people on ACR and passwords they've used elsewhere. And then they have a bot try these passwords, or maybe they do it manually. Maybe they look at whoever has been engaging in activity on ACR, maybe sitting down at a cash table with a bunch of money, maybe someone who wins a tournament, maybe someone who makes a deposit. And they see these people obviously have money on their account, and then they just manually try to log in with these passwords, and they're all ready to intercept that link that goes out on the ACR mail server, and then they copy that link, click it themselves, and delete the email before it actually gets to the recipient. That could totally be how it was done. So was that a credential stuffing attack? Yes, but that would be a credential stuffing attack from within ACR, and then a mail intercept attack to defeat the second level of security, that link. Also, whoever was doing this had some familiarity with ACR's withdrawal process. This wasn't someone who was new to ACR. This is someone who knew not to withdraw more than $10,000 at a time. 
One of the victims, the one who was hit for the most, for almost 14,000, they were hit for 13,623. So they were hit for 10,000 first, and then 3623 about a half hour later. So whoever did this knew that ACR might do extra security checks for more than $10,000. Because remember, the hackers want to get this done very quickly. Now, every single person who had money withdrawn did get a withdrawal email. And you may say, wait a minute, Todd, wait a minute. If they have access to stop or intercept this email with the link to verify the new device, how come everybody got a withdrawal email? Wouldn't it be a lot more effective to suppress that as well? Well, yes, but guess what? The withdrawal email does not come from ACR. It comes from the ACR payment processor. Uh So they can't stop that. An ACR insider could not stop the withdrawal information from coming out because that comes from a company called digitalexchange.eu. And Digital Exchange is the one that sends the withdrawal information. So if it is an ACR insider, they can't control what Digital Exchange is sending out when they perform this withdrawal. So that would explain why those emails were not suppressed in any way. So there's a lot of suspicious elements here. Here's another one. The one person who emailed me that was hit for only a small amount of money is arguably the one that is the most suspicious for ACR insiders being involved. This one really, really looks very fishy. I believe the guy. I'm saying that this really looks bad for ACR. This was a low roller. This is not a high-stakes player, not even a middle-stakes player. This is someone with a whopping $68 in their account, and they decided to add $267 via a Bitcoin deposit. I don't know why... 267, kind of a weird number, but whatever. So they added 267 to their $68 balance. They made a Bitcoin deposit. 61 minutes, an hour, 61 minutes after their deposit, someone got into their account and withdrew that same 267 right back to a Bitcoin address that was not theirs. Now, the reason that's so significant, even though we're only talking about 267 bucks, is that somehow someone knew that this guy had just deposited. And then they withdrew that exact same amount and left the original 68. And by the way, that's another clue, that they never seem to drain the accounts completely. They always seem to little, leave a little bit over. And that would indicate that maybe ACR has some extra checks in place when someone completely empties an account, whereas if there's a little left back there, then they don't. So this person just took right back this $267, this thief, that this victim had just deposited an hour prior. So someone had said, hey, you know, maybe that whoever's breaching is just going through accounts and seeing who has money and withdrawing it. I said, what really says to me that this is an insider at ACR is that someone knew this person deposited and within an hour stole the money. And someone who's just trying accounts wouldn't know that. They wouldn't get to it within an hour. I mean, I guess coincidentally they could have, but it's not likely. This makes it much more likely that someone knew that a deposit was made, someone within ACR was able to see a list of recent deposits coming in, and then they looked if they could access that account. They saw they did have that person's password in that database list that they bought, and then they did the same routine to get in there and do this withdrawal. So that one is the most damning to ACR of all of them, even though it's for the least amount of money. Most of the people who were hit 
were hit for four figures, and there was was one guy who was hit for uh, close to fourteen thousand. But a lot of people were hit for kind of like high four figures, like the first guy. But that small one is the most suspicious to me, because he had just deposited an hour ago, and somehow the thieves knew he just deposited and went on there and withdrew exactly what he had deposited. So that's my theory about what happened. I can't verify it. I can't verify it because ACR won't give the info of the IP address and the Bitcoin address. They won't give it, and there's no reason. Why would they protect the thieves? Why? This community is real good at investigating. That's how we broke open the absolute poker super using and the UB super using and the full tilt scandal of them stealing the money on deposit. We took incomplete information and a lot of smart people broke it down and figured out what really happened. So how come we are being deprived of this information that we could use in the same way? So what if an insider at ACR who was armed with a list of emails and passwords that were taken from some other website and cross-referenced it with how many of those people play on ACR? What if that person had access to the mail server, was able to get in and do these withdrawals? What if they knew enough about the withdrawal procedure there where they knew exactly how much to take out, how much to leave in, all that stuff, and they just slowly hit accounts. They didn't want to hit too many at once because uh, otherwise uh, that may have raised some alarm bells. And they were careful not to hit the very biggest users because number one, you probably can't take six figures off ACR without a bunch of security checks going on. And number two, those players are more likely to be high profile players who can be very noisy about it on Twitter. Every single victim here was an unknown. There was not one known poker pro hit by this. Not one person that was a victim of this is someone who is known or even semi-known in poker. These were all kind of no-name players that just don't have the platform to get any kind of attention. Whereas if a a major guy with with tens of thousands of people following on Twitter, with a lot of fans, if he were to talk about this, then a lot of people would start talking. But all these nobodies that have almost no following... And I'm not saying this derisively. I'm just saying nobody's from the standpoint of people not knowing who they are or following them. Well, I'm talking about other poker players. Then uh, whoever's doing it, as long as they don't hit too many people at once, can do this and get a nice steady stream of stolen income. And they were doing it for more than two months, maybe even longer than that, and getting away with it. And nothing was stopping them. And ACR was not interested, apparently, in stopping them until a big deal was made by one Todd Dandruff Witellis of PokerFraudAlert.com. And I'm not tooting my own horn here. I'm not taking credit for things I didn't do. Go take a look. Go take a look at the timeline. Go take a look at who they first responded to. Go take a look that they did not even address this at all, publicly or privately, because it was still happening as late as April 3rd. They did not address this until... I made a big deal about it on this show, on the forum, and on Twitter. That's when they finally took action. It was because of me. This would still be happening if I did not take an interest in this. If I were never born, this would still be happening. I'm very, very confident in saying that. I'm sure ACR is not thrilled with me. I'm sure ACR wishes that I didn't keep pressing this. 
Now, there's a little bit more to this that I haven't told you yet. ACR apparently has some kind of app. I don't play there, so I don't know much about this app, and I've never downloaded it, so I can't tell you much about the app. But they have, or shall I say, had an app. Because on the same day, April 7th, as they acknowledged that a breach occurred, the app went down and has not come back. Well, do you think that is a coincidence? Do you think that ACR just happened to take down their app on the same day they admitted there was a breach? And by the way, they are not giving anyone a date of when the app is coming back. They claim that just there's some technical issues with it. (laughs) That's it. Technical issues. But they are not giving any date that it's going to come back. The app. I am not a believer in coincidences like that. They wrote on April 7th, same day. Important update. Our mobile application is currently under maintenance. Should be back up as soon as possible. Thank you for your patience. Soon as possible, huh? They told people that there is no time frame for this when they were asking. In fact, someone posted a screenshot. The mobile poker app is currently under maintenance. You can still enjoy all our games on our downloadable poker client. We don't really have a time frame for the completion of the update. It can take a few days. So no app. App's been down for six days. Has not come back to my knowledge. Same day it goes down as when they're admitting to this breach. Hmm. Well, that has to be connected. That'd be a huge coincidence if it was not connected. But wait, there's more. It's not just the app. A lot more people are getting these emails when they try to withdraw saying the following. This is since April 7th. We hope this email finds you well. In order to move forward with your recent cash out request... Email us at cashier at digitalexchange.eu, which is their payment processor, from your registered email with the following information. Amount of this cash out, Bitcoin receiving address for this cash out, date and amount of your last deposit. As soon as we hear from you, we will move forward to process your cash out request. Otherwise, if we don't hear from you within 24 hours, your transaction will be canceled. Now, at first, when I started seeing reports of this, I thought, okay, this is directly connected to what happened here. And obviously what they want here is... They want someone who receives this email at their email address, which presumably the thieves can't get access to. They want that person to basically verify it was them. And one way they can do that is by saying the address that they want this cash out going to, because the thieves would have asked for a different address than obviously that person's address. So that would stop it, right? That probably would. So I thought, yeah, this has to be something they're doing because of this breach. However, I was since informed by a regular ACR player who's been there for years that they got this email all the way back to 2018. And that's just like, quote, once out of every seven or eight times on average, they would get this weird email and they'd have to send that over. It was almost like a random security check that would just trigger out of nowhere. So way before this problem. However, there have been reports of increased numbers of these emails coming to people. Now, not everybody's getting this email. There have been people reporting on 2 plus 2, that they are still able to withdraw without this request to email the payment processor and give this information. So some people can still withdraw and get the Bitcoin very quickly as normal. But I think what might be happening is they might have ratcheted up the requirement for 
when this email goes out to where it's happening much more often now. Maybe if they see it being requested from a different IP address than the person has been seen before. Maybe something like that. Maybe if it's a different device. Maybe either one. So maybe if you are requesting the cash out from the same device with the same IP, they don't put you through this. But if it's a different device, different IP, they put you through it. That would totally make sense. I I can't say for sure that's what's happening, but maybe that's why some people are getting it and some are not. Now, what about the app? Well, this would really make it seem to me that the vulnerability was found through the app. Because remember, somehow someone was getting through without having to click that link. So maybe, maybe the app figures into it in some way. Maybe they were able to suppress the email from going out, but they couldn't see it. Maybe it was something like that. They, they could kill the mail queue, but they were unable to actually look at the contents of it. I'm just guessing here. But maybe they weren't able to get this link. And instead, they were able to go through the app to uh, get in without having to click that link. In fact, maybe the app was what was being used to prevent that link from going out at all, but then that wouldn't completely answer everything, because remember that first guy, Gamble Gamble, who reported this, he did get the link about uh, having to click get in, but who knows? There's some things I can't answer here, but I bet if I were to take a look at this, if I were given access, which I never will be, but let's say ACR gave me access to look at everything here, I'm sure I could figure out everything that really occurred, probably a lot of things they wouldn't want known. But I'm sure it has something to do with the app, because the app is gone. So no app for the moment, with no timetable to come back. They're saying, just use our desktop client. Forget the app. (laughs) That's gone for the moment, and we're not telling you when it's coming back. So what this really looks like to me is a stopgap security procedure to put an end to this. And it appears it might be working because nobody has reported to me a single instance of these thefts since April 3rd. And now we're at April 13th, and nobody has reported it happening in the last 10 days. So I guess, good. And it makes sense. If they are closing the vulnerability through the app by deleting the app and making it not work anymore, and if they are making anyone requesting cash outs from a different device or different IP than they're typically seen at, if they're making them go through this process to email the cashier and tell the cashier the Bitcoin address they requested, well, that pretty much shuts down this little scam. This also would strongly say that ACR management was not involved because if management was involved, they wouldn't have to shut down any of this stuff. They could just say, okay, Uh, we've closed the hole, that's it, you're safe, you're good, because they would just stop doing it themselves. But here, it looks like they've engaged in what is a typical first step in stopping any kind of breach. I don't just mean for ACR, I mean for any kind of security breach, any kind of uh, network security breach, where the first thing you do is you stop it. Even if you don't know exactly how the hackers did it, even if you don't know if there's further holes, even if you don't know exactly how you'll stop them, if you can put some walls in place to where whatever they're doing isn't going to work, you do that first, and then you look into it more carefully later 
and eventually you completely close the hole and then you can take down that wall. So it looks like basically they have seen the way it's happening and by removing app access and by making anyone unfamiliar message this cashier to verify the cash out, uh, that pretty much stops what was happening. And it looks like that has worked. That's not a permanent solution, but uh, that's what they're doing at the moment until they can see how to stop this in a more graceful way and until they fully understand everything that went on. And that's fine. That's the right thing to do. But here's where the wrong thing is. The wrong thing is not being honest with people about what occurred. I don't even blame ACR management for this occurring in the first place. You you cannot hire all ideal employees that you can trust with your life. You can't. You hire a lot of people. You will get some bad apples. And sometimes the bad apples will have access to do things that can be harmful to your business. This happens to businesses everywhere. So I can't say ACR, especially existing where they do in a third world country, I understand that they will get some bad apples who have a lot of incentive to steal, especially because the consequence of such theft is probably not very very stiff or even enforceable in those jurisdictions. And also, when the place is very poor, people are more willing to do these things for money. So it all makes sense. In a perfect world, ACR would do a massive background check on every employee and hire only the salt of the earth to work for them, but that's not reality. So I don't blame them for this occurring, other than some shoddy and incompetent security measures that would have allowed this, because there were a lot of measures they could have taken to prevent this. But I'll even give them a pass there. Okay, it happened. Breaches happen. Security oversights happen. They really shouldn't like this. I mean, this is a pretty bad one. They should have had things in place to prevent it. But okay, it was a human mistake, we'll say. But once this has happened... And once the story's gotten out, it's too late. Just be honest with your players at this point. You can't cover it up anymore. You can't pretend it didn't happen. You can't pretend it's just a small issue. Just be honest. Even if it doesn't sound ideal for your business, be honest and say that there was a breach, that it wasn't just a credential stuffing. It wasn't just because someone bought a database and people stupidly, carelessly used their passwords on multiple sites, including ACR, and what can we do about it? No. Admit that we found that there was uh, some bad apples here, and they've been removed, and we've closed the hole, and this won't happen again, and give as much info as you can without giving away too much that would allow people to do it again. But you got to say something. Now, this credential stuffing part is probably true, but it's only a small part of the story. The bigger part of the story is that somebody had a way to bypass that link and that they are not providing the IP address or Bitcoin address and that the people breaching the accounts somehow had a lot of knowledge of the inner workings of ACR, like the way the cash outs are processed and the limits of the cash out processing that they will do quickly and which they won't do quickly. And somehow they had knowledge that a guy had just put money on an hour ago. Okay, so all these things together, it's got to be an insider. Now, maybe it's an insider at the payment processor, and maybe the payment processor has more access to ACR system than we're aware. I'm open to that belief as well, but I still think it's more likely it's at ACR themselves, especially because 
these links to verify the new device, those were not arriving in anyone's email address. And the one guy who got it, it was never opened. And somehow they accessed the people's accounts anyway. And yet the withdrawal emails, those were never stopped. So it's almost like uh, whoever did this didn't have any power on the cashier's side. Whatever it was, we need more information. Once the story gets out, you got to be honest with your players because the players are trusting you with their money. So, yes, in the best world for ACR, the story never gets out. You quietly put a stop to it, and then nobody's the wiser, and you refund those who were affected, and uh, the story never sees the light of day. I admit for ACR that would be the best outcome. But now that it's out, be honest with people. Let them know why they should feel safe playing there. Don't just blame it on credential stuffing, because it's a lot more than that. Now, why would they say it's credential stuffing? Why, why is that the story they're putting out? Well, number one, it might be true, for the reasons I said, that might be part of the whole thing. As I said, every person I've spoken to did say that they used their ACR password elsewhere, so I'm sure that's not a coincidence. But also, this allows ACR to take minimum blame for this, because they say, hey, this is something that's common to all online environments, that People will use the same password in a lot of places. What can we do about it? Well, yeah, if that's all it is, they're right, but that isn't the whole thing. And it wouldn't make sense for that to be the whole thing because, of course, there should be some sort of protection that if a password is breached in some way, that there's some sort of protection there, whether it's a a texted code that the person has to respond to or an email link or whatever it is, or maybe both, to verify that the withdrawal is something that they want, and even to allow them to get into the account in the first place. And the fact that this is not in place is a big problem. Or at least it wasn't in place. I am glad they gave the money back. I don't think management is behind this. There's a lot of anti-ACR conspiracy theorists coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, well, this site has been crooked for a long time and it's rigged and there's, there's all kinds of bots everywhere and blah, blah, blah. By the way, I do believe there's a lot of bots. I do believe there's a lot of bots from uh, Belarus that are killing the site, just destroying everybody because they're just bots and they're very hard to beat. They're not directly cheating, but they're cheating by being bots, and bots have an advantage over humans in several ways, so not good to be playing with bots, and bots can collude with each other too. So I do believe there's still a lot of bots there and they're not doing anything about it, but that's a separate issue. I I don't want to have that cloud this issue here, and I definitely don't want allegations of rigging of, of the deck and all this other stuff, which is totally unsubstantiated. That shouldn't be what we're discussing here. Let's keep this pure. Let's talk about the fact that accounts were just being breached and the person whose account it is has no control over it. The only fault of theirs was using the same password in a few places, but ACR was supposed to have protections against that and didn't. And they're not being totally honest about what happened. They're not telling us the full story. It looks like insiders were involved. But this was Poker Fraud Alert's doing. This is not happening anymore because of Poker Fraud Alert. And that's why you should listen to this show. That's why you should read the scam, scandals, and shadiness portion of the Poker Fraud Alert forum to learn about these things. And that's why it is important to have independent poker media that doesn't give a shit if a poker site looks bad that doesn't have relationships with any poker sites. Very important. So I'm not someone who likes to brag about my site very much, but it's important to have sites like Poker Fraud Alert for reasons like this. 
Because if you only read poker news or you only read uh, Card Player, you're not going to read about this story. You will know nothing of this story if that's all you read. And it's not because it's not newsworthy. Well, I'll let you know anything else that happens. If you were, were a victim of this, please let me know if you haven't contacted me already. And especially let me know if you have had any kind of breach after April 3rd. So April 4th and on of 2022. If this happened to you, please let me know. Or if you know anybody this happened to you on April 4th or later, please let me know. And if you know anybody who doesn't have their money back yet, please let me know as well. I can put some pressure on uh, certain parties to make sure you do get your refund. But I, I do think they intend to refund everybody. So if you have been a victim of this, uh, press them to give a refund. I don't think we're ever going to get the IP addresses. I don't think we'll ever get the Bitcoin addresses. As a final note before uh, moving on to the next topic, I've had a lot of people saying to me, why aren't you being harsh on Chris Moneymaker? Why aren't you calling out Chris Moneymaker? Why aren't you demanding Chris Moneymaker resign over this? Well, Chris Moneymaker is a sponsored pro on the site. He's their main sponsored pro, but he's a sponsored pro. He does not manage the site. He doesn't have any view into security. Yeah, he can talk to people. In fact, uh, he did. And I talked to him a little bit about this behind the scenes. But ultimately, he only gets the information they give him. And I don't think they were fully honest with him either. And it's easy to say, oh, well, Chris should just get up and leave. Well, okay, they're paying Chris a lot of money for representing the site. And as far as Chris sees, they are refunding everybody. And in fact, the biggest victims of this have been refunded, to my knowledge. And they seem to have closed this hole. And this probably isn't going to happen again. So as far as he sees, it was taken care of. Even if their explanation isn't a full explanation, and even if I am casting doubt upon it. So as a paid promoter of a site, here's how I feel you need to uh, take responsibility. If the site is an outright scam, meaning they're just not paying anybody, like Lock Poker was doing, or if they're directly stealing from people, like UB and Absolute Poker was doing, and you're still promoting them, then you're a piece of shit because you are promoting a site that is an outright scam that's going to steal from people. However, in situations like these, where the site is not trying to steal from anybody, but is just handling a scandal in a way that isn't totally correct, and they're not being transparent enough, and they're not being 100% truthful, that's a bit different. I compare this to the situation on PokerStars where they jacked the Supernova Elite from people who deserve to still still be Supernova Elite several years ago. I think this is back in 2015. And people got all over Negranu's ass about it. In fact, they really got over his ass when he said that he would resign if they don't fix this, and then they didn't fix it, and he didn't resign. Now, he shouldn't have made that pledge, but I understood why he didn't resign, and I understood his point of view. Now, I felt he did too much apologizing for them and too much minimizing how stars had screwed people. And this was a post-Esai stars, by the way. This was not uh, the Esai Scheinberg era. This was the era that came after that with the company that purchased it. But while Negranu apologized for them too much afterwards and made excuses for them too much afterwards, 
I was not one who felt that he should quit over this because this wasn't outright scamming. It was just kind of unethical handling of the situation of their rewards program. So while I was totally on the player's side, and I'm not going to rehash that whole thing again. It's a seven-year-old story. I'm not going to bother with it. I was totally on their side about it, but this was not a big enough thing for Negranu to say, okay, I'm walking away because PokerStars itself was not a scam site. And that's how I feel about ACR. ACR itself is not a scam site. If you play on ACR, aside from running into bots, you're going to get a fair game. And if you withdraw your money on ACR, you will get it. In fact, you're going to get it very fast. They process withdrawals at a lightning fast speed. So you will get your money. They're not a lock poker who's refusing to pay people. Uh, the, it is true that uh, they'll sometimes pay somebody else who requested under your account that might be an insider in the company, but they do pay people. <laughs> no, but seriously, you can play poker there. To my knowledge, nobody's looking at your whole cards. To my knowledge, you're playing a fair game with a fair deck. And to my knowledge, when you withdraw your money, you will get it very quickly. So these are the basic elements of a poker site that's offshore. And when they meet these basic elements, then it's not a horrendous site. However, this was a horrendous scandal. And they need to address it better. Management didn't cause it. Management didn't do it. I'd be shocked if management did this. Why? It, it didn't make enough money. It was too small of a scandal for management to be doing this. ACR is making a bunch every day. The last thing that management's going to do is steal from this few number of people and this amount of money. It just, it doesn't make sense. And by the way, the changes they made to stop it wouldn't make sense if they were the ones doing it. They wouldn't need to close down the app. They wouldn't need to send more of these emails if it's from a different IP. This is very different handling than what we saw of AP and UB when management was actually doing it. This has all the appearances of a kind of low-level insider doing it and them realizing it and them not wanting everyone to ditch the site if that story got out that an insider was doing it. So they blamed it on a credential stuffing attack, which it was, but probably by an insider. And then wouldn't give anyone any more info, wouldn't give the Bitcoin addresses, wouldn't give the IP addresses, refunded people who got stolen, and closed the vulnerability and said, okay, we're done. It's all over. We're good, guys. Everybody's been made whole. We're good. Bye-bye. And they hope it goes away. And they know because they spend a lot of money advertising on the big poker news sites that it won't get aggressively covered on those sites. So they think they'll be good. And you know what? To some degree, they will. Though there have been people on social media that have been saying that they have taken off all their money and they're not going to play there anymore because of this. And, okay. That's the result of not being honest about it. I don't feel bad about that because I am coming forward with theories that make sense because they will not come out with the full truth. If you guys think I'm wrong, if you're listening to this ACR and you see this freaking asshole Dan Druff, he thinks he knows, but he's just trying he's just guessing at things. He doesn't know. He's he's blaming us for having an insider. We didn't have an insider, it was outside hackers. Okay. Then let us see. Give us the Bitcoin addresses, give us the IP addresses, and we will determine if it was outside hackers. How about that? How about that? I'm not looking to blame you guys. Go back in my history. 
Remember when Joey Ingram was on this whole crusade about the bots on ACR? I kind of like lightly covered it because Joey Ingram was making such a big deal. And I think Joey Ingram was right with some of the things he was accusing, though I think he was accusing some other things without enough evidence. I think he was over-accusing them of things. But I do think he had some points about the bots. And even they admitted that. But notice I was not all over that. Notice that I wasn't like a huge ACR hater. I wasn't going, rah, rah, Joey, great job. I'm going to help you here. I'm going to help you trash ACR. No, I didn't get involved because I felt that uh, Joey was overdoing it. He had some good points about the bots, but he was overdoing it. I wasn't on an anti-ACR crusade. I never have been. I don't hate ACR. I have no axe to grind with ACR. And ACR has never done anything to me personally. And I don't even have a problem with any of the pros at ACR. Every single current pro on ACR I have no issue with. In fact, some of them I like. I'm not close friends with any of them, but some of them I like. So I have no issue with ACR. I just want the truth to be put out here so people can feel comfortable to have their money on there. That's all. It's never good when this happens, but you got to be honest. And had you guys jumped on it back in January and closed this, then I would never even have heard about it. And this would be done. You let this go on for over two months, this is going to happen. Sorry. That's what I do. I report on scandals and scams within poker and gambling. And guess what? This is one of them. But if anyone from ACR would like to talk to me about it and even tell me things in confidence, which I will promise not to repeat if you ask me not to repeat them, then get at me. 775-372-8355 is the number to text me, or you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, all lowercase, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, exactly as it sounds. And I will keep anything confidential you tell me that you don't want me putting out there. In fact, anytime anyone messages me, I ask them, can I say this publicly? And if they say no, I go, okay, I won't. All right, it's all for this topic. Just wanted to get that out there. Wanted to give you guys the conclusion. So, Short explanation, probably safe to have money on ACR right now, but if you want to wait a little longer to make sure these thefts aren't still occurring, I understand because it's only been about 10 days since it last happened. And I don't think we'll ever get a full explanation. And major poker media should have covered this story because then we probably would have found out more. They have more of an audience than I do. It's right now when I really wish I had a bigger audience. I don't have a tiny audience. The, the fact that they acknowledge this at all is because I don't have a tiny audience and they knew it. But I don't have a massive audience. By the way, I found through somebody else, Luke Vrabel, who I believe is unfairly banned from the World Series and we had him on the show once. But, uh, you know, he, he is kind of a controversial guy who talks a lot of shit on Twitter, but he shouldn't have been banned from the World Series. He was banned for a stupid reason. He has been on the side of believing that All-American Dave should make an effort to refund the balances regardless of his current situation. And by digging, he found from May 31st, 2020, that All-American Dave tweeted in regards to uh, what's going to happen to people's balances due to COVID. He wrote, meal plan balances from 2019 will never expire. Never was in all caps. We understand that it may be a while before many are able and willing to travel and play poker again, but when that happens, we will be there to serve. Hang in there, everyone, and remember the best way to be better is to eat better. Hashtag be chill. Hmm. Now, that doesn't directly say that we will refund 
any balance if we go out of business, but it does encourage people to not worry about their balances. Ryan Feldman, by the way, yes, that same Ryan Feldman, is also of the belief that Dave needs to make an effort to refund people, and he said that Dave was not even allowing anybody to get back their excess balances at the end of the 2021 World Series. So it wasn't even a matter of people just choosing to roll it over out of laziness. They had no choice. And uh, a lot of people are of the belief that this was not Dave's money to spend. And I, I agree here. So I really think at the very least, as I've said several times here, that Dave needs to make a pledge that as soon as he gets back on his feet, that he'll make it right to people and not just say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's the way the ball bounces. I feel terrible about it, but no, you're not getting your money back ever. That's not, uh, that's not a good way to leave the community. And it's weird, too, because the guy was so well-liked. Do you think he'd even leave the door open? Like, I, I guess he feels it's final to let, never, never let him back in, but there could be other opportunities to serve the poker world. Like, why burn the bridge like this? Why not just say and mean it that, look, I'm broke, guys, but if I make some money again at some point in the future, even with some other unrelated business, I'll pay you guys back. That's all he's got to say. I know it's never fun to hand a bunch of money back that you owe people because of a failed business that only failed because of circumstances outside your control. I understand that. It's unpleasant to feel like you've got that monkey on your back, but you got to think of the customers who supported you all these years. All right. Next big story. This one just came today. This one I talked about somewhat before. But it was kind of left open-ended. And now there's a finality to this story. And there's a new aspect to it that makes the victim not so sympathetic anymore. This is about All-American Dave. So we're going from America's card room to All-American Dave. This is the America show, I guess, even though America's card room is not in America. But All-American Dave is in America. And if you remember... I have been very supportive of All-American Dave over the years, especially recently. In case you don't remember, All-American Dave is the owner of a food truck that has been at the World Series for many years. And what he provides, or shall I say provided, was healthy and, uh, in some people's opinion, tasty food that was fairly expensive. And you could go out in the back of the Rio and pick it up, or he could have the food delivered directly to your table by pretty girls who work for him. And that business model worked very well for many years, and his food truck was very popular. Not everybody got food from there. Some people thought it was too expensive. Some people just didn't like the food. Some people thought it wasn't flavorful enough because it was healthy, and often that's a trade-off. It'd be great if the best-tasting food was also the most healthy food, but that's unfortunately not the way life works. If it was, then I'd probably be lighter. Probably wouldn't have the stomach that I do. I was not someone who got food from All-American Dave, partially because I just didn't like the offerings, just my personal taste that just wasn't really the type of food I was into. But uh, I will admit the other reason. It wasn't cheap. And I 
live very cheaply at the World Series. I tried to keep my expenses very low because being somewhere to play a tournament is not cheap when you don't live there. And I don't live in Vegas anymore. So when I'm staying in Vegas and I have to feed myself in Vegas, I don't want to add to the tournament rake, which I have to pay for any tournament I enter, by also living an expensive lifestyle. So I eat cheaply, and I try to get cheap or free hotel rooms. I try to keep my expenses very low. So that's one of the reasons I didn't get All-American Dave stuff. But that was my personal taste and personal frugality. But I will say that his service was very well liked. He had a lot of big fans there, a lot of people that really counted it on him being there. There's a number of health-conscious poker players that did not like the offerings at the Rio, and rightfully so. And they wanted something healthy and something that was tasty for something that was healthy, which apparently it was. And they didn't mind that it was a little bit expensive. They were happy to pay some extra money so they could get the type of food they wanted. And it was even convenient that you'd have these girls bring it to you right at the table, if that's what you wanted. So he had a business model that was successful. He had a lot of fans, a lot of people that really enjoyed it, a lot of people that would have been very upset if he were not there. He served an important need for a lot of players of the World Series. He did a good job of it. He served the community well. And the World Series of Poker was better for All-American Dave being there. Not only that, but he was a nice guy. He was customer-friendly. If there were any issues, he took care of them. Brandon had an issue at one point some years ago, and he heard about it and very quickly took care of it and then even gave Brandon a free meal or two for his trouble without Brandon even asking. So as far as how All-American Dave served the poker community at the Rio, I have nothing but compliments for him. And I'm totally serious here, not being sarcastic. I'm not exaggerating. I thought very highly of his operation, even though it was one I didn't use myself. And I knew that when he dropped the news that the World Series was not going to have him back because of their change in venue, which we'll get to in a second, that there were going to be a lot of poker players upset about this, and indeed there were. And when he put this out there, while I kind of understood why this was happening, I felt bad for him, and I was very supportive of him. I gave it a write-up that was very positive in his direction. And I still stand by everything I said. On March 2nd, we were, we covered this at the time, but on March 2nd, he tweeted, need help, was just informed that we will not be at Bally's for the World Series of Poker, and we're not allowed to deliver from our off-site location. Over a decade building, and just like that, it's over? Hard to imagine the series without us. There's got to be a way, right? Say so he's trying to put out a plea to poker players everywhere to pressure the World Series to allow him to continue his operation at the new venue at Bally's in Paris, which is where the World Series is moving for 2022, which is starting in a month and a half, by the way. So he was told a little less than three months in advance of the World Series, because the World Series begins late May. He was told early March that it's not happening for you, Dave. You're not going to be here. So that was pretty short notice, not super short. Like, obviously, he hadn't bought the food yet. Obviously, he hadn't paid any rent yet. I mean, there were a lot of expenses. I'm sure he didn't hire anyone for this yet. See, there's a lot of expenses that he could have incurred if he was told like a week in advance, as opposed to three months. 
But still, it was fairly short notice. And because he had served the World Series of Poker community so well, because he filled a need for players that the Rio food outlets could not fill, that is, healthy food that people could get. And also, the Rio didn't have enough food outlets for all the players that were there, so there'd be tremendous lines during the dinner break, so he helped bring down some of those. So it was very useful having him in there for various reasons. Even for people who didn't order from him like me, uh, he helped bring down the lines at the places I did go. So I said, look, I understand they're moving to a new place. There's more food options at Bally's in Paris. They're right on the strip. And they probably feel they don't need him anymore. They have a lot more capacity there at their various restaurants than they had at the Rio. So they say, hey, we don't need this guy anymore. F him. And I thought that's just crappy. You know, they, they should make an exception for him. They should grandfather him in because he's been there for over a decade because everybody likes it and because people are counting on him being there. He's kind of part of the World Series now. So whatever objections they have, stop pinching every penny and just let him stay there. Even if it's not ideal for them, let him stay there. That was my opinion then. But when you think about what the full reason would have been for them not letting him continue, it gets a bit more complex, especially when you consider the union the culinary union. There's a very, very large and powerful union in Las Vegas called the culinary union, and it doesn't just involve food. It involves restaurants and hotels. Everything, all services there involving restaurants and hotels are part of this culinary union, and all the employees are members of it. So when they strike, it basically cripples Vegas, and that's why they get a lot of concessions out of these casinos and hotels and restaurants because uh, they're so huge and powerful, the whole city basically falls apart if they go on strike. It's a very, very, very large and powerful union there in Las Vegas. So people were wondering if this might be a union thing, that maybe union rules prevent this and maybe the union rules are for the Strip, which would prevent something like this that don't exist on the Rio, which which is not on the Strip. So maybe at the Rio he could do this, or maybe he'd been there so long at the Rio by the time that the union objected to him being there, they will they're able to say, look, he's been established here for a while, we can't kick him out now. Uh, who knows? But whatever it was, the union either didn't have rules against him being there at the Rio, or they tolerated it because they've found it too late. But now that they are moving the World Series to the Strip at Bally's in Paris, now they're saying, nope, this is starting over. He can't come there and putting their foot down. And maybe they have additional rules there on the Strip. I mean, there are culinary union employees, of course, at the Rio, but maybe the rules are different. Maybe they're enforced more on the Strip. Whatever it is on the Strip, maybe the union just said flat no, and there's nothing the World Series can do. Very possible. Very possible that that was at play. And people were discussing that that might be the issue back in early March. So even very influential players of the World Series, like maybe the most influential player, one Phil Helmuth, he was supportive of Dave. He said, I'm a massive All-American Dave fan. Their food keeps us healthy during the World Series. I order from them twice a day. Right now, it looks like All-American Dave won't be there. However, I'm hoping we can find a solution. So Phil Helmuth couldn't get it done you know that the World Series probably had their hands tied. So they really just may not have been able to do it because the union forbid it. And 
we got an update today that would seem to back that from All-American Dave, but then it got a lot more complicated from there, and not all of it looks good for Dave himself. So here's what Dave tweeted today. He tweeted it at 5.23 p.m., April 13th, Pacific Time. So we're just talking about hours ago now. Fighting back the tears as I write this, the All-American Dave food truck has permanently closed. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I mean, we saw that was kind of coming, but permanently closed. It's gone. It's done. Here's his full statement. It is with deep regret and a heavy heart that I announce All-American Dave's food truck has closed its doors permanently. The food truck born at the World Series was in the back loading dock of the Rio from 2013 to 2019. The back loading dock, by the way, is kind of the back area right behind the Amazon room where they had those portable bathrooms. So it was pretty easy to get to from the tournament area. It sounds like something way out of the way, the quote back loading dock, but it was was actually pretty easy and convenient for poker players. When the 2020 World Series of Poker was canceled, it took a massive toll on the company. We, along with so many, just tried to hold on as the storm passed, referring to COVID. Shortly before the 2021 World Series began, I was informed that due to COVID, I would no longer have access to the Rio kitchen or be allowed to have my food truck on Rio property. I thought very seriously about closing the business at that point as we were already enduring serious financial struggles and would have massive changes in operations. We operated anyway, but as significant loss, taking on sizable debts along the way. My family has invested all that we have into keeping the business alive, perhaps to a fault. The recent news that we're unable to operate at the World Series this year due to union restrictions has left us with no choice but to close our doors permanently. I feel regret that my company is unable to fulfill its obligations to the loyal customers who have supported us over the years. I don't know how to say sorry enough, but situations truly out of my control have dictated this decision. I have a heavy heart because it's been the ride of my life, but it's come time to close the doors. I will forever cherish the friendships established from operating the food truck and the incredible experience I've gained. I don't know exactly what lies ahead, but I know I'm better prepared for the next chapter in my life. With love and gratitude mixed with regret and sadness, All-American Dave, whose real name, by the way, is David Swanson. So, okay. Uh, All this makes sense, right? I believe him about the union thing. I believe that he's been trying real hard, maybe even with the help of people like Helmuth, to try to convince the World Series to change their minds, and the World Series probably been saying, look, Union is just saying no. Union is just saying we refuse to have Dave over here, and they're even refusing to allow Dave to bring the food there. So apparently in 2021, I guess I didn't even notice this, because I was only there for the main event. I guess in 2021, he couldn't park the truck there, and he had to deliver from off-site, which made it more expensive and made it less convenient and probably slowed everything down. And he claims that he lost money in 2021, but that he continued. And now he can't even do that. Now he can't have his truck on the property, nor can he even deliver there anymore, which they let him do in 2021. And he claims it's the union demanding this. Now, why might the union demand this, especially if he's not on site? Like, how come the union isn't stopping people from having food delivered from other places? You could order from uh, one of these food delivery apps like Grubhub or Postmates, 
and have them run food over to the World Series and the union wouldn't stop it. So how come All-American Dave is being singled out? Well, because he has a business model to deliver to the World Series, whereas if you order food from a local restaurant that just happens to deliver to the World Series, that's a big difference in the volume of food coming in. Now, again, you may ask, why would the union care? Because they're not the ones making money when food gets ordered from an outlet at uh, Bally's or Paris. That's something that goes to either the restaurant owner or Caesars or both. So why would the union care? Because they're only looking to represent employees. Well, the better these outlets do that are at the Rio, or not the Rio, at the, at, the uh, at Bally's or Paris, the more jobs there are and the better it is for employees. Basically, they don't, they don't want restaurants there closing down or failing to expand because All-American Dave is taking some of the business. Additionally, they don't want the precedent that people can get food from non-union employees. They don't want non-union culinary employees encroaching upon Caesar's properties. They think it sets a bad precedent. They want everything to be union there. And they don't like when there's anyone that's allowed to serve food to people at the World Series who isn't union. So since the employees of All-American Dave's operation are not union employees, they don't like that. So in general, in union shops, they don't want non-union employees having any kind of access. And they're very sensitive about that. They, they're very, very protective over their union jobs. There's an old story from the Rockford Files. I realize this is from the 70s, but it still would occur today that James Garner told. And, and th- by the way, James Garner was very pro-union, a very uh, left-wing guy. But he told this story, and even he was frustrated, that they were uh, going to film a scene that was on a dock, and they needed a crate that was going to be in the scene. So they get to the filming location, and they were very happy to see that they had crates already there that were discarded and that they could just use. So it's, oh, perfect. We need crates for the scene. Here's crates. And the union said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, you cannot use these crates because these crates were not made by union employees. And this is taking work away from those that make the props. So you can't use these crates. So what they actually had to do was have the identical crates made by someone in props and they pay them union wages and then they destroyed the original crates. (laughs) Is that absurd or what? That's when the union's controlling too much. If you have crates right there on the dock that happen to be there and you can't use them, you need a union employee to build the identical crate and destroy the original that shows the union is too powerful. But that, that is how these unions treat things. So it's the same thinking that keeps All-American Dave out of there. But that's the nature of the union there, and I'm not going to go into that whole discussion any further. But that's the way it went, and I believe the World Series hands were probably tied. They probably tried, union said no, and that's that. So that should be the end of the story, and I should be able to move on to the next topic. But, 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 something else came out here, which makes my sympathy for Dave much less than before. Now, I will stand by that he kind of got a raw deal here. 
I will stand by that he gave good service to World Series players. I will stand by that he ran his business well and ethically while he was at the World Series. I still stand by all those claims, and I still wish that he was able to continue his operation in some way there. And you may ask, well, what would stop him from just delivering anyway with no permission? Well, if he did that, they could just 86 him. They could just 86 him and sue him, maybe, for continuing to do this without uh, permission. So it's not going to happen. It's done. Even he says it's done. What has come out since that makes me critical of Dave and less sympathetic? Well, you could order meal plans with All-American Dave. And there were ways you could do it. You could order X number of meals, and this way you don't have to pay each time. They just take it off your balance. Or you could put money on deposit where they just subtract money. There's various ways to do it. I didn't look into exactly how to do it because I never did it myself. But the bottom line is that you could pay Dave in advance for meals and then redeem meals against that as the World Series goes through. Because remember, there's some people who play all seven weeks there and play every day and order two meals a day. So that really adds up. And these people don't feel like paying for it every time. They just want to give Dave a lump of money and uh, take it off that every time they order. And that's fine. That was good they had that system. Well, what about when the World Series is over? Well, you would think these people would get their money back if there's any left over. They'd say, okay, Dave, I gave you, say, $1,000. I've used uh, 750 so can you please cut me a check for $250 or give, give me the cash or whatever? And I guess you could do that. I don't know if that was an option, but I assume it, it probably was. But given that All-American Dave was well-trusted within the community, given that poker players are lazy, given that poker players know they're going to be back next year, and given that poker players say, hey, you know, wh- why should I bother to get the remainder out of my account and then just to redeposit next May? Because all that was going on, and maybe because the 2021 World Series and 2022 World Series were fairly close to one another since the 21 World Series was in the fall and the 22 World Series starts in late spring, so it's not the usual year in between, a number of people just decided not to take their leftover money and just leave it for 2022. Well, I'm sure you see where this is going. All-American Dave made one other announcement when people were asking a few questions. In regards to meal plan balances, especially significant ones, it's obviously something I feel terrible about, and I want to try to give back value. Uh Uh-oh. I'm developing a plan where I can share online training and methodology, but we are essentially bankrupt as a company and as a family. So basically, you're not getting your money back. Any money you had on deposit for 2022 that you carried over from 21 because you were nice enough not to come claiming your money when the 21 World Series was over, it's gone. Sorry, guys. Your money's been spent. Your money is no longer with us. But I'll give you some online training. Your money's not totally gone because uh, I'll share online training and methodology with you regarding how to run a business. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny from someone who apparently blew the money that was on deposit that wasn't supposed to be spent. 
Now, if this sounds like the full tilt poker situation to you from 11 years ago, you're right. In fact, it occurred the same month, the same time of month. Remember it happened on April 15th, 2011? Well, this happened on April 13th, 2022. Not as grand of a scale by any means, but here you have a third party holding money for you. And then you get the bad news that the money is actually not there. So basically, Dave is saying that he's broke, that the company is broke, and that if you had any balances with him, including, quote, a significant one, and we'll get to what he means by that in a second, you're not getting it back. Not that you're not getting it back now. You're not getting it back ever. It's just gone. You're not even getting a faint promise like, hey, if I ever get back on my feet, if I ever do real well again, I'll pay you all back. Nope, it's just done. It's just gone. Now, you may wonder, is that a scam? You may wonder, could he go to jail for this? Could you sue him for this? Well, it definitely isn't criminal. And even from a civil standpoint, while I'm not an expert on that, in my opinion, no. In my opinion, I don't believe you could win a lawsuit against him because this was not premeditated. It's not like he just took money from you yesterday and then says, oh, well, guess what? I'm closing down and you don't get your money. That would be a big problem. However, he took this money in 2021, believing he would be continuing his operation in 2022. And only in March of 2022, they dropped the news on him that they are not letting him continue to do business at the World Series of Poker. So this wasn't premeditated. This wasn't a scam. When he held the money over for people back in 2021, he wasn't saying, ha, 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 I'm going to keep their money and run off with it. Ha, 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 ha. No, he didn't do that. He fully believed at that point that he would be coming back in 2022 and that these people could use their balances for food just as they had the previous year. So I believe that part. And as is the case with any business where you have some kind of money they are holding for you for future goods or services, if they go under and can't pay you, then that's considered a liability and that's it. So from a legal standpoint, there's probably not much you could do, either civilly or criminally. And I don't believe this was a criminal action. I don't believe that he had any intention to rip anyone off. So that's the good part. The bad part is that, number one, this was never his money to use. People didn't think they were investing in the business. People didn't think that they were giving him operating capital for the future that that was at risk. They, They thought he's just holding it for them. And he didn't hold it for them. He apparently used this for his business when it was running into trouble. And now it's gone, he claims. So that's a problem. And number two, he is not even giving anyone the faintest of hope that they will ever get it. So no matter how he does going forward in his life, it's just a casualty of the business. Now, it is true. The business is not him. I mean, he's the owner of the business. It's a small business. He's, he's really the guy. This is not a large corporation, but it is a separate legal entity. So he can probably get away no matter how well he does, even if he makes $10 million next year in a different business or wins the lottery or whatever, you still probably couldn't collect from him because the business itself would be gone. And so when the business falls apart and has no more assets, or when the liabilities very, very greatly dwarf the assets, 
then it's done and all you have is a liability and you're probably never going to get your money. That's from a legal standpoint. But I don't want to discuss a legal standpoint. Let's discuss a moral standpoint. Now, why did people leave their money with Dave? They left their money with Dave because they liked him and they trusted him. All-American Dave wasn't just a cold, soulless, large corporation that set up shop at the back of the Rio to give people healthy food. This was a small business run by one guy who was likable and who the community got to trust. So when people left their balances with him, they said, you know what? I'm not going to worry about it because Dave's a good guy. We trust Dave. He's been good to the community. He's a friend of the community. I mean, yeah, he does business here. He makes a lot of money from the community every year, but he is someone that we have faith in. So we have no worry about our money. And in fact, if someone asked me last year, should you worry about your money? I would say, well, I would advise that you take it out anyway. You never know what's going to happen, especially in times of COVID. But I would not have said, oh, yeah, you know, this is going to happen. He's going to spend all your money and you'll never get it. Like I, I wouldn't have thought that was a major concern, though I would have still advised people to take it because you never know what's going to happen. But people trusted him. People left him with this money because he had the community's trust. And then today everybody finds out that the trust was misplaced because he spent their money. And you may say, well, their money was actually going towards future goods and services and the company then just ran out of money and went broke. So they that's a risk they get by pre-ordering something. And I say back, no, because this wasn't a pre-order. This was just him holding money for people to use in the future, for, just for convenience. And if this was a possibility to even happen, especially as he was struggling in 2021, which no one knew about, if he was losing money in 2021, he should have warned people before they left their balances with him, hey, I kind of struggled this year since I couldn't actually park at the Rio, so keep that in mind. Uh, maybe you want your money now. No, he didn't tell anyone that. So when you're holding people's money and then you spend their money when they didn't have any idea that you might spend their money, no one did. No one thought that he might spend their money. I'm not saying he spent their money frivolously or stole it. I'm just saying that he spent their money and this was not something anyone thought was possible. This is not what people thought could happen. This money should have been untouchable. And what should have happened is that the point when he no longer had any money to operate with, he should have said, I'm sorry, I'm broke, and the business is broke, so here's your money back, we're shutting down. You don't just take the money on deposit and go, well, this is technically money that's being spent for future meals, so it's technically money that the business has to use, so let's just use it and try to survive. That's what he did. Now, I don't think this was an evil plan, I think he justified it in his mind like, hey, I'm trying to keep an operation here and I will deliver meals to these people. And he probably would have if the World Series allowed him to continue to operate in 2022. I believe that. But you still can't just spend the player money that's on deposit. It's not yours to spend. Especially because, again, these weren't pre-orders. These are people who just left their money over because they trusted you people who just didn't want to go through the hassle of 
taking it out and redepositing it. I don't believe there was ever any term that Dave gave you that if you put a lot of money on deposit and didn't use it that you couldn't get the balance refunded. Now, there were probably plans like you buy such and such meals for this much money and there's this many meals left. But that doesn't look at what he's talking about here because he's actually talking about balances. And even if it was a situation where someone bought X number of meals and they only used uh, Y number of meals and there's a certain number left over, he could prorate it and give people the money back. Whatever it is, he was holding money for people for things they didn't receive yet. And they should get their money back because they liked him and they trusted him. That's the only reason they left it there. It's the only reason they put up that much money in advance. And if he really is as broke as he says he is, then all he has to say is, guys, I'm broke. I can't just pull money out of my ass where it doesn't exist, but I am going to try to work through this. I'm going to try other business ideas. I'm going to try to get back on my feet. And you have my word, if I ever do well again, or even semi-well, that I will start paying you guys back. I think even that would be enough for a lot of people at this point. But it looks like here, he just wants to wash his hands of it. He wants to say, look, this isn't my fault. The World Series cut me off. They hit me with it in March abruptly, and I had no idea this was coming, which I believe is all true. And the business was a casualty, and unfortunately, your balances are a casualty of this. And that's the way it goes. The business crashes, and I owe you nothing. I feel bad, but I owe you nothing. I don't think that's right. If you've established a personal relationship with the community, as you have, David, then you need to repay that trust that was given to you by repaying those that were affected by this, even sometime in the future. And I'm sure people will be very understanding because you have a lot of fans. You have a lot of people that loved your truck, loved the food you provided, loved what you did as far as making this available. And they would be very understanding that you can't give it to them now, but you're going to work to give it to them later. Now, what about the balances? How much are we talking about? Someone claimed that they had over $1,000. And Dave claimed that nobody had over $1,000. So I don't know who's correct, but all right. Let's talk about somebody who put uh, publicly how much they had in there. And someone who's pretty reliable. This is Matt Vaughn, who's a very, fairly well-known poker player, pro poker player. Matt Vaughn, who's a M-E-V poker, you know, like Matt M, M-E-V poker on Twitter. This is what he wrote. Frustrated and sorry to hear this. I hate to ask this at such a tough time, but I do wonder what will happen to those of us that had carryover funds for 2021 World Series. This is before Dave gave clarity on that. And then... Uh, when this all broke out and people were making fun of those who had a lot of extra money left over, calling them stupid, calling them naive, blah, blah, blah. Uh, then Matt posted the following. Fascinated by the amount of hate. So how much extra I had left over isn't your business, but it was around $500 or half my original plan cost. There will be dozens, if not more people in my shoes and everyone in my position has this question. 
I feel for All-American Dave, but there was good faith assumption that the money was still going towards future service. If you feel this is an inappropriate time to ask this, when is the appropriate time? And for those assuming I have something like $50 left, why does the number matter? Did anyone get pissed off at me for an etiquette violation, not think about this if it happened to them, that they might have some curiosity whether their money disappeared? All the replies seem to assume I'm the scum of the earth and I would do anything for $50. So Matt was annoyed that people were getting on him for asking this question to Dave when they thought maybe he had like 50 bucks left. And he's saying, no, I have like 500, but no matter how much it is, people have a right to know where their money is, which is true. So I totally agree with everything he wrote there. After that, some people started to point out some things. For example, All-American Dave had posted on his Instagram just two days ago a picture of the sunset in Fiji that he wanted everyone to see was so beautiful. He also had posted various uh, social media pictures over the years, including somewhat recently, of expensive items he had bought, expensive-looking vacations he had taken. So he seemed to be doing quite well, and as of uh, two days ago, was looking at the sunset in Fiji. And I mean Fiji, not Phoenix. I'm running late. I had to call Phoenix, so I'm using this other long-distance company. I dial the wrong number. I got this guy in Fiji. What? Is this Phoenix? No, you reached Fiji. I dial again. Fiji again. What are you so kidding? I called the operator for credit. She said I'd have to talk to customer billing. I said, AT&T operators gave me instant credit. She said, you are not dealing with AT&T. Well, I am now. People who thought they could do better than AT&T are coming back for the real value. Aren't you glad you never left? <laughs> that was from the early 90s. Some of you may remember that commercial. You're not dealing with AT&T. Well, I am now. What I didn't like about that commercial was just because Fiji and Phoenix kind of sound similar, that wouldn't make you reach Fiji when you're trying to dial Phoenix. They're completely different area codes. That was kind of something that didn't make a lot of sense. But all right, we'll put that aside. So Dave's in Fiji. What's going on here? How's he taking expensive vacations in Fiji and not able to pay people back? So people brought that up. He did give a response. He said... We had a rental in Fiji that's $500 a month for the last four years. I think I want that rental. I'm going to get a rental at Fiji for $500 a month. We had a flight credit for 2019 when the pandemic closed the borders. We had to go there to take care of our affairs. It's far cheaper to live in Fiji compared to the U.S. Well, uh, I mean, maybe. What I found in places like Fiji... And I'm not an expert on this because I don't have a a place in Fiji or any island. But what I've found is that if you're poor and you want to live in the poor neighborhoods, yes, it's much cheaper. But if you want to live anywhere nice and eat anywhere nice and do anything nice, it's actually quite expensive. So there's a huge gap in value between the poor areas and the non-poor areas. And then some things are always expensive, like groceries, because they're hard to get over there. So if you go to a grocery store in Fiji, even where the locals go, you're not going to find bargains. It's going to be more expensive than in the U.S. And I don't know about a rental. I don't think he's living in an area of Fiji where the poor locals live. I think he's probably going to rent something there that's nice. So I don't know about it being $500 a month, but 
Look, who knows what the story is with that. But again, I'm not saying he needs to pay everybody today if he doesn't have the money. If he does have the money, he should. But why can't he commit that we're going to pay you in the future if I do okay? And I, unfortunately, I think the reason might be that he got devastated by this. There's no question. So the reason might be that he doesn't want this monkey on his back as he tries to get his life back in order. He, do, he doesn't want to try to start a new business and get it going and know that as soon as he makes money, poker players are going to show up with their hands out going, hey, wait a minute, you still owe us from your last business, so pay us this now. He wants a complete fresh start, and he doesn't want financial obligations from the previous business dragging him down. But my answer to that is too bad. When your success, and he had a lot of success, he made a lot of money from 2013 to 2019. And by the way, he could have applied for, and maybe did, the PPP loan. I don't know if he got one or not, but they were handing that out like candy to small businesses that were struggling. And these were forgivable loans. So I don't know why he didn't get one of those, or if he did, where that money went. That's kind of left out of the story. But look, even if all the money's gone, which may be possible, he really might be broke or close to it. Maybe the Fiji story is true. Maybe he had a rental there that was fairly cheap, and he just went back there to shut everything down, get all their stuff out of there, and that they're having a major degradation in lifestyle, and that their last hurrah was an attempt to continue operating off-site at the 2022 World Series, and they can't, so now they have no income, and, and they're screwed. Okay, like I can understand that. And I can understand why you can't just invent money that you don't have. But at least say, one day if I have it, you guys will get it. But he wants to just walk away. And that's just not a good thing to do from a community where you established a level of trust. And that's what that Matt Vaughn was saying. That there was a good faith assumption that his money was still going to go towards future service. Totally true. A good faith assumption that the money you're leaving over, that it's not going to just disappear if the business struggles. That this is money being held for you. And again, I don't know if this is just money sitting on deposit or meal plans or whatever. I don't know exactly how they deduct from it. But whatever it is, there's some value here. It's just not nice to tell everyone, tough luck, no matter how well I do in the future, you're getting none. At the very minimum, he needs to put out some sort of promise that If he can make good on it in the future, he will. And when I say needs, I mean morally needs. I can't force him to. Nobody can. And probably a lawsuit here would not be successful. So I'm not even suggesting anyone sues him. I'm just saying that the poker community made him a lot of money from 2013 to 2019. So it's time to show some appreciation to the best customers who trusted you so much that they were willing to leave over money for the next year, knowing that you will handle it properly. So pay these people back when you can. Reaction on Twitter is mixed to this. There are some people who are on Dave's side in this matter, stating that he had no idea this was coming. This is beyond his control. He wanted to continue operating. And that... He was blindsided and that people who were affected by this and had their balances with him, that 
that's an unfortunate casualty, and that's the way it goes. That's the way businesses work. But I don't agree, and many others don't agree. The people who were patronizing Dave over the years did so in part due to a strong personal connection to him and his brand's strong character and ethics. This wasn't just a situation of a large business going under. This was a situation where Dave was the business and players trusted him. Nobody had any clue that the money that they were leaving over from 2021 was at risk. I'll give you any updates on this if they come. This is a very, very recent update to the whole story because it just happened tonight. I guess it's the one good thing about me taking an extra day. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. From the 916, Druff, Desert Runner was in Vegas last week. We could have met up. We could have gotten tomatoes on the side. Druff doesn't love Desert Runner anymore. No, 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 no. How quickly you forget. Desert Runner, you texted me, and you told me you were on the way to Vegas. And I said I was on the way back just before that. So I was already back from Vegas when you were on your way there. I've taken a look at Twitter, and it looks like Matt Vaughn has been pressured into not pressing this matter any further. He's been guilted that he has been insensitive about asking about his money at a time when All-American Dave is pouring out his heart to the community. And how dare he ask about his $500? Big no-no. You can't ask about that when a man is telling you about how devastated he is about his business going under. You do not dare ask about that money that is being held. That is a no-no. Even if it's 500 bucks, do not ever do that. How dare you, Matt Vaughn? How dare you? How dare you? So he said that he has no problem with All-American Dave, that all he wanted was an answer about the money. And now that he's gotten an answer, he's fine. He's going to move on. I will say the poker community is pretty gullible. And I don't think All-American Dave like tried to be shady here. I don't think he tried to defraud anybody. It's not like that. I really believe that he wanted to keep operating and the World Series shut him down. I'm just saying that he just needs to pledge he's going to pay the money back. And it is not unreasonable for those who are not getting their money back to ask, hey, what's the deal? Especially before Dave even says so. But even once Dave says so, then you ask, okay, well, are we ever going to get it at any point? That's a totally reasonable question. So people shouldn't be shaming Matt Vaughn for asking about this, but Matt Vaughn has backed down. Oh, well. (laughs) I guess All-American Dave will walk away with his reputation mostly intact, despite this not very nice ending. But I hope he does decide, and I'm going to tell Dave this myself, I hope he decides to at least pledge to do what he can to repay these people at some point. That's all I'd like to see. Everything else I understand. Someone else asked, they don't quite get what all his expenses were, which I've kind of wondered too, because he's not paying rent on anything, and he's not buying food until he needs it. Definitely isn't buying the food three months in advance, I would assume. 
And I can't imagine that he's paying people to work for him months in advance. So I'm trying to understand where all the money went anyway. I understand there was an income rolling in in 2020, and I understand that maybe they operated at a loss in 2021. What I'm not understanding is where they're losing money because this info was dropped on them. They weren't able to make money when this info was dropped on them. But I'm not understanding what caused the money to evaporate. Like, if they were allowed to operate, how were they going to do so if all the money's gone? That's a little confusing to me as well. Anyway, moving on to something much more sinister. I don't, believe, I don't think this is really sinister. It's just not being handled right. But moving on to something that actually is sinister. A scammer who has victimized other poker players before but got very little... Uh, there was very little call-out about this. And one of the few places that was raising issue about this in the first place a while back was Poker Fraud Alert. Again, this is something that we're covering that others were not. Now other outlets are covering it because uh, the guy actually got arrested. But there's a young poker pro named Filipos Liaknakos, 23 years old, known to some in the high-stakes poker community as the Little Greek Freak, which is named after Giannis Antetokounmpo, who plays for the Milwaukee Bucks and known as the Greek Freak. So Philippos is called the Little Greek Freak by some. He wasn't all that well-known in poker, but he does play high-stakes PLO. He did befriend a number of high-stakes Vegas-area pros. In May of 2020, there were some allegations against Philippos that were covered on Poker Fraud Alert. Dan Fleischman tweeted, and I can't read the tweet to you because it's gone, but Dan Fleischman tweeted that Philippos scammed Colossus winner Cord Garcia. He won the Colossus event in 2015 for 638000 so in 2020, Dan Fleischman claimed that Philippos scammed Cord Garcia out of $600,000 and was not paying him back. That tweet was removed because supposedly Philippos agreed to pay back and did. That was the story at the time. I'm forgetting if we even covered it on the show, but we definitely covered it on the forum in May of 2020. Anyway, there's some more information about Philippos, and it's not good. And upon a bigger dig into this, I found that there's a complex scandal involving Philippos ripping off a number of people, none of whom have a pristine rep in poker. That's what's funny is all the victims here have their own drama with allegations of wrongdoing over the years. There's not a single person in this story who is known to be completely innocent in poker. So it's interesting who was victimized here. But anyway, let's go back to the Garcia thing that happened in May 2020. Remember, Dan Fleischman, the former CEO of Victory Poker, which no longer exists, that was an online poker site that was a skin on the Cake Network, which was hilarious that Fleischman thought that was a viable business model. He thought that was going to be like a huge site, a skin on a small network, but 
That was his idea, and it failed. But Fleischman, two years ago, called out Philippos for ripping off Court Garcia. So Fleischman knew about it. He was getting frustrated that Court Garcia was not getting his money back. He decided to make this public. And then Philippos supposedly made this right and then said to Fleischman, okay, if I make this right, will you delete your tweet? Fleischman said yes, and that was that. I met Court Garcia in 2018. He ended up next to me at a $1,500 No Limit Hold'em World Series of Poker event. He seemed like a nice kid. His play style was what you'd expect of an aggressive young poker pro. And in fact, he even sent me a nice little PM after we played together. This is the first time we ever met and never had communicated before. But he sent me a nice little PM that it was nice playing with me. He hopes to see me again soon. And that's the first time anyone ever like did that. Just like some guy I played with actually sent me a message afterwards saying, yeah, it was nice meeting you. I thought that was nice. So that was Cord Garcia in 2018. He did seem like someone who may not have the best bankroll management skills. There was a guy at the table, a very old guy who was very rich, that knew Garcia from high stakes games they had played. So that's never a good sign that a guy who came into money a few years ago from winning a big tournament is playing in these very high stakes games with super old rich guys. So it wasn't a shock that Garcia may have uh, run into his own money problems due to poor bankroll management. And indeed, he ran into his own controversy only a few months after Dan Fleischman said that he was a victim of this Filippos guy for 600K, which is a pretty big scam, 600K, right? So supposedly Filippos paid him back. But then in September of 2020, Sorrel Mizzi, who of course has his own problematic past for multi-accounting and taking over accounts during tournaments of, of worse players that he would uh, suddenly take over their accounts and a lot of other allegations against him over the years. Sorrel Mizzi called out Cord Garcia for ripping him off for 27K. This is in the same year in September. So I thought, wow, what happened to the 600K that Cord Garcia got paid back from what Filippo scammed of him? Because just from what we could tell, in May of 2020, Fleischman called it out, and then Filippo somehow came up with the money to pay back to Cord. So Cord had his 600K back that he didn't think he'd be getting back. And then somehow in September, he's supposedly ripping off Sorrel Mizzi for just 27K. Now, you may say, well, Sorrel Mizzi isn't exactly a reliable source, and I would agree with you, but he posted a mountain of text messages which seemed to, to, seemed to implicate Cord Garcia in the situation. Also, Cord Garcia did not come forward and dispute that these text messages were real or dispute that he had ripped off Sorrel Mizzi, which you think he would if Sorrel was just making this up or if he wasn't really telling the whole story. So... I thought, wow, that must be really horrible bankroll management to get back 600K you thought you'd never see again from a scam and then to chunk it all off within months and then rip someone else off for 27K. Wow, that's pretty bad. So <laughs> this is already getting pretty complicated, right? Now, if you look for any information about the Sorrel Mizzi and Cord Garcia thing, you're going to find it in one place, and that'll be Poker Fraud Alert. That's because it was never called out on Twitter. It was never called out on any forums. It was called out on Facebook in a private group, and A. Hoosier A., who is a poster on Poker Fraud Alert, and I've become friendly with him as well, very nice guy, but uh, 
he happened to be a member of the group where this was posted, and so he shared it with Poker Fraud Alert. So that was in September, and this never got picked up anywhere else, so that story never really got out to the general public other than those following this site. So if you think that's getting complicated, it's, it's going to get even more, but I'll, I'll try to keep it in a manner you can understand, because this is a very weird story. But let's get back to Philippus. How did he get that 600k to pay back Cord Garcia? Now, before I answer that one, I will say that somebody emailed me in 2020 claiming to be Philippos and asking me to take the thread down, saying, hey, I made it right with Cord Garcia, and Fleischman will even verify that. You'll see he took his tweet down, and everything's been taken down about this except your site. Can you please remove that thread? And I said to this person, who I never verified if it's Philippos, but I'm guessing it probably was, but who I said to the person identifying themselves as Philippos, I said, have Cord contact me and verify that he has received all 600k back. Once he does that, I will remove it. And I never heard back, so I assumed that maybe he didn't. <laughs> so the threat stayed up. I would have kept my word if Cord contacted me and said, hey, I got back all 600k, I would have removed it and kept my word there, but I didn't get such contact, and that was that, and I didn't hear from Philippos, or at least the person claiming to be Philippos again. But I did wonder, number one, did Cord really get all his money, or was there just an agreement to do so? And number two, how did Philippos come up with that money? If he needed to scam 600K, how does he just come up with 600K so fast to give the guy back? Well, I thought maybe if he really did give the 600K back to Cord, maybe he scammed somebody else. Well, it looks like that is a pretty good guess. And that's the reason we're doing this story now. Because remember, I'm talking about all this bunch of stuff we knew back in 2020, but there are some new things that have happened since then that are pretty significant. Filippos Liakonakos has been arrested for a $500,000 Bitcoin scam. And it took place sometime in 2020. Hmm. It was reported in the Las Vegas Review Journal. There's a picture of Filippos' mugshot and everything. I'd never seen a picture of him before, but now I know what he looks like because I can see. I can see Filippos now. In fact, he is quite young. He's got kind of like a porn stash, like a mustache he can't quite grow in. And he has acne. He has all the hallmarks of someone who's very young. This scam had nothing to do with Cord Garcia or anybody else I've talked about, but this may have been what allowed him to pay back some to court. And by the way, I'll skip ahead a bit and tell you that I have received information that he never did pay back anywhere near 600000 to court. He paid back a little bit and then ghosted him. Why court didn't continue calling that out, I don't know, but uh, that's the information I've received. Anyway, I just got that information pretty recently. But what is for sure is that Philippos has been arrested for a 500k Bitcoin scam. And this is what happened, according to the article. Filippos allegedly impersonated someone else on the messaging app Telegram. There's a messaging app called Telegram, and he pretended to be someone else and tricked someone into selling him 500000 in Bitcoin for 10% markup. So basically, he contacted some guy who had 500 k in Bitcoin and pretended to be someone that guy trusted, a business partner of that guy's. 
and said, hey, I really need 500K in Bitcoin now. So can you ship me 500K in Bitcoin? And for your trouble, I'll pay you 550,000. So that's a pretty good deal, right? Selling 500K in Bitcoin for 550,000. And the victim fell for it because he didn't bother to verify that he was really talking to who he thought it was. So the person who made this offer to him, the person's name was familiar to him. It was a business partner of his that he knew well, that he knew he could trust. Unfortunately, it was not actually that partner who wanted that Bitcoin. It was Filippos pretending, allegedly, to be that person's business partner. So this guy stupidly sent the 500K in Bitcoin, and of course, he never got his money. So he was just out 500K worth of Bitcoin, which is pretty brutal. So, of course, he went to go... Uh, figure out what happened. Well, according to the Las Vegas Review Journal, it is believed by federal authorities that the person who was on that account on Telegram was Philippos, and I'll tell you how that was found. So whoever took the money engaged in some complex transactions to transfer it around the blockchain in order to hide where it was ultimately landing. Because if the thief just were to send it to his Coinbase account and cash it out, then that's pretty easy to find for anyone looking at the chain of where the Bitcoin went. And then it wouldn't be hard for the police to get that information of who ultimately cashed it out and arrest them. So whoever did this tried to really move it around the blockchain a lot. So it's going to be difficult to see where it ultimately ended up. Now, it's not clear exactly when in 2020 all of this happened, but in November of 2020, the victim finally reported it to the crime reporting site run by the FBI called IC3, IC3.org. That's IC3.org. And an investigation was actually started. Now, most things reported on IC3.org get ignored. IC3.org actually mainly exists as a catch-all place to report internet crime so federal agents aren't taking calls all day and all night and aren't getting harassed by people who got scammed by Nigerians. Hey, where's my money? What are you doing about it? So this way it gives people a feeling like they're reporting something, like they're actually doing something and, and bringing something to law enforcement's attention without really wasting much of law enforcement's time. So there's people who work for the FBI who go through all the IC3 reports and decide which ones to take action on. So anything involving... Scams that seem to be from foreign sources, they pretty much ignore. And anything that's small time, they tend to ignore. But they took interest in this one because it was $500,000 worth of Bitcoin, and it could have been domestic, which apparently it was. So they started an investigation. Now, the washing of the Bitcoin was actually done pretty well to where they were not really able to figure out who did it. However, what wasn't done very well was the suppression of greed. So the perpetrator of this decided that maybe he could get some more. So believe it or not, despite getting 500,000 in Bitcoin out of the same out of this victim, this person then contacted the victim again and used another fake identity and tried to get that same sucker to send him even more Bitcoin in a similar type of transaction. This time he was asking for one million dollars. Can you imagine how dumb to try to contact the same victim to fall for it again? Like, wouldn't you think anyone, even a gullible person who fell for this the first time, is never going to be dumb enough to send a million bucks in Bitcoin to someone he's not sure is who they claim to be? 
I mean, obviously, he talked to the guy that was supposedly asking for it, and that person's like, what? I never asked for that, and then they realized he was impersonated. So how could this person ever fall for the same scam twice? But that's what happened, that the perpetrator contacted the victim again under a different fake identity in a very similar fashion and said, hey, how do you like to do a deal for a million dollars in Bitcoin? So, of course, this person went to the FBI, who was already dealing with them, and said, okay, I got contact from this person again. What do we do? So the FBI advised him to trick the perpetrator in provi- into providing an email address and just pretend you're not suspicious, pretend you're going to fall for it and get the person to give you an email and then we'll take it from there. We'll be able to demand records from these email providers to give up IP information and provided the person didn't do a good job covering their tracks that way, we'll be able to identify it. So according to federal authorities... They did get the email address of the person who was asking for this million-dollar transaction that was traced back to Philippos, and here we are. So he was arrested. And as I said, this was reported in the Las Vegas Review Journal. So this is not just rumor. He definitely was arrested, and he was booked at the Clark County Detention Center on charges of theft of more than $100,000 using another person's identity. And I have to imagine that he's not going to get out of this one. I have to imagine that they have him. And they issued a search warrant, and I I think they got the goods on the guy. So I don't think we're going to see Philippos Leoconakis in poker anytime soon. Looks like one of these young degenerates that were scamming to keep in action, probably playing way over his bankroll and just kept scamming people so he could stay in these nosebleed games and got away with it the first time, but then tried for another million bucks, and that was that. I don't know if any of this Bitcoin was recoverable. I'm guessing not. That's probably why he was trying to get another million. He probably chunked off that 500K that he got. So I don't believe they'll be able to get any money back. But I'm guessing, given the amounts involved, Filippos will probably spend a good time in prison. Now, he's probably going to claim this was just a gambling addiction and that he lost control of himself and that he's young and stupid and please give him another chance at life. And that may actually work somewhat. That's not going to get him off. I'm sure he'll spend time in prison for this, but this may get him a lesser sentence because he's not a hardened criminal. And I'm guessing that whatever he did to Cord Garcia is probably not going to play into this. That was never investigated or there's never any kind of charges or arrests involving that. This is something that's really only been discussed on Poker Fraud Alert. It's actually unusual that someone will get arrested for uh, this type of scam. Usually these uh, scams by poker players, they, they get away with it. The community calls them out, but they get away with it. And here's a real arrest because it was uh, dumb enough to double dip. There was also another allegation against Philippos in 2019. And again, I doubt this will figure into whatever criminal charges he ends up facing. But he was accused on 2 plus 2 of stealing... through a private poker site. And it's not worth discussing the whole thing. It's a three-year-old story, and the amount of money is much less than all of this here. 
But that's how far it goes back, the allegations of scamming. It wasn't even just 2020, it's also 2019 that apparently Philippos got a $12,500 credit on one of these private poker sites, which are illegal, of course. So this wasn't really enforceable, but that he was extended 12500 credit, lost it, and then just ghosted the guy who extended the credit to him. And then apparently tried to set up an account again, pretending to be somebody else, and wanted uh, credit again. So that's why this was called out in June of 2019. So this really just looks like a young degenerate who just had no qualms about scamming whoever he had to in order to stay in action. And finally, he bit off more than he could chew, and now it looks like he'll spend time in prison. What a weird story with all the different people connected here. So starting May of 2020, scams Cord Garcia at a 600K. September 2020, Cord Garcia allegedly scammed 27,000 out of Sorrel Mizzy. And then this was called out by Dan Fleischman, who has his own questionable history back in May of 2020. And then Filippos scams some other person in later 2020, maybe to start paying back court or maybe to just stay in action in general by pretending to be somebody else that the guy knew at a Bitcoin. Pretty busy young man, but it did not end well. I do have to give you guys a little bit of advice regarding people contacting you online. And I've said this before, but it bears worth repeating. Just because somebody messaging you online is someone you are familiar with doesn't mean it's them. So even if you like the person, even if you trust the person, even if it's your own mother, if they're asking for anything, anything you wouldn't want to give to a stranger, meaning any information, any passwords, any money, Anything this person's asking for, even if you trust them with your life, make sure it's really them because someone could be impersonating them. They could be making fake accounts to impersonate them. They could have hacked their account or fished their account in some way. And I have had messages from people on Facebook, for example, who believe I will trust them because these are people I know and they are giving me the stories of why they need money or why I should sign up for such and such to get such and such a grant. And of course, I know it's a scam, but I can see how other people fall for it. So be very careful. Also, don't ever open an email attachment that you're not expecting from someone you don't trust. Even if it's, again, your mom or dad. If you did not expect that attachment, do not click on it because it may not really be your mom or dad. Always verify, and it's very easy to verify. Ask the person something that you've never talked about online before, never emailed about before, and ask them the question. And if they get insulted, then say, look, there's a lot of scams online. Please tell me this. Or even better, have them call you briefly and say it's them. I actually had a pretty clever scammer contacting me on Facebook. And this is not someone aiming it at me. They were just aiming it at anybody who would talk to them. But they hacked this woman's account who had sent me a friend request, but I didn't accept. It was someone I thought I might have known, but I wasn't sure. So I didn't accept it. But then they sent me a message. I had like two mutual friends with them. So I talked to them, but it was someone I didn't know. And of course, I was very wary. But even if I knew the person, I would have been wary. But 
they tried the whole BS about how I can qualify for a grant and I just have to send the money on Cash App first and then I'll get $12,000. Of course, I was never even 1% thinking of falling for it, but I just let it play out to see where they were going with it. And so after some time passed, I asked them the question which I was sure was going to get me blocked. And I said, okay, well, I just want to make sure it's really you. I trust you, but I want to make sure it's really you. Now, I didn't really know or trust this person, but I just wanted to say that to see what they do. And I said, can you send me either a picture of yourself making such and such motion? I forgot, you know, told their finger to point to someplace on their face or whatever. Uh, and then... I'll trust you at that point that it's really you. Or can you just call me? And they said, well, my phone is broken, so the audio doesn't work on my phone, so I can't call you. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's what I expected. But then they said, but I can make a video call to you with no sound. And I said, really? They said, yes. I, I thought to myself, hmm, what am I going to get here? <laughs> They're going to supposedly video call me, this person, who account... I'm sure was hacked by a Nigerian. How are they going to make a video call to me? But okay. I said, all right, call me. So they called me with a Facebook video call and I answered and it was that woman. But she had on like earbuds that can also work as a microphone and she was talking, but I couldn't hear anything. And that went on for about 10 seconds and then it hung up. And I go, oh, wow. I know what they did. They previously tricked this woman into receiving a video call from them and they recorded her talking to them and then muted the sound because if they played the sound, it wouldn't have made any sense because it would have been her talking to this other person. But if the sound quote doesn't work, then I just get a call from this woman, see her and see that she's talking and talking into this little headset. So, hey, it looks like she called me, right? I thought, wow, that's pretty sophisticated. So then I said, okay, you know, I'm almost convinced, but can you call me back and, and put your hand in such and such position? <laughs> Which, of course, they couldn't do because they'd already taken over her account and couldn't get any further video of her. So they made all these excuses why they couldn't and look why I already proved myself. Why do I have to do it again? Is wasting my time. I go, no, no, it'll take 10 seconds to do it. And... They didn't block me, but they, they kept trying to convince me why I should trust them. And I just, of course, wasn't buying it and pretended to, like, be really, really close to sending them the money. I'm like, look, I'm about to send you the $1,000 if you just could make this one call. So, of course, they couldn't. But that's an example. I mean, a lot of people would have fallen for this, where the person who they know they're talking to calls up and you see them on video talking. You just don't hear them. So make sure you actually hear the person's voice, communicate with them, and have them say, yes, this is really me, and yes, I'm really making this offer to you, or yes, I really sent this attachment, or yes, I really want to make this Bitcoin deal with you. I mean, I used to do this in the 2000s. I'd get people on AIM messaging me saying, hey, can you trade some money on PokerStars for party or whatever? And I'd say, yeah, sure, but I want to make sure it's you. So I'd either ask them a question or I'd have them call me or whatever. Because there were plenty of those scams back then, too, where people would impersonate each other. So always watch out. Whoever this person was got stiffed out of 500K, they're never to get back. And I'm sure he'll be required to pay this in restitution, but good luck ever getting that out of him. I doubt this degenerate will ever get any kind of money ever again, unless he scams it again. 
775 fraud 55 775-372-8355 is the number. Someone from the 505 texted me. I can't take the buffering. I had to switch the call, call to listen line. Yeah, that's a good idea. Call to listen line never buffers and never freezes. So if you're getting a buffering issue because your connection is not good enough on your cell phone, use the call to listen line to listen to the show. Okay, so now we're going to talk about something in Las Vegas. A situation that I've seen before, but I didn't really think about until this past week. And that is the situation with the street performers at the Fremont Street Experience, which I'm sure you have seen before if you have been to the Fremont Street Experience downtown. And in fact, if you've been to downtown in the last 25 years, you have definitely been to the Fremont Street Experience and probably seen these street performers. The Fremont Street Experience was created in the mid-90s as a joint venture between the city of Las Vegas and a private company called Fremont Street Experience. Prior to that, Fremont Street was an iconic street in downtown Las Vegas that pretty much ran by the major casinos downtown. It was also very, very lit up. It had a lot of iconic signs, some of which are gone now, but you can see at the Las Vegas Neon Museum. This was a big tourist attraction to drive down Fremont Street. It also was considered kind of old Las Vegas, but it was still the main portion of Las Vegas that people would visit. Downtown was the main place to go, as strange as that is now to think about. However, in 1989, a gentleman known as Steve Wynn built a hotel known as the Mirage. And the Mirage was the first mega resort on the Las Vegas Strip. And it was the first resort that had an attraction outside that people would come to see and could see for free. That was the volcano. And the Mirage really started a revolution on the Strip where many more mega resorts followed in the coming years. And by the mid-1990s, there were a lot of mega resorts on the Strip, and downtown had become a has-been. Not only that, but downtown was experiencing more and more crime over the years, and people were feeling uncomfortable going there. Remember, crime in the U.S. was pretty bad in the 80s and 90s, Crime hit its peak in the U.S., pretty much in all cities, in 1990 and 1991. That's when crime was the worst in modern history. Even though we have had a, an uptick in violent crime over the past seven, eight years in this country, it is still nowhere near as bad as it was in the early 90s. And then it started to improve from a series of reforms involving crime and punishment that we won't get into, but still... In the mid-90s, it was still pretty bad. In fact, in the 1994 midterm elections, where the Republicans had resounding victories that were surprising to a lot of people, a lot of this was based upon the perception that the Democrats were not handling the violent crime problem and people in the U.S. were getting sick of it. 
So a 94 crime was still a very big issue. It had declined a little bit since the peak in 91, but it still was very, very bad and near the peak. So the Fremont Street area was suffering from that, as was the rest of the country in any major or semi-major city. And people just didn't want to go there. So you have these nice new resorts on the Strip, many of which are still standing today, most of which are still standing today. And then you had downtown, which is old and run down and full of crime. So where are you going to go? Of course, you're going to go to the Strip. So downtown had to do something. Now, also keep in mind that the Vegas Strip is not in the city of Las Vegas. It's considered the Las Vegas area. It's kind of called Las Vegas by most people, but it's actually unincorporated land. It's considered the town of paradise. City laws of Las Vegas do not apply to the Las Vegas Strip. But downtown Las Vegas is city of Las Vegas. So the city of Las Vegas had an incentive to get people back downtown as opposed to the Strip. So what to do? What can they do about this? That Fremont Street had become a crime-ridden shithole and the hotels were old and nobody wanted to go there anymore. What could they do? Well, an idea was hatched. I'm not sure who came up with it, but an idea was hatched to close Fremont Street permanently to vehicular traffic and to make the main drag of hotels into a giant pedestrian mall. So instead of driving on Fremont Street, now you would walk on Fremont Street and not have to worry about anyone hitting you because cars can't drive there anymore. And it would be under a gigantic canopy of lights that could actually serve as a cool light show, a cool and state-of-the-art light show that you'd look up and watch every so often that would appear on the canopy. It was very innovative. It was interesting, something unique that hadn't been seen before. And it was expensive. So this opened in 1995. The most expensive portion of the conversion was this light show canopy that was put over the entire new pedestrian area of Fremont Street that cost $64 million in 1994 and 1995 to build. The Fremont Street Experience Company did not have that type of money to put up for it. But the city of Las Vegas agreed to put up two-thirds of the money for this expensive conversion, not just the, for the canopy, but for the entire project, also to convert Fremont Street into a pedestrian area. So basically the entire Fremont Street experience that was being created, one-third of the money was going to be put up by the Fremont Street Experience Company, two-thirds from the city. Now, why would the city do this? Well, I already told you one reason, because they wanted to see that area revitalized and it would get uh, more tax revenue for the city of Las Vegas going forward. But second, Fremont Street experienced the company had an agreement with the city that after this lump sum was put up, this two-thirds of the cost to convert it, that Fremont Street experience would take over 100% of the payments to keep up the area and that the city would no longer be financially responsible for maintaining that new pedestrian mall. That entire area of Fremont Street would now be paid for by a private company. So the city said, great. 
we put up a one-time investment, and we're going to make it back in several ways. Increase tax revenue, because downtown will be revitalized, and we're going to save money on having to maintain this year after year after year for the rest of time, as long as this Fremont Street company continues to exist, they will be maintaining the entire thing at their own expense. Great, said the city. And the deal was struck. It was done. And in 1995, the Fremont Street experience opened. So it has been around for a little less than 27 years at this point. That's why most of you have probably been there at some point, because we're looking at close to three decades that this thing has been around. I have been to both. I first went to Vegas in the 1970s. I was obviously a kid then, but my parents went there and they did drive down Fremont Street and explain to me at the time the significance of Fremont Street. And to me, it was like, oh, look at the lights. Oh, look at this cowboy. Look at this cowgirl. You know, like I, that was what was interesting to me. But I saw that in the 70s. We didn't get, around, get out and walk around, but we drove it a few times over the years. And I even uh, went down there myself at one point before it was converted, when I was old enough to drive myself. And then I've been there a number of times, of course, since 95, when it became the Fremont Street experience. However, given this story I just told you, I have a question for you. I want you to think about this. Would you say that the current Fremont Street experience, as it stands today, is a private area or a public area? What's the answer to that one? Let me tell you a few things that might change your mind, whatever you're thinking. They do things like they charge admission to the area for certain special events. For example, on New Year's Eve, you are not allowed to go into the Fremont Street experience unless you pay $20 or unless you got a wristband from a hotel you're staying at there. So as just a person who wants to go walk into the Fremont experience for New Year's Eve after like six o'clock, you are not allowed in there without a ticket. Do you know of any kind of public streets that are like that, where you have to present a ticket to walk in there? That doesn't seem like a public street, does it? But might it be public space, like any street or sidewalk? Because was the land actually transferred over to the Fremont Street experience? Do they own it or do they just maintain it? Well, it turns out the answer is neither. It's not a total public space, and it's not a total private area. It's maintained by a private company in support of private businesses surrounding it, meaning the casinos. And in fact, there are several executives of surrounding casinos who are managing the Fremont Street experience. But it is still a quasi-public area. And the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because there's been a controversy that has been dogging them for all 27 years that they didn't think of when they came to this whole agreement and when they came up with this plan. And that involves street performers. If you've been to the street, Fremont Street experience, you've probably noticed people performing for tips. In fact, more recently, you've probably noticed these black circles that they're standing on, like six-foot diameter circles that these people stand on or very near, and they perform at these circles. But how do you 
get one of these circles? Who has a right to perform there? And are they paying the Fremont experience to be there? Is the Fremont Street experience paying them? Is it neither? How do you get one of these spots? Who's in charge of these people? What if you have a complaint about one of these people? Does the Fremont Street experience want them there? Is this part of the attraction or is this something they're stuck with? Maybe, maybe not. You've thought about these questions. I have, but I've never put too much thought into it until recently. But apparently this has been a gigantic headache for the city and the Fremont Street experience because the answer is they don't want them there. If the city had their way, if the Fremont Street experience had their way, these street performers would have been gone from the very beginning, 27 years ago. But they're not gone because it's still technically a public space in a way. And the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution grants all Americans the right to street performance, and this is because street performance is considered a form of speech. The government cannot restrict free speech in public places. So if somebody wants to go demonstrate in a public area, they have a right to do so. And this goes back to the very founding days of our country. So it's not that simple to just say, hey, you're a nuisance, get out. We don't like your street performance because the street performers say back, nope, this is a form of free speech. However, this isn't just like a public area. This is uh, a, an area maintained by a private company in support of private businesses surrounding it. So the city tried to take that approach and basically told these street performers, who of course are out there because they don't have much money and this is what they're doing to get by. These aren't rich people. So these people don't really have the resources to lodge any kind of a First Amendment complaint that would be successful against the city, and the city knew that. So the city said, no, this isn't really a public space. This is something that we've given control to a private company. This is a, a private area. So just because it was once a public street, it's really a private space, so get out. And they, they had a lot of restrictions on these street performers. That's why you didn't see all that many of them in all the way through 2011. And I'll tell you in a second why that changed. But for 16 years, the city kept it under control and nobody was able to successfully fight this because, as I said, nobody really had the resources to do so. And for this reason, it wasn't a problem. There weren't zero street performers, but there were so many restrictions that the city and the Fremont Street experience had a good control over the situation. However, and I'm not sure why this changed, but in 2011, the ACLU got involved. Well, the ACLU, they can create a lot of hassle in a situation like this because they have a big team of lawyers that know the First Amendment very well and that will keep pressing, pressing, pressing until the city finally has to back down if they're not completely legally in the right. So the ACLU basically said, no, you guys are violating these performers' right to free speech and free assembly. And you can't claim it's a private area because it's not. You never converted that street into private land. It's still public land. It's still a public street. Just because cars can't drive on it, that doesn't matter. It's still a public street. 
these people have a right to go there and perform. Well, the city realized that they were screwed. The city realized that if this were to be pressed in court, they would probably lose this lawsuit. So they finally said to the ACLU in 2011, okay, how about we work with you guys to come up with some rules that are much more permissive than what we have in place presently? Will that satisfy you? So we're not going to make it a free-for-all, but let's come up with some kind of rules that both sides can accept. So the ACLU said, okay. So they helped draft the new rules starting in 2011 regarding the street performers, and these were far more lax than before, which almost made it a free-for-all. So guess what happened? It probably doesn't take a genius to figure out what happened next. The word got out to the street performers that there were very few restrictions there, so the street performers flooded the area in the next four years between 2011 and 2015, and there were a lot of problems. What kind of problems? Well, first of all, there were some better places to stand there than others based upon the foot traffic and everything else. So, of course, you want to be where the most people are going to be and where people are most likely to want to watch your act and tip you. So street performers were getting to fights with each other. Then there were fights over how long each performer could be there. You know, is it first come, first serve? Can they be there as long as they want? Should there be a time limit? So there are lots of issues of street performers who were fighting with one another or if one wouldn't move out of the way, then they'd set up like right next to them and try to drown them out with increasingly loud music. There was so much competition between street performers that was creating a gigantic public nuisance, but it went beyond that. There was also a lot of bad behavior by the street performers against tourists that were down there downtown that were watching the whole thing. So there was overly aggressive tip hustling. So if you watch one of these performers and you don't tip him, they'll start shouting at you, harassing you, make you scared and and make you want to tip him to get out of the mess. There was just outright scamming being done by these performers against uh, tourists there. There were performers that were doing dangerous stunts with audience participation where audience members ended up being hurt and then couldn't really sue anybody because these performers were broke and didn't have any insurance. There were fights and confrontations, not only between the performers themselves jockeying for position, but also if they got into any incidents with tourists there they were watching, uh, sometimes fights would break out. And there was drug dealing too. What a mess, right? So that went on for the next four years. And the city went back to the ACLU and said, look, we can't have this anymore. This has become a disaster. This is exactly what we were worried about. This is what we were preventing for 16 years. And then you guys made us change the rules. And these rules are way too permissive. We've got to do something about this. So the ACLU looked into it and they said, all right, we think the biggest problem is that there's really no control of who comes down there. There's just so many street performers there now, and they're all fighting for the same space. They all want the same prime space there. They don't have any kind of rules as far as how long each can be there, and that's what's causing most of the problems. If if we assign spaces to a finite number of street performers per day, we think all these other problems will mostly take care of themselves. It won't be perfect, but it's going to be way better than it's been for the past four years. So the city's like, okay, fine. So the city decided to try it the ACLU's way for a second time. And in 2015, they came up with a 
reservation system, an online reservation system, where in order to get a space that you have to have a reservation and that you get your reservation selected at random from everybody who signs up the day before. So they made about 40 spaces and they marked these spaces with these circles. That's why you see them on these circles. They drew these six-foot circles and then they had about 40 of them throughout the Fremont Street experience. And every day, if you want one, then you have to enter this online lottery for it. And then if you were chosen at random, then you would get your space for free and you have your space for two hours before it goes to the next person. So they they gave out two-hour blocks in these spaces between certain hours of the day. No one had them at like three in the morning, but certain hours of the day for most of the day in two-hour blocks, these 40 spaces were given away in a free lottery. And that was seen as uh, solving the issue with them all fighting for the best spaces there or too many of them showing up or both. Well, what do you think happened here? The way the lottery would work is you'd go register for the first time online. Once you have your account, then you could sign up for the lottery every day. What could possibly be a problem here? Remember, you get your spaces for free. What could possibly be a problem here? What about multi-accounting? Yes, it didn't take long for the street performers to realize that you could register an account under any name and then get a space assigned to it. And in fact, you could register as many accounts as you wanted. In fact, you could register 500 accounts if you want and virtually guarantee yourself several spaces because you'll just have so many entries every day that it won't be hard to win these spaces. Now, why would someone want a ton of spaces there? Obviously, you can't occupy more than one space at once. Well, what do you do if you have hogged up most of those 40 spaces for you and all your fake accounts? You don't let them sit empty, do you? No, because these spaces are valuable. Now, you can sell these free spaces that you got for free. Uh-oh, that's exactly what happened. What a shock. And why was this vulnerability there? Well, the city said, hey, how about for registration that we require that to register, you have to show ID for first-time registration to get an account. ACLU said, nope, this violates people's right to free assembly. You should not have to show ID to engage in free speech you should be able to show up to any public area and speak without presenting ID. So if we make people present ID to get these spaces, this violates the rights of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly because you're introducing a requirement that is not allowed by the Constitution. That was the ACLU's argument. So the city's like, fine, fine, fine. We won't require ID. But okay, can we at least require ID once these people show up to their spaces. Nope, same thing, said ACLU. No ID at all. Okay, well, what about if there's an issue? Can we at least require they carry ID? So if there's an issue with them and a tourist, that a tourist can demand they show the ID so at least they know who to report. And then, of course, the ACLU said, nope, again, no ID, period. So the city was like, ah, fine, fine, no ID. So with no ID, of course, this could be abused. And it was abused. So... A few people were hogging up all 40 spaces by just registering so many accounts in this daily lottery that they controlled all the spaces. And word got around 
that if you want a space, you have to buy it from such and such person on the black market. So these street performers you were seeing there, most of them were actually paying for their free spaces to these scammers who were signing up all these fake accounts to acquire these spaces to then sell to everybody else. And this went on for years. And the city didn't do anything about it. And they just kind of let it happen. Finally, they decided enough is enough. Because these same problems from before were getting worse and worse. The aggressive tip hustling, the tourists getting injured, the drug dealing, the scamming. The city felt they lost control of the whole thing. This whole space thing was now being run by scammers instead of the city. The scammers were winning almost all the spaces in the lottery, and then they were controlling who gets the spaces and when. And if you don't play ball with them, you never get a space there. And of course, people try to complain, and the city's like, yeah, 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 we know, and they, I don't know why it took so long for them to do anything. But finally, they decided they're going to do something about it. So they have decided that they're going to clamp down on this, that this is going to be it, that they are going to require ID for initial registration. Furthermore, it's going to be a picture ID required and that the picture will be part of the pass to use the space and that you have to present your picture in order to have the ability to use the space and that anybody at any time can ask to see your ID and ask to see the picture that was associated with this space and if it doesn't match, you have to leave. Now, I don't know if who'd be enforcing this. I don't think there's going to be anyone there checking it, but these were the rules. They also wanted people to carry a million dollars of insurance they don't have to pay a million dollars for the policy, but they have to have a million dollars of insurance if they do any stunts that uh, could possibly involve any audience members or anything that would be considered dangerous there. And furthermore, that they would have to show ID upon request of any citizen that wants to see it. So now the city is back to all that. All that stuff they wanted back in 2015, they want it again. And this time they're being much more demanding about this. They're telling the ACLU, we tried it your way, and it failed. It was taken over by scammers, and that's all because you would not let us check any ID. So this is a disaster. We've lost control of it, and your scheme does not allow us to have control of it. They also would make it explicitly illegal to sell any of these spots to third parties. Now, is this going to happen without a fight? Of course not. The ACLU is probably going to fight this. There's very likely to be a legal challenge here because the ACLU is still obsessed with this whole thing about the no ID. What's sad about the ACLU, and this is now me editorializing here, is that they have largely lost their way. Not about this in particular. I mean, they would have taken up this fight a long time ago, and in fact did. But the modern ACLU is actually much less about free speech than they used to. The 1970s ACLU was so dedicated to free speech that they actually defended Nazis who wanted to assemble in public and engage in Nazi speech. This is just like 30 years after World War II. They actually defended these Nazis who wanted to be able to do this. Well, forget that. Not only won't they defend Nazis anymore, but now they actually support things like banning books, like suppressing, quote, hate speech, Any speech they don't like, 
any speech that goes against their political beliefs, even if not outright hate speech, just any speech they disagree with, like right-wing speech, they not only don't want to defend, they actually will support efforts to curtail that speech. And I read an interesting article by a man who was uh, the head of the ACLU back in the 1970s, who is uh, a lifelong liberal, a very left-wing guy, who is horrified of what the ACLU has become. He feels they've lost their, they've lost their way, and they've now prioritized political beliefs over the dedication to free speech at all costs. So he feels the modern ACLU says, we'll defend any speech unless it helps the right, then we're going to oppose free speech. And he said, that's not the way this is supposed to be. The ACLU was founded to defend all speech. And I used to have respect for the ACLU for that reason, even though I didn't agree with their politics. I used to hear fellow conservatives bash the ACLU, and I said, look, they're doing something important. They're defending free speech. And that wasn't a popular view at the time from me as a conservative with other conservatives. But that's not what the ACLU is about anymore. So you may ask, well, why are they fighting so hard for this? Because this is a free speech issue. Well, this is not a free speech issue that benefits the right wing politically at all. This has nothing to do really with right versus left. This is just, quote, free speech. And they are seeing the performers as the perceived underdog here. They're seeing the performers as these uh, poor performing artists who just want to survive. And they see the greedy casinos as just trying to push them out. But it's really not that simple. The bottom line is it attracts a bad element. I'm not saying all the performers are bad. There are some performers there who are completely decent people. But there's enough of a bad element there to where it's causing a lot of trouble. It's resulting in a lot of crime. It's resulting in things happening to tourists that result in their injury or being pressured to tip when they don't want to or being scared or being beaten up. There's increased drug dealing as a result of these performers there who sometimes engage in drug dealing along with their performance. There's these stunts which are done with no insurance. I mean, there's just a lot of things that are harming the public interest in that area. So this isn't just speech. This isn't about curtailing someone who wants to protest something. It's not like they're saying that they don't want someone there with a sign saying Black Lives Matter. That's not what this is about. This has nothing to do with protest or actual speech. This has to do with performers who are creating a nuisance. And the public will be much better off without them or at least with these same restrictions back or similar restrictions back as they had from 1995 to 2011. This can't just be a free-for-all or anything close to it, and you can't just divorce ID from this whole thing or scammers take over. So You, you always got to watch out. When you're doing something you think is noble, you can say, oh, look, everybody has a right to speak, everybody has a right to perform in public, and we shouldn't require ID because why should you need ID? Everybody should be able to do it with or without ID. Well, that that sounds great on the surface, but if this is leading to a problem, which is a public nuisance and is enabling scammers, then you have to rethink it. And this is what happened here. You always have to watch out if the consequences of your actions are going to result in a net negative for society. And that's what's happened here. So we're going to have a big fight 
between the ACLU, most likely, and the city, and I hope the city wins. And I've seen people saying, oh, look, this is just uh, the city taking the side again of the greedy casinos. The casinos control Las Vegas. These performers, they're just trying to make a living. No. Some of them are, but there's enough bad behavior. There's enough tourists that are negatively impacted here that something has to be done. And it's been tried now for 11 years, the ACLU's way, and it's been a disaster. You might wonder why the city simply didn't just sell the land to the Fremont Street experience in 1995 and just say, hey, it's yours, make it a private area. So I could only guess that this was done for the city to have their cake and eat it too. The city probably looked at this like they don't have to give away public land. They get to maintain all the public land they have and all the control that they might want to assert on this public land, either presently or in the future, but they don't have to pay to keep it up anymore. They just had to pay this one-time expense in 1994 and 1995 to put up that canopy and modify the area, and then once that expense has been paid, then they have a freebie for life with a private company footing the bill, and yet it's still public land that is theirs. What a sweet deal, huh? So that's why. They did not want to give it up. They thought they get the best of both worlds. They get to maintain ownership, and someone else is footing the bill. So that's kind of what happened there. So the city didn't think this through. What they should have realized at the time is that they may not want it to be a public area, because once something's a public area, then it gives people rights to do things that otherwise could be restricted in private areas. So if you want it to function like a private area, you shouldn't leave it as a public area because you're introducing a lot of potential hassle. Once it's a private area, then the company managing it can make whatever rules they want that don't break the law. But in a public area, there's a lot of rights people have that you can't curtail. And they've been dealing with this mess for 27 years because they wanted to keep it as Las Vegas public land. Oops. I don't know if they could convert it at this point, but the ACLU could probably mount a legal challenge to that as well, that they're converting public space to private space in order to curtail people's ability to speak there. Because that could easily be portrayed in court as what's going on. So they probably thought the easiest thing to do is leave it a public space, but just let someone else maintain it. So now we have this. I'll give you an update on what happens here as I learn about it. I'm kind of interested in this whole thing now. I wasn't that interested in this whole situation. I didn't even know much about it until about a week ago. I saw an article in the Las Vegas Review Journal. I was like, hmm, that is interesting. I never thought that much about these performers. But yeah, I see the problem. From the 505, some of the performers are literal bums. One guy was dirty as shit standing around butt-ass naked. Yeah, that's another problem. That's a good point. Is that you think of performers and you think of people performing magic or uh, showgirls you can take pictures with or musicians But yeah, some of these are kind of just bums and the performances are really not performances. And also some of the music is awful. 
you walk by and there's just awful blaring music by someone who has no talent and is just creating audio blight in the area. You just can't wait to get by there. It's all that type of stuff going on. So these aren't vetted in any way. It's not like these are performers that have adhered to some kind of standard. Because when you watch a performance at a casino, these performers have been hired to perform there, either by the casino itself or by a private company that's managing it. It's not just randoms there who are designating themselves a performer. So yeah, this needs to stop there. This just needs to stop. And the funny thing is most people agree. I look at the comments online about this. This has been discussed somewhat on Twitter and on my Vegas Casino Talk forum. And it's pretty unanimous. It's close to unanimous that this just needs to stop. Like People don't like these performers. People are sick of it. People just want them gone. It is a blight on downtown Las Vegas, and they need to get control of it. Okay, so I have an update of a story that is not being covered very much in media in Las Vegas, though it's starting to get some more coverage. There is a Review Journal article about it. Prior to that, it was not covered at all in any kind of Las Vegas media, except for one website called the Nevada Independent that has been very aggressively covering this. This is the interesting story of Robin Hood 702 and the criminal charges against him. And we we had a long segment about this on this show. And there's an update to the entire situation. And I'm going to give it to you. And finally, this is getting some coverage, as I said, in uh, mainstream Las Vegas media. But I'm really suspicious of this whole thing. And a lot of me believes that this is a a result of remaining justice system corruption in Vegas. And it saddens me to see this because I like to believe that Vegas has put all that in the rearview mirror a long time ago. Remember, Vegas was once a very corrupt place ruled by the mob. But then the corporations came in and pushed them out in the 90s. And... You would think at this point it would function like any other medium-sized U.S. city. But unfortunately, it doesn't. And unfortunately, there seem to be remainders of corruption there. And there's corruption in every city. And some cities are notorious for some level of corruption, such as Chicago. But Vegas you kind of associate that stuff with 1980s and before when the mob was in control. You had to be real careful in 1980s Las Vegas not to run afoul of the mob in any way, not go against their interests at all, or otherwise you really would find yourself grabbed and buried in the desert. I'm not exaggerating here. This is a concern one would have to have. You, you wouldn't screw around there in the 80s if you valued your life. But uh, now we're decades past that. The mob is not in control anymore in Las Vegas. But that doesn't mean that there isn't still a culture where certain influential forces can take control of people who are being difficult. And that might be what's going on here. The only problem is that the victim or the perceived victim in this whole thing is someone who has his own shady history and you can't completely trust this guy either. 
and I've talked about this on a episode we had in uh, 2022, but I'll quickly go over it again. Robert Cipriani, also known as R.J. Cipriani, is known to some people as Robin Hood 702. He claims he is a professional high-stakes gambler, and he claims that some of his profits go to charity, which is why he uh, calls himself Robin Hood. I don't know if any of this is really true. I don't know how he really supports himself. Some people are supposed professional gamblers aren't really. What I do know is that Robin Hood got himself in a mess where he had uh, $2 million that was given to him by a drug dealer that he was supposed to launder in Vegas casinos, and instead he chunked it off. And then when he was fearing for his life that the drug dealer was going to kill him for stealing the $2 million or failing to launder it properly and chunking it off because Cipriani was probably a degenerate gambler, He went to the FBI and said, hey, how would you like me to be an informant? And that's what he did. And the drug dealer ended up being arrested and convicted. And many people gave Cipriani a hard time for being a snitch and that he screwed over this drug dealer. Who, Yeah, he was a drug dealer, but still he had an agreement with a guy to launder the money and only went to the FBI after he blew the money. So that, that wasn't a good look for Cipriani. And there's no doubt this happened. Cipriani admits this happened. This was in 2011, and this drug dealer was convicted in 2016. I don't know when Cipriani came up with this whole Robin Hood identity, but the persona he's taken on via social media, calling himself Robin Hood 702, is someone who not only donates some of his winnings to charity, but also a guy who fearlessly calls out corruption in Las Vegas even when he has to take on powerful people. This is a guy who just absolutely doesn't give a shit. He doesn't give a shit about potential defamation lawsuits. He doesn't give a shit about anyone coming after him and hurting him. He doesn't give a shit about any kind of criminal legal consequences. He just goes balls to the wall and calls out what he believes to be corruption in Las Vegas. And you may say, oh, wow, that's really, really noble and brave. Well, yes, but... I've been kind of watching him and a lot of the stuff he writes, I don't believe. And it's very frustrating following him because I think there may be some nuggets of truth in some of the stuff he writes, but there's so much stuff that I don't believe. There's so much stuff I think is either exaggerated or he's repeating unfounded rumors as fact that it's really hard to know what to trust. Like if you believed everything he said, then there'd be some pretty crazy and amazing stuff going on in Las Vegas on a daily basis. And I just don't think it's anywhere near the way he portrays it. So I found it to be a situation where I I have to kind of just tune him out because it's so hard to separate the truth from the trash with him. But that doesn't mean that everything is wrong. And that's what is the frustrating part. If the guy was completely making everything up, repeating rumors that people were making up and giving to him, then it would be completely easy to ignore him and say, okay, this guy's 100% full of shit. I don't think he's 100% full of shit. I think sometimes he does bring out stuff that nobody is supposed to know and that really does expose things that are happening that people should know about. But you just don't know which is true and which isn't. So that was my impression of him prior to everything that's been going on recently. Something he has been doing is 
calling out people that he sees in casinos that he feels should not be there, such as people who are accused of scamming or embezzling that are still gambling in Las Vegas casinos when they probably shouldn't be because they're being accused of embezzling in the first place to get this money. So here they've been already arrested or they've already been uh, convicted and waiting for sentencing, whatever it is, and they're still in the casino gambling when they're not even supposed to have this money. So he likes to bring this out and probably wants plaudits for it. I think he wants you to forget that he was once a snitch. I think he wants to reinvent his identity and uh, what better way to do it than to go after actual scammers and embezzlers that may still be engaging in wrongdoing and somehow no one is, is doing anything about it. So that led to his current problems. So there is a convicted embezzler named Robert Alexander. We've talked about this before. And this is a guy with a major gambling and high-level spending issue. He actually did found some successful online companies. The first one was his own company, and it did very well. But then he uh, chunked off a ton of that money via reckless spending and gambling. And then he founded another company called Kizang, which was again successful, but he didn't have his own money to do it with this time. So he embezzled money from Kizang that wasn't his, and that's where the criminal charges stemmed from. Now, I'm not repeating rumor. I don't even have to say allegedly because he has been convicted of this embezzlement and he is awaiting sentencing. So there's no question that Robert Alexander was an embezzler. And Alexander was seen gambling at uh, Resorts World. And Robert Cipriani, Robin Hood, saw him at Resorts World and decided to call him out. And keep in mind, Cipriani already had been calling out somebody else named Brandon Sattler, who is another accused embezzler over a completely different matter, also claiming that Sattler had uh, some sort of cozy relationship with the Resort World CEO, Scott Sabella. So Cipriani has been pretty aggressively calling out Resorts World and its CEO, and he sees Alexander playing there, and he's like, what the fuck? Like, wh- why is this guy, while he's awaiting sentencing for embezzling, why is this guy still doing high-stakes gambling here? What the hell's going on? Where's this money coming from? So because Cipriani had contacts at the FBI from his previous snitching, he went to his FBI contacts and said, hey, look what's going on here with Alexander. And uh, he was also calling it out on Twitter. And he was trying to get as much evidence as he could, again, probably so he could be seen as a hero for getting this Alexander guy in further trouble. Well, Alexander didn't take this lying down. I guess he took it sitting down because Alexander actually uh, is so overweight and has some health problems that he actually gets around in a motorized scooter. (laughs) Robert Alexander is not exactly a, a scary guy to be dealing with, but Robert Alexander, for whatever reason, believed that Cipriani himself was engaging in wrongdoing and he was going to prove it. So Alexander's like, yeah, you know, you're going to try to report me. 
you know what, Cipriani, I know you are doing things that you shouldn't be doing, and I'm going to get evidence on you. Now, I don't know if Alexander's right about this, but he decided that he is going to record Cipriani playing at Resorts World and try to catch him in wrongdoing and get him in trouble. <laughs> so he's like, okay, you, you want to try to report on me? I'm going to try to report on you. Well, on November 19, 2021... Cipriani, after tolerating this for about a month and a half and repeatedly reporting this to security, who did nothing about it, finally grabbed Robert Alexander's cell phone from his hand and ran it over to security to try to give it to them to prove that he was being recorded in the casino and that Alexander shouldn't be doing this. The The goal was to get Alexander 86th from the property permanently and, and be done with this forever. Well, instead, Cipriani was arrested for larceny And Alexander was alleging that what Cipriani was actually doing was grabbing his phone so he could remove incriminating things that Alexander had caught him doing and that he was not trying to give it to uh, security to take a look at and, in fact, threatened to kill him if he continued to record him in the future. That was Alexander's story. Alexander testified that Cipriani told him, the FBI is going to get you, and if they don't, I'm going to kill you. He claims that's what Cipriani said to him as he grabbed the phone. Alexander also said that Cipriani had been uh, threatening him and his son. And he said that Cipriani actually deleted videos off the phone prior to giving it to security, or trying to give it to security who wouldn't take it. However, As I've reported before on the show, the video didn't back this. The video from Resorts World, which Cipriani's attorney subpoenaed, showed that Cipriani's accounting of events was true. That indeed, Alexander was constantly riding his uh, scooter, his motorized scooter, very close to Cipriani to record him. And that when this altercation took place on November 19th, that Cipriani simply grabbed the phone and sprinted to the cashier to try to give it to them to have them give it to security that he didn't stop and try to delete things and it didn't seem like he was saying anything to Alexander it looked like he just grabbed it and ran so it looked like Alexander was probably lying about all this and that really Cipriani was just trying to give it to security and get security to see that Alexander was recording him and put a stop to it so you would have thought that this would have been the end of it but It's not. Cipriani is being prosecuted not only for larceny for this situation with the phone, but he's also being prosecuted for cheating in blackjack. Now, what is the allegation about that? It's being alleged that he added a secret $500 to a $500 bet to make it $1,000 after he wasn't allowed to do so anymore, that he snuck an extra $500 chip onto his bet. Now, normally, that would be a crime. For example, if I'm at a blackjack table and I have a $500 bet, I'm dealt a 20, and then the dealer has up a 6, and I go, oh, sweet, I'm in a pretty good spot here. This is very positive expectation for me. So while the dealer has his head turned, I'm going to slip another $500 chip there. Ha-ha. Well, that's very illegal, and if I were to be caught doing that, then I could be arrested and I could be charged. But that's not what Cipriani was doing. 
Cipriani was playing at a $1,000 minimum table and put out 500 without realizing it. And then when the hand started, he tried to push over another 500 upon realizing it, and the dealer pushed it back, and that was that. So there's no crime there. And in fact, the law actually states that's the way it's supposed to go. That if somebody has uh, put out the wrong bet for the table minimum, if they bet under the minimum, and it is not caught before the cards are dealt, you just finish off the hand, and if the player tries to fix it and make it right, you just push back the bet and say, no, you can't do that. And unless it's a blatant situation where they're cheating and only sneaking it on there uh, because they're uh, trying to add money only when they're in an advantageous spot, unless that's clear, uh, you just push it back and say, sorry, the table minimum isn't this. And, And again, the facts seem to back him here, that he was just trying to get it up to the table minimum on this one case. It's not like they caught him doing this five times on camera. He tried on this one time. Oh, shit, it's 1,000. Let me add it 500. No, 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 Mr. Cipriani, you can't do that. Take the 500 back. So I, I don't know how far in the hand it was. They were probably in the process of dealing at some point. You couldn't add the bet anymore. He tried to throw another 500 on there, and they pushed it back. So they tacked that on there afterwards. Cipriani alleges that this is a result of corruption, that prosecutors who he feels are doing the bidding of resorts world are afraid that this whole larceny thing is not going to work out once it is seen in court, the surveillance video that shows that it backs his story. So uh, they're adding on this cheating charge, which also allows them to revoke his bail. So there was a hearing. This is the update. All the stuff I'm telling you is old news, but the new news came out in the Review Journal and also in the Nevada Independent on uh, April 7th, is that Robert Cipriani, Robin Hood 702, indeed has had his bail revoked. Wow. Imagine having no bail. I don't mean zero bail. I mean that you're in jail and you cannot bail yourself out. Over grabbing someone's phone who's recording you for a month and a half in the casino and won't stop, and trying to push your bet up to the table minimum when you actually put out the wrong amount. Imagine that is leaving you held without bail. Keep in mind that woman who met that guy to murder him in retaliation for the U.S. killing Iranian General Soleimani in 2020, so two years later, this Iranian woman who's crazy and decides she wants revenge on the U.S. and meets a guy pretending to want to have sex with him and then tries to kill him, tries to stab him to death, and he doesn't die, but uh, she's trying to kill him, and she does stab him. She got bail. She got bail set. And Cipriani is right now there without bail, that he cannot be bailed out. So how'd this happen? Well... After Cipriani was arrested in November, as you might imagine, he was putting out a tweet storm on his Robinhood 702 Twitter account and making all kinds of allegations against uh, CEO Scott Sabella, against the district attorney, against pretty much everyone he could think of that could possibly be involved in this whole thing, that they're all getting together to screw him. And then he made a lot of allegations that had nothing to do with him, but just basically making a lot of attacks on the character and the past or the alleged past of these various people he was talking about. So he just hammered Twitter and just was 
bashing all these different people and defending himself and claiming that this is a big conspiracy here to silence him and for the city to do the bidding of uh, Resorts World. Well, he was told that he can't do this. As a condition of bail, he was ordered to have no contact with Robert Alexander or anyone at Resorts World or any third-party vendors of Resorts World. And then, this is the worst part, he also was told as a bail condition that he can have no social media or tweeting. He was also ordered to desist from posting, harassing, intimidating, and threatening social media and email posts or communications. And the biggest issue they had there at the court was that he was uh, tweeting images of the surveillance footage of him and Robert Alexander in Resorts World that seemed to back his story. In the tweets, Cipriani said, he drives right over to my blackjack table, getting inches away as he verbally threatened me. Why was he allowed in a Vegas casino? Referring to his already conviction for embezzlement. In this Review Journal article, First Amendment lawyer Alan Lichtenstein, who is not involved in any of this, but just commenting on it for the Review Journal, said that these tweets that were cited by prosecutors do not rise to the level of threats or intimidation and that he should have been allowed to continue with his free speech. Lichtenstein said there are certain exceptions that are clearly harassment or threats or intimidation that are not protected by the First Amendment. But him giving his point of view or his side of the story about what happened doesn't fall into that category. He said that revoking Cipriani's bail because the tweets included things that are uh, related to the case appears to be punitive. He said it appears to be overreaching on the part of the DA and also the judge. You know what? I agree. Cipriani really seems to be facing petty and maybe even bogus charges here. And this should not be something that's prosecuted in criminal court. Neither of these things, the, the $500 chip addition and the uh, the grabbing of the phone, at worst, he should have just been banned from Resorts World, and that should have been that. The fact that they're going forward with this prosecution for both of these things and that he is voicing dissatisfaction with this and trying to post his side of the story should not be a reason to revoke his bail, nor should he be restricted to go onto Twitter to give his side of the story. That shouldn't even be a bail condition. He shouldn't be restricted from talking about Resorts World executives. That's not fair. Now, if he were to be threatening or intimidating them, that would be a different story. If he were on his Twitter saying that they're going to pay, they're going to suffer, you know, he's going to get his revenge, they'll see there's, you know, they're going to have... Uh, they're going to rue the day that they arrested him, whatever. Like, if he wrote things like that, I would understand. But it does not appear he wrote anything like that. It looked like that he was giving his side of the story. He was claiming it was a conspiracy to silence him and to punish him. And he was making allegations in general against various executives at Resorts World and, and other people who were associated with the city of Las Vegas that's what it looks like. And at worst, these people could sue him for def- defamation if he thinks that they think that he's uh, making false statements about them. But in my opinion, from what I've seen, and I've looked at the tweets too, I don't see why this should be 
something that should be a condition of bail or that his bail should be revoked. Something else weird happened that he was actually not even able to listen to the hearing about him. (laughs) So there is a video call service called Blue Jeans, which I wasn't even aware that existed, but there's uh, something called Blue Jeans, which is like a video call system that you can use to be present in court or at least listen to court hearings. And he and a journalist from the Nevada Independent were thrown out of the hearing, that is the virtual version of the hearing. They were on through the Blue Chain service, and they were removed. Now, it is claimed that they didn't identify themselves in the online application, and that uh, that was the reason they were thrown out. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what's claimed is that in the application to observe this hearing, that either they didn't give their true identity or they just didn't put who they were, and that they were thrown out for that reason. I will say that the court does have a point about one thing. He could have appeared at this hearing in person. In fact, he was ordered to appear in person. His attorney appeared, but he was ordered to be there himself, and then he didn't go to court. And his attorney said that he couldn't travel because of, quote, medical conditions. And I don't believe that. I think he was concerned that if he appeared that they were going to take him into custody right there and deny bail and he'd be in jail for who knows how long. That he knew the second he steps into that court, that's the end of his freedom. I think think that's where his medical conditions came from. That was an excuse. There was no indication in November of 2021 that he was suffering from any kind of medical condition that would have made him unavailable to appear in person in court. So I understand why they're annoyed about this in court that he is making up or apparently making up these medical conditions and refused to appear in court, even though the judge ordered that he would have to appear. The judge also said that he is willing to hear regarding resetting bail but that Cipriani has to appear in court and be taken into custody first. So basically the judge is saying, all right, we're not completely closing off your ability to get bail, but first things first, you're going back into custody. As long as you hide from custody, we are not discussing bail. So he's actually not in custody last I heard, at least as of a week ago, but he has no bail and they're looking to put him back in custody, and there will be no bail hearing until he's actually back in custody. So there's no such thing as him getting bail set and then posting it without going back into custody first. He has to risk getting put back in custody and bail not being granted. The judge also allowed prosecutors to amend the initial charge, so now this uh, has uh, felony counts of larceny of property less than 3,500, meaning that phone, against a victim who's older or vulnerable because of uh, Alexander's status of needing that scooter to get around, and also robbery against a victim who's older or vulnerable, and that he also faces a felony count of committing a fraudulent act in a gaming establishment over that blackjack chip. The DA's office said that they had proposed a deal 
where Cipriani would plead guilty to disorderly conduct over the situation with grabbing the phone, and then they would dismiss that charge about the $500 chip. However, this agreement would have required Cipriani to continue abiding by the no-contact orders, to stay away from his Orch world, and to refrain from posting, quote, harassing, intimidating, threatening, disparaging, and negative social media and or posts or communications. What does that mean? Basically, in order to have this downgraded into disorderly conduct and the gambling charge dropped, that he would have to agree never to tweet again anything negative about Resorts World or the city or basically anything. So Robin Hood 702 would be permanently silenced. That would be a permanent thing he would be agreeing to in exchange for these downgraded charges. Hmm. Does that seem like a violation of the First Amendment to you? I think so. And again, I do think that Robin Hood 702 puts out a lot of bullshit. I think he puts out a lot of rumors that he doesn't vet very well and then treats them as fact. I don't trust a lot of what he puts out there. But this thing really looks bad. Why is he facing these charges? These don't look like good charges to me. Even the Review Journal doesn't seem to have any explanation for this. They, it's not like they're putting out the city side here. <laughs> the only thing they put out that makes any sense is that some of this is because Cipriani won't appear in court. And he's making up these medical excuses. But aside from that, it really looks like he's getting screwed. Furthermore, the DA's office has rescinded that offer anyway. So even if he were to accept it at this point, that's no longer on the table. Maybe later they'll put it back, but at the moment that's not even something he can agree to. But that was the offer at one point. Cipriani had not agreed to it, but they, that was what they were putting out there, that we get a conviction for disorderly conduct, and then basically you keep yourself off social media if you have anything negative to say about anyone. Wow. Actually, I guess he can continue tweeting negatively, but it can't be anyone involving Resorts World or anyone involved in this case, which is still pretty bad. It's basically shutting him up for all eternity about anything he doesn't like about Resorts World or the city or the court system. <laughs> so, we will see. Cipriani really got himself in hot water here. But look, with a place like Las Vegas... If you keep poking, poking, poking those who are in influential positions, eventually things might get tough on you, whether it's fair or not. You have to keep that in mind before you engage in this, especially if you're right there in Las Vegas where they can pick you up and find charges to levy against you. Now, they didn't completely make things up he really did add a chip after the betting was closed he really did grab alexander's phone and he admits to this but neither of these should have been criminal given the circumstances surrounding them and definitely shouldn't have been prosecuted remember most things that are minor that make it to the da's office that there's any kind of doubt that they really occurred or that they're super minor uh, they don't ever get prosecuted So this totally should have landed in that realm, but 
really looks like someone wanted to get him. Cipriani definitely is not an angel, and it's very possible that he ruffled feathers because he had been writing things that were not true about people. So don't make him too much of a hero because it's possible that he wrote a lot of things over time that made people look really bad that they hadn't done. And it's very frustrating when people write things about you online that you haven't done and they make you look like a piece of shit when you're actually a decent person. So it's possible that he did this to so many people that this is kind of the revenge against him. And I'm not condoning this, but I'm saying you've got to watch out what you write about people. If you just keep coming, coming, coming with allegation after allegation and you don't check that everything you're saying is true or likely to be true, then if you piss off enough people that way and they have influence, then they can make life difficult on you, especially if you make some minor mistakes like it appears Cipriani did here, like the thing with the chip and the thing with grabbing the cell phone. But still, this shouldn't be happening this way. And I'm pretty upset to read about this because the court system shouldn't be doing this unless there's something I'm missing. Maybe it'll come out later that everything here made sense. Maybe when we get the full story, if we ever do, maybe I'll say, oh, okay, so that's why they did it this way. Okay, makes sense. But from everything I'm seeing, no. And this is from someone who is quite a skeptic of Robin Hood 702. And I think there probably has been collateral damage over the years from the things he's been tweeting about people. So I'm not even a huge fan of his. But as I said in the case of Raymond Davis, who also probably engaged in some wrongdoing of a totally different type, he also got screwed by the justice system where they upped his bail from 25k to 500k just because he was rude in court. That's all he was, was rude in court. And his bail got raised by a factor of 20. That's not good either. That shouldn't happen either, no matter what the guy's accused of. You set the appropriate bail in the first place, and unless he does something really bad in court, you don't adjust it. You don't multiply it by 20 because he's rude. And keep in mind, he was never hit with a contempt charge or anything like that. So I see things like that, and I go, huh, I don't like it. So we'll see what happens from here, but I think in the near future, if it hasn't happened already, Robert Cipriani will be picked up by authorities in Las Vegas and uh, will be brought to custody. Who knows how long he'll be in jail. And I wonder what will happen if he doesn't agree to some kind of deal. I wonder what he will do on Twitter after he eventually gets out. And furthermore, how many people will listen? And will the review journal do a further article about the whole thing. We will see. Moving on, there is a new expense for a lot of people at the World Series of Poker that you may not be thinking of, but you are going to think about it probably if you go this summer to the World Series of Poker. See, prior to 2022, parking at the World Series of Poker was not something you really had to think much about because the cost of parking there was 0.0. This includes the years it was at the Rio from 2005 through 2021 
as well as prior to 2005 when it was downtown, which technically had a parking charge, but it was very easy to get validated. You just had to stroll into Binion's and have them validate it. In fact, uh, you'd be at Binion's playing it had you played prior to 2005, and I believe they would have validated it anyway. But even had you not played at all, if you were just like a visitor, you still could get it validated because the validation machine was accessible to the public. You could just walk up to it and validate it for yourself. You didn't even need anyone to do it for you. They changed that eventually, but long after 2005. So really, parking at the World Series has always been free. But not any longer. In 2022, it is going to cost you money to park at the World Series unless you have a platinum or higher Caesars reward card. Additionally, if you had a platinum card by having the Caesars Rewards credit card, which used to give you platinum status in perpetuity, that is something that you don't get anymore. Because you only get a year of that now, and then you go back down to gold, and you have to earn whatever status that you were to get. So... No more free rides for parking. You can't do it through the credit card, which, by the way, you can do with MGM. MGM, if you get the MGM MLife credit card, you still get Pearl status without ever gambling there at all, and you can park for free. But there is no free parking, whether you're a local or whether you're from out of the area. It still costs to park, and it is not cheap. And think about this day after day after day. It is going to cost you. And not only that, unless you're staying at one of the hotels, there are no in and out privileges. So every time you leave, you're going to have to pay again, which is crazy. So this is going to become an issue that people are going to notice when they come to the World Series because they're not used to it. And Caesars has not announced they're going to do anything for World Series of Poker players regarding parking. And this was actually brought up to me by somebody who's concerned about it. And this is someone who does have the status to park for free, but he's concerned for other people. Now, who could you think might be thinking about the parking charge at the World Series of Poker? Yes, that would be one Alan Kessler. (laughs) But to his credit, he can park for free. As I said, he has the status because he plays a lot of casino games. But a lot of people who don't, they're not going to be able to park for free. So the parking charges are as follows. The first hour is free. So if you just got to go there quickly for under an hour, you can enter and exit without paying anything. But once you're there for an hour, it is $15. Then once you're there for three hours, it's another $3, makes it 18 total. Then once the day resets, once you've been there 24 hours, then... The same thing applies. It's basically $18 a day. But wait, that's Monday through Thursday. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It is first hour free, and then $23 after that. Even if you're there for 61 minutes, it's going to be $23. If you are staying at the hotel, it is $18 to park per day. 
and you have in and out privileges, otherwise you don't. Again, if you're platinum, diamond, or seven stars, you do get to park for free, but only one per card. So you can't just print a million copies of your card and give it to your buddies. It's not going to work because the first person will get it free and everybody else won't. And that's for self-parking. Valet parking is $30 for four hours or fewer and $36 otherwise per day. If you're a Nevada resident, you do get a little bit longer for free. You get three hours with no charge, but that's not going to do you a lot of good in the World Series unless you're just visiting. If you're playing, you're going to need more than three hours. But as far as I can see, there are no breaks for any World Series of poker players. In fact, I doubt they have a way in the system to give you such a break. They don't have it programmed that way. It's all automated. There's no attendant there. You can call one on the speaker, but I doubt there's going to be any kind of World Series exception. They probably won't even have a way to look it up. So this is an issue. Is there any way around it? Well, kind of. If you have not had the Caesars Platinum card yet through the credit card, then you can do so. And, of course, uh, there is the Platinum card that they give free for military veterans. So if you are a military veteran, then you can get a Platinum card for free. And, of course, you could earn the Platinum card by playing, but that does require 5,000 tier credits, which is not trivial. Anyway, they just didn't think it through, I believe. I don't think this is a sneaky plan by Caesars to make extra money on parking. I mean, maybe it is. Who knows? But I think they just didn't think it through. And they're probably going to have a lot of complaints about this, and they'll just say, sorry, it's the way it works. There's just another expense you have to worry about. This is very annoying to me because not only do I have to deal with it, but recreational players, which is who you want in your World Series events, they are likely to be pissed off by this and not want to come back. I'm not saying it's going to drive them all away. I'm saying if this is an unpleasant memory that they have in their head that they got charged for parking and lost at the World Series, they may not want to come back. You really want to make it to where the recreational players enjoy being there and don't have irritants in their head. Because the recreational players are going to lose. Once in a while, they'll get lucky and win, but overall, they're going to lose. So you want them to at least have a good time despite losing. You don't want also in their head, oh shit, I had to pay for parking for the privilege and I didn't have to last year. This sucks. That is one thing that people are going to find this year that's going to be very unpleasant. If you do have parking for free at other properties, like MGM properties, which I mentioned, you can still get through the MGM M-Life credit card. Or anywhere else that you presently have free parking that's close enough to Bally's or Paris, then you may want to just park elsewhere and walk there. In addition, at least for the moment, Planet Hollywood still has free parking and always has. And that is because they have that big mall there as well and don't want to charge people for parking for it, the Miracle Mile shops. So if you're willing to walk a little bit, you can park at Planet Hollywood for free. Then walk to Bally's Paris. There's an outdoor lot that's by the link. I'm not sure if they charge for that. But remember, there's that link outdoor mall as well, which is between the Link and the Flamingo. So maybe you can park there. That's actually fairly close to Bally's. 
I've never tried to park there, so I don't know if that is a free lot. It may or may not be. But you may want to take a look at that as an option as well. But I find it obnoxious that people have to pay to play at the World Series. I think the whole charging people to park on the Strip is a big mistake. It just makes people not want to come to the Strip as much. It keeps locals away. It keeps people away from just kind of going to casinos to explore. Because, as I mentioned, when people come to casinos to explore, sometimes they gamble. Sometimes they spend money at restaurants. Sometimes they spend money on entertainment. Someone coming in to explore doesn't mean they're going to pay zero and then leave. So all you're doing by charging for the parking is disincentivizing people to visit, which I think is a big mistake. But at the World Series, they're making enough. They really need to just not charge for this. But they are. Keep that in mind. So it's pretty late. You know what time it is? It is time for... Hello, Ken and Nigel Fabersham here. This is Druffy Time Theatre. And uh, this is the period in the show where Dandruff says, To hell with interesting stories from around Vegas and around poker, around gambling. I'm going to talk about me. I'm going to talk about myself. For some reason... Dandruff thinks he's more interesting than everything else occurring in the entirety of Vegas. Isn't that rather narcissistic? Uh, regardless, here it comes. On with it. Yes, it's time for Druffy Time Theater. And I decided that we're going to get current. I'm not going to tell you stories from the 1980s or the 1990s or the 2000s or the 2010s. No. I'm going to tell you a story from 2022, a very recent story, a story which took place not just in 2022, but April 2022. This is the story of my last visit to Vegas, which was very recent. This is a story of that visit. And this is a story of something that happened on that visit. Yes, a toilet. This involves a toilet. So I had a toilet that got clogged in a certain Las Vegas hotel. It's not the first time I've had a toilet clogged in a hotel. I find it very frustrating when a toilet gets clogged in a hotel because unlike at home, they don't have a plunger sitting there with you. So you can't just plunge it yourself and move on. You have to have someone for maintenance come and plunge it for you. And in most hotels, you can't just go to the front desk and say, hey, give me a plunger. Sometimes at motels or pretty small hotels, they'll do it for you. But at any kind of large Vegas hotel, they're not going to just hand you a plunger. So you've got to get in the maintenance queue and it's a big pain in the ass. Additionally, I don't like people in my room when I'm not there. I don't care if it's the maid. I don't care if it's maintenance. Whatever it is, I want to be there when any third party is in my room. I just don't trust any third party in my room when I'm not there to see it. So when the toilet clogs, I have a few thoughts. Number one, crap, literally crap. This won't get down. This is gross. Two, 
I won't be able to use the toilet in my room for future bathroom visits until this gets fixed. So it's not just an inconvenience, it's a major problem. And three, oh no, now I've got to wait forever for the maintenance man to come because I don't want anyone coming in my room when I'm not here. So these thoughts all come to mind and I just go, oh, why can't there just be a plunger? In fact, maybe I should bring my own plunger. I'm not even kidding. Maybe I should actually bring a plunger in my car and just leave it there. And then, if necessary, go down and get it. I may actually do this. This sounds like it's a joke. You're probably laughing at this. We're like, what? Druff is going to bring a plunger to Vegas? Come on. <laughs> but I just thought of this now. I may actually bring a plunger to Vegas. Because you'll, you'll hear from this story how frustrating this was. So that happened. But that wasn't the first thing to happen plumbing-wise in the room. I got in the room. And by the way, this was the weekend of the Grammys. So Vegas was incredibly crowded and the hotels were incredibly full. While I was driving, I called and I tried to get them to hold a room for me because I was going to be there quite late at night and I knew I'd get like last choice of rooms. And it was very, very hard to get someone on the phone because I kept getting the Philippines. And if you ask the Philippines to do it, they'll say, I'm sorry, sir. The on- your only choice is to ask for a room when you get there and pick what's left. I'm sorry. That is the policy, sir. So they'll just quote that to you. The only way to get them to hold room is to call in. So I had to make like seven calls to finally reach someone physically at the hotel who would uh, reserve a room for me. And to their credit, they did. And to their credit, the room was according to what I asked for. So I was happy to see that. But the one thing I wasn't happy to see, and this is another very tilting thing in hotels, is when you go to the sink and you turn it on and then the sink drains really, really slowly or doesn't drain at all. And just gross water pulls there from washing your hands, from spitting after you brush your teeth, whatever it is. You've got to look at whatever came out of your mouth or came off your hands and all the soap scum and everything else in the sink as it barely drains. And I find that more often than you'd expect. And then it makes me think, wait a minute, how did the maid clean this? Because the maid needs water to clean. The maid needs running water that very quickly drains. Otherwise, the sink doesn't get clean. And obviously, this didn't just like happen abruptly. This is something that accumulates over time. So it must have been like this for a long time. And the maid just didn't bother to report it. So you also realize that the sink isn't very clean. So that sucks too. But the bigger problem is it just doesn't drain. So that was the first thing I noticed like immediately upon getting into the room. So I went to the room, peed, washed my hands, and it doesn't drain. Like Very, very slowly drained. And again, this is not the first time this has happened to me. Now, when there's two sinks in the room, then I just go use the other sink, and I just leave it this way. But this hotel had just one sink at the type of room that I got. So I had a sink that barely drained. And then the next day, the toilet clogged. Now, regarding the sink... When I was out getting ice from the ice machine, I saw the maintenance man. I said, oh, 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 my sink is clogged. Uh, Could you come over and quickly unclog my sink? And he said, you're going to have to put a work order in. I have 50 jobs ahead of you. I said, 50? Oh, my God. I I said, that's going to be forever. He said, yeah, but don't worry. I, I can come in when you're not there. So I didn't bother to get into the whole discussion that I don't want that. I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. And walked back to the room, and I was very disappointed because 
I knew that I would have to sit there and wait hours until someone was going to come fix this drain. And I was even debating not even bothering because I was only going to be there for a few days and wasn't really worth waiting around for hours to do this. Well, then I realized that the following day that I was actually going to be in the room for a few hours. I won't get into why, but I was going to be in the room by myself for a few hours doing something in the room. No, not jerking off. Don't think that. I mean, you can think that, but that's not what I was doing. But I I had to do some stuff on my computer in the room for a few hours. And I realized that would be a good time to call for the maintenance man and wait. But in between that time, the sink, uh, I mean, the toilet clogged. So now I had the sink that barely drained and a toilet that didn't work. So I was out most of that day. But when I came back in the evening after dinner, I said, all right, this is the time I've been waiting for. I'm going to call up a maintenance request and I'll tell them I need both the sink drain unclogged and the toilet unclogged and uh, we'll finally get this taken care of so I made the call asked them how long it'll be they said we don't know there's a lot of people tonight blah 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 so I kind of expected it's going to be hours didn't even mind that much because again I was going to be in the room anyway and I figured if I had to go to the bathroom that badly that I'd go downstairs to just the public bathroom well I did get one pleasant surprise that about Half an hour later, someone uh, knocked on the door, and it was the maintenance man. So he came a lot faster than I thought, and the hotel was very, very full. In fact, when I checked in the night before that, they told me that I was getting the second-to-last room on the property, which is pretty amazing. So good thing that uh, I had that room blocked off. So the maintenance man knocked on the door. I happened to be texting Brandon at the time, and I actually texted Brandon that this was happening and then texted that the maintenance man was coming and this will become significant later. So the maintenance man comes in and I showed him what was wrong. He brought his plunger in, he unplugged, unclogged the toilet, so that's good. Then he went on to the sink and he said, oh yeah, yeah, this drain isn't sitting right. This needs an adjustment. So he had to actually go under the sink and make an adjustment so the stopper of the drain could sit up because otherwise it was slipping down almost all the way and there was no way to push it up without him making this uh, mechanical adjustment there. And once he did that, then it was uh, high enough to where the water could drain normally. He demonstrated it to me. I said, okay, thank you. So didn't take very long and he did an efficient job and he did what I needed and that seemed to be that. So kind of a pain in the ass to get here in that for more than a day, I didn't have a sink that drained right, and then for part of a day, the toilet was clogged. But at least now it was fixed. So I'm not of a status at any properties anymore in Vegas. I still have people messaging me, hey, can you get me a room in Vegas for such and such dates? I go, no, 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 no. (laughs) I can't get myself a room in Vegas for such and such dates. I have no status anymore anywhere. So at this property I was staying, I was actually paying a resort fee which I knew and I was expecting. So that wasn't a shock to me, and I'm not complaining about that. But I got stuck paying resort fee because I I have no status anywhere right now in Vegas, which, as I said, sucks, but uh, that's the way it is right now. So, and if you're wondering how this happened, it's mainly because of COVID, because I just wasn't there enough to play and earn it. But I thought about the resort fee, and I thought about my own advice I gave people in the past on this show. I told people that you can get out of resort fees by bringing up any kind of 
maintenance problem the room had. And I said, don't make one up. Don't lie to them. But if there is a legitimate maintenance problem in the room, which inconvenienced you, then definitely mention it at checkout and they will sometimes remove some or all of the resort fee. That can be used as like a peace offering to give you. And keep in mind, this is the first time I've ever paid a resort fee at this particular property because I I had a status prior to that to where I wouldn't have to pay it. Just because of this technicality, I'm not that status anymore, now I have to pay it. So I thought, okay, I'm going to use my own advice, and I'm going to tell them the true story of what happened. That number one, this drain thing was something that should have not happened in the first place. It's not like it occurred while I was there. It occurred before I was there, and the maid should have seen it when she was cleaning, and she obviously didn't really clean the sink because it was impossible to clean the sink in a sink that will barely drain. So she must have not cleaned the sink, and that's kind of gross in the first place. And then the second thing is that I had a drain that just didn't work until I could get the maintenance man up there, and this is something that should have been noticed and taken care of a long time ago. And then second, the toilet clogged, which sucks. And because you guys are short-staffed on maintenance, I had to wait uh, time with that because that first night you had 50 jobs ahead of mine. So yeah, so I told them the whole story. And uh, I expected that they would look this up, see that the maintenance man came, see the report of what was done, and take off the resort fee. I had three nights at this hotel And I thought they'd take it off for at least two of the nights because it affected two of the nights. That's what I was hoping for there. So the front desk guy who was uh, kind of snooty and arrogant, probably again because I didn't have the status anymore there, he looks at this and says, hmm, I don't see it. I said, what do you mean you don't see it? He says, I don't see the maintenance request. I said, well, a maintenance guy came up there and he, he did this. I'm sorry, sir. I don't see that. I go, well, do you see a log of the phone calls? He says, no, I don't see that either. I'm looking. I don't see any call for maintenance request. I said, well, do you see any calls? He says, when was this? So I told him when. And in fact, I was able to get the exact time because remember, I was texting with Brandon and telling him about this. And I remember texting him right before, like minutes before the guy came and knocked on the door. So I was able to look up that exact time on my phone from when I was texting with Brandon. And I offered to show the guy the text. I said, look, I was texting with my friend here the night this was going on and actually talking about this. Well, the guy wasn't interested in seeing it. All he kept telling me is that he cannot find any record of this. So then I said, I can describe the maintenance man. I'll describe him to you. And I started to describe him. And I said, how about you call the maintenance man and ask if he remembers the job? He might or may not because uh, it wasn't a really, really unusual job, but he did have to do two things. And maybe he'll remember it. And no, we're not going to do that. So I had this very frustrating conversation with him there, with this guy in the front, who's telling me he can't do anything for me because they can't verify it. But anything I was offering for him to do to verify it, he would say back to me, oh, no, no, we don't need to do that. It's not that I don't believe you. (laughs) So I said, wait a minute. If you believe me, then do something for me. He says, okay, I've done something. I've taken off one night. I said, no, but this affected two nights. I'm sorry, sir. We can't verify this at all. So the best I can do for you is one night as a courtesy. I said, but I can prove it to you. Let me prove it. Oh, no, no, you don't need to prove it. I believe you. But then why won't you give me two nights? Well, because we can't verify it. (laughs) I'm going, what? If you believe me, you don't need to verify it. And if you don't know if you can believe me, then let me prove it to you. 
then take the steps to verify it if you need to, or take my word for it. You can't give me half as much credit as I'm asking for as you otherwise would give because you can't verify it. Well, sir, I didn't say that you would get two nights. I'm saying we can't even consider two nights if we can't verify it. I said, but I'm willing to wait for you to look into these things and to verify it. Oh, no, we don't need to do that, sir. (laughs) So we went around in circles, around and around and around. I whipped out my phone. I showed him the text with Brandon. He wasn't impressed. Look, I already gave you a credit as a courtesy, he told me. That's all I can do for you is one night's resort fee. I just, you know, this really happened here. I really was given a room that they didn't clean the sink. It was impossible. It was physically impossible to have cleaned that sink. And they didn't unclog it when they should have before I got there. So this is, this is textbook take off the resort fee. I had the smoking gun proof they didn't clean the damn sink. All I had to do is get them to believe the maintenance guy really came there. So I asked him, what do I need to do? So when the maintenance guy comes, should I record him next time? Should I take a video of the maintenance guy cleaning the toilet? And and should I take a video of the maintenance guy plunging the toilet? Is that what I need to do here? And he says, no, that's not necessary. I said, well, then how do I prove it? He says, sir, we have a log of every single call that is made from your room, and we don't see that you made it. So... We really are not supposed to give you anything under such a circumstance, but I'm doing you a favor and I'm giving you one night. And I just, I, I said, okay, I, I can't take this anymore. Can you please get a manager for me? He says, okay. So he picks up the phone. He calls up. Someone answers on the other end. He tells the guy what I'm saying. The guy on the other end is telling him something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah, all right. I'll tell him it. Okay, thank you, goodbye. And hangs up. I'm like, uh, what? Uh, what is the manager coming? Uh, no, he told you. He told me we can't do any more than one night for you because we can't verify it. I said that's not what I was asking for. I wasn't asking for you to plead my case to the manager. I asked to speak to the manager, sir. I just spoke to him. I told him everything you told me, and he has told me to give you the message that we can't give you any more. So that's all. And by the way, if if. You're wondering why I'm doing kind of like an effeminate voice for him. That's uh, the way the guy sounded. I don't know if he was gay or not. He may have been, but that's how he sounded. If you're trying to picture this in your head. So I said to him, look, again, I asked to speak to the manager. Well, he's going to tell you the same thing as I'm telling you. He already told me to tell you. I go, no, no, I'd like to speak in my own words to him. Can you please bring him out? (sighs) Okay. So he picks up the phone, calls up. This time, sits, 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 and waits. And I'm just sitting here, and time's ticking away. And I just want to be done with this. And so finally, after the guy sitting there for a while, I said, hey, how about you just go to the back there and ask the guy to come out? Like, uh, isn't there a manager in the back? Because there's a door there right by the front desk, as there is in most of these major hotels' front desks. I said, can't you just go back there and ask a manager to come? Oh, no, that's who I'm on the phone with, he tells me. And I said, well, right, so... This guy's not picking up. Obviously, uh, can you go back there and get him? No, no, he's he's on the call, so I'm waiting for him to get off the call, so there's no point for me to go back there. So you said you wanted to speak to him, so that's a wait. So I stand, I stand, I wait, I wait, I wait. I'm wondering how long I'll wait here. Well, finally the manager comes on the phone. He says, yeah, 
He wants you to come out and speak to him. Yes, yes, I know. I told him that. Yeah, I know. I told him everything, but he insists to speak to you. He just won't take no for an answer. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the way he's being. I, I can't control it. He really, he says he needs to talk to you or he's not going to leave. So what can I do? He's saying this right in front of me, this guy at the front desk. Okay, okay. And then he hands me the phone. So still the guy doesn't come out. Now the guy's going to talk to me. But okay, fine. I'll talk on the phone. So he hands me the phone. And I tell this manager why that I feel I should get two nights of the three of the resort credit taken off because this affected two nights because there's two different things because it's gross, especially in the age of COVID to have a non-cleaned sink. He said, this isn't proof that the sink wasn't cleaned because otherwise I would have seen uh, soap scum. And uh, if if I couldn't see visible soap scum, then uh, it's very possible that they clean the sink and I just don't realize it. (laughs) And I said, what are you talking about? If the water will not drain, if it drains super, super slowly, it is impossible to clean anything because anything you clean is going to get stuck in that water and is going to end up as residue on the sink. The only way that it can get clean is if there's flowing water which goes down the drain quickly. If it's something that's going to sit long enough to leave a residue, then there's no way. Well, did you see soap scum? I go, I don't care if I saw soap scum. It obviously wasn't clean. Obviously, the maid must have seen what happened, didn't feel like reporting it, and probably just wiped it down quickly so there's no visible dirt and left it. I said, come on here. They've got so many rooms to clean, they probably don't want to hassle with it. I said, obviously, this has been a problem for a long time because the maintenance man verified that the thing just wasn't set right and needed an adjustment. And he said, well, sir, I have been checking and... I do not see any calls. I said, well, what do you mean you don't see any calls? The whole night? Sir, I looked and there's not a single call from your room for your entire three-day stay. Now, that's untrue because I called about other things. Not complaints, but I called to ask about things. I I, I made several calls from the room over that three-day period, including about the sink and including about this uh, toilet, but also about other things that I was just asking about, he said they have a log of every single call and that it shows zero calls from my room in the entire three-day period, nor do they see any kind of maintenance logs for my room. So I guess I just imagined the maintenance man coming to my door with the plunger, plunging the toilet, adjusting the sink, and leaving, and suddenly everything's working. I guess the plumber fairy actually came to my room and fixed all of this without a maintenance request. Or maybe I just imagined that these problems happened. Maybe the toilet never got clogged. Maybe that's a hallucination. Maybe I dreamed that the sink wouldn't drain. In fact, maybe I was just delusional because I had just driven five hours in the middle of the night through the desert. And I got to the room and the sink did not drain because I was fearing it wouldn't drain, but in reality it was draining, but I just saw something different because I was fearing that. Maybe that's what happened. I didn't say that, but how absurd is this? The freaking maintenance man came. I could describe him. I told them to call him and ask. I said, there must be something screwy with your system that it's just not logging anything. I'm sorry, sir, the manager said to me. 
There's nothing wrong with our system. There were no calls from your room. We're doing you a favor, and we're giving you one night. Again, not one night of a comp stay, but one night of no resort fee. So then a light bulb popped on top of my head. I said, ah, you know what? We can solve this whole thing. You said there's not one call logged from my room, right? He said, yes. I said, okay, how about you come out and we go up to the room together and we make a test call and then we come downstairs and we see if it logged. Oh, no, sir, that's not necessary. I go, why not? Well, I'm not saying I don't believe you. I go, ah, so you do believe me. Well, we just can't verify. I go, I'm, I'm offering to verify it. Let's go up to the room together. Let's make a test call from the room and let's see if it logged. And if it doesn't log, then obviously I'm right that I made calls and it's just not logging properly. <sighs> okay, sir, fine. I will give you the two nights, he says to me. So the manager gave me the two nights very reluctantly and let me know that this is a one-time courtesy for me because they have no record of this. And I said, okay, well, don't worry. Next time the maintenance man comes, I'll make sure to record his every move and I'll make sure I'll get every plunge on my phone recorded and all ready for verification. <laughs> I mean, can you believe this shit? Now, I don't think they're lying to me. I think there really was some kind of glitch in the system, and for some reason it logged nothing for my room. Isn't that weird? So because I didn't record the freaking maintenance man there, they were actually refusing to take off the second night's resort fee and acted like giving me one as a favor. At one point, they tried to lie to me and say, oh, no, no, we would have never given more than one even if we could verify it. But they backed away from that pretty quickly. I said, well, it affected two nights. Well, yeah, but we can't verify this happened at all. So we were back to the... We can't verify this. And something I've always hated is when a business tells you, well, we can't do this for you because we can't prove it happened. And I say, oh, no, no, I can prove it. Here's how. Oh, no, 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 we believe you. And I go, okay, well, then do such and such for me. Oh, no, because we can't verify it. No such thing as that. Either you believe the person and you do whatever you would do if you could verify it, or if you don't believe him or it's questionable, then you take steps to verify it. There's no such thing of, we believe you, but we're doing less for you because there's no verification. Uh-uh. But nobody was getting that there. Now, I believe this probably happened in part. I'm talking about the bad customer service, not the glitch in the system. I think this happened in part because I don't have a status there anymore. Because I noticed a very different treatment. I noticed they were like almost like looking down on me, which I... Even in issues I've had in Vegas hotels before... When I have a status, I just notice that even if there's a problem, I'm talked to differently than if I don't have a status. In fact, I had that story from the Cosmo years ago. This didn't happen to the Cosmo here, but I have a story from the Cosmo years ago, which I've told before, where I walked into the wrong room and they didn't realize I was a top-tier card and they treated me totally differently than if I was a top-tier card. And it was a very interesting contrast. I mean, it's not a new thing that they treat you better in Vegas if you have status. But like, I'm just, there's just common sense here. They didn't clean my freaking sink. And they know it. Because they didn't adjust the drain there that wasn't allowing the sink to have the stopper open enough to drain. And I have the smoking gun because they actually had to do a mechanical adjustment to make it stay up. So it didn't just happen. 
So once the guest can show that, then give the damn resort fee off. Especially it was expensive nights there because of the Grammys, which I didn't have comped. So it's not like I was walking out paying nothing. And if you have an issue with your system where you can't verify it, then take the steps to let the customer prove it to you. But they just want to say no and make me go away. It's funny because I wasn't even going to try to find a way out of the resort fee until like, I thought about it near the end of the stay. At first, I'm like, oh, this is just a pain in my ass. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I'm paying a resort fee this time. Okay, well, I'm going to ask for that back. So anyway, as much as I hate to say it, since they are counting on everything being logged automatically by the system, I really do think you should quickly record something. I don't mean you should stand there in front of the plumber with uh, his butt crack out as he's plunging the toilet or crawling under the sink and record him. That will be weird. But I mean just uh, kind of quietly record the action there, even if while the guy has his back turned, just quickly take a picture of him there or take a five-second video of him there. And so this way, if they deny it, you can show it. I really think I'm going to do that next time because they just lost all the records of any phone call and any maintenance requests. Just my account is blanked out and they didn't believe me because really I think what they were treating me like is some low status guy there that's trying to make up stories to get money off his bill. And they were too lazy to put the work in to verify it, but they didn't want to give anything to me because they probably thought that I knew they were too lazy to verify it and they, they didn't want to give in to me in case I was making it up. They're thinking, what's the chances that this guy actually had a maintenance request and it's not showing up here? I mean, it's all in the system, right? System never makes mistakes, right? And I swear to you guys, I'm not making this up. In fact, you can ask Brandon. For those of you that talked to Brandon, ask him if I was texting him one of those nights about how my toilet was clogged and my sink wasn't working. I freaking hate plumbing problems in hotels if there's only one sink and or one toilet. If there's an alternate, then fine. If there's two toilets, fine. If there's two sinks, fine. Like at the Rio, there's two sinks at least. And I have had it where one sink has an issues. And, and, and I go, okay, okay, you know what? All right, all right. I will just use the other sink. They're very close to one another. Yeah, I'd prefer they both work, but it's not the end of the world if I just avoid one of the sinks and use the one that works. And I've done that before. I've had like five-day stays at the Rio where I don't ever have them fix the bad sink because there's one good sink and I'm only one person. So who cares? But when there's one sink total and it doesn't drain, it's so tilting. I hate that. And there's no excuse for it. The maid should catch that and report it. The toilet, at least you can say, well, you don't know what's going to clog until it clogs. They can't look into the future that the toilet's going to get clogged. But the sink, when it doesn't drain, that should be known the whole time. That's so tilting to come to. And I brought it up to Brandon when I saw him. And he's like, yeah, I hate that too. <laughs> it also tilts him. I don't know how you guys feel, but I, I just hate the sinks that won't drain when there's one sink in the hotel. So I got my two resort fees off, but boy, was it a lot more effort than it should have been. Okay, so let's talk about someone that I wish we could flush down a toilet. That is Annie Duke. Annie Duke is back in the news because she is getting credibility once again for being an expert and someone that you should respect. And she really is just like a charlatan. Annie Duke 
identifies herself, and I guess accurately, as a retired professional poker player. She was a professional poker player at one point, and she is retired, so that is true. But she has since moved on to public speaking and to being an author. And basically her entire routine is, I'm this super smart and logical person who used this intelligence and logic to crush the game of poker for years. And now I'm going to bring this to the rest of you in the business world so you can learn how to apply this sort of logical thinking to improve your own lives and your own business. So it's basically think like a successful poker player to succeed in other areas of life. Now, there are are some elements to that which are true, that you can use some lessons from poker to improve your life if you apply them properly. Now, some people do the opposite. Some people take bad habits they develop in poker and then apply it to their life, such as a cavalier attitude about money, where they just get ripped off and bad value all over the place because they figure, hey, it's just one bet, and then it adds up, and then they're broke one day. So, That's an example of applying something you learn at the poker table in a bad way. But there are decisions that successful poker players make every day at the tables, which you then can apply to aspects of your life that have nothing to do with poker that can make your life either easier, happier, or more efficient. And these type of things are uh, calculations regarding success, These involve bluffing, where you will make some kind of bluff to make something happen for yourself. And I'm not saying being a liar. I'm talking about uh, being willing to bluff about something that you're not really going to do. Like, uh, talk about how you're going to walk away and not continue utilizing that business unless they do such and such for you. Or solve such and such problem, when in reality, you're you're not going to walk away. Uh, So you can... Learn some of these lessons from poker, when to bluff, when not to bluff, when you look strong, when you look weak, when your opponent looks weak. Uh, Bankroll management's a big one. Risk-reward. There's a lot of lessons you can take from the poker table, especially as a successful pro who masters these concepts, and use them in real life, and I've done that myself. And Annie talks about that in her public speeches and in the book she's written and all that. and Some of it, you know, is is valid, but some of it is pretty much saying the same thing over and over and over and over again in different ways. So you read like a 100-page book and you've learned one thing. And that's been my big criticism of what she's bringing to the table. Is she's bringing a very simple message that's told a 100 different ways. Second is that She was very bad to the poker community. Not only was she an apologist for UB that she owned a piece of, and she profited profited from very, very much, and would not speak out against them during the cheating scandals, would not sell off her portion and leave. And if that wasn't bad enough, prior to her involvement with UB, she treated a lot of people at the poker tables very poorly including Daniel Negreanu before he was a famous player. And 
the last thing she did before finally leaving the community was, of course, co-founding the Epic Fail Poker League and promising a million-dollar free roll for the points leaders at the end of the year, which they never delivered. However, she and co-founder Jeffrey Pollock paid themselves nice 300-plus K salaries that they never gave back. That was her final kick in the ass to the poker world. So she's very unpopular in poker these days, and rightfully so. And of course, none of these incidents are ever discussed. The way she portrays herself to the outside community is that of a very respected former female poker pro that crushed it at the tables and that everyone looked up to. She doesn't talk about at all how she fucked over the community in various ways and was very unpleasant. And she was very unpleasant to me when I've played with her on more than one occasion. And not because of anything I'd been saying about her on forums or social media. This is before that. I was once berated by her at an event when I was short-stacked, went all in with A7 offsuit, and I was the first one in the pot, so I didn't cold call a raise or a three bet. I, I was the first one in with A7 offsuit with a short stack. She then went over the top with Ace Queen. I flopped a seven. Nothing else changed, and I doubled off of her. And she berated me about going all in with A7, which was not even incorrect. But she berated me because she was bitter that the Ace Queen lost to A7. Not even a huge pot because I was short stacked. It was just me and her. But boy, was she mad about the A7. And then. Not too long after that, I'm at the World Series with her, and uh, she's not happy with the way I'm folding my cards. She's afraid that uh, I'm folding my cards too high and people can see possibly what was on the cards. I I don't know if that was true, uh, but she could have been a lot more polite. What I get from her was, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, uh, C3, C3, hello, C3, hello, excuse me, Um, I don't know who you are, but I can see your cards when you're folding, so I'd appreciate if you don't do that. Like, that's really the way she said it to me. And she said, I don't know who you are, but... And I got this, excuse me, excuse me. Not just, hey, uh, hey excuse me over C3, uh, just watch when you're folding your cards, it's a little bit high and people might be able to see. Like, that happens all the time. People will warn each other and that's that. But, no, I got the condescending speech. I got to experience some of the Annie Duke unpleasantry. And Negranu had a ton of these stories. And I believe them. So she's not liked at all. And then she goes around using her time in poker as a springboard for people to listen to her. Because this is not someone who happened to move on to other things and is just pretending she was never a poker player. And we have people like that, too, who barely ever mentioned their time in poker because it was kind of disgraceful. One of them is like uh, Hasib Qureshi. We've talked about him and all his antics and all the bullshit he did. And he now does a bunch of other things. But he doesn't mention poker very often. Once in a while, you know, he'll throw it in there in his bio, but he doesn't focus on the poker anymore. He's moved on to other things and tries to run away from it. But that's not what Annie does. Annie is the, quote, former professional poker player who's going to bring her poker wisdom to you and how you can use this to improve your life. Now, we've talked about this before. I've played some of these podcasts she's been guests on and some speeches she's made, and we've laughed at them. But why are we talking about this again? Well... April 5th, 2022, a tweet from a man named Josh Koppelman. Is he someone in poker? No, he is not in poker. 
So who is he? He has a blue check mark on Twitter. He has 148,000 followers. He is listed as father, husband, VC, meaning venture capital, geek, dad joke lover, INTJ, referring to the personality type, partner at first round, which we'll explain in a second, board chairman at Philly Inquirer. And then he has a link to firstround.com. He's been part of Twitter all the way since uh, July 2006. He's been around for a long time on Twitter since near the very beginning. Actually, May 2006. Wow. As I said, 148K followers. But here is what uh, he said. I first heard Annie Duke on a podcast, read her book, and begged her to meet. Now, after three plus years of working together behind the scenes to refine our decision making... I am pleased to announce that she's first round's special partner for decision science. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Special partner for decision science. (laughs) Annie has helped us refine our pre and post pitch discussion and decision making processes, creating decision making rubrics, reducing bias and improving data collection. The impact on our ability to evaluate past decisions and make better ones in the future is already clear. This is someone who made all the wrong decisions in poker time after time. I'm not meaning at the table. Though I, had, I, I witnessed that too. I watched her just tilt off a huge stack in the event where I finished third in 05. She was the chip leader and just tilted the whole thing off after taking a few beats. But forget that. I mean, she, I'm talking about off the felt stuff. She made wrong decision after wrong decision. In addition to her decision hygiene support for the first round team, I'm even more excited about how Annie's role will expand to support the founders we back, using her expertise to help them to make the very best possible decisions as they build incredible companies. Yeah, her decision hygiene, like, you know, the photo of her sitting there at the poker table with her ass crack out that was dirty because she didn't wipe. They're actually having her advise on hygiene. I know it's not the same kind of hygiene, but of all things, have you seen that picture? You can still find it. In fact, she had a stupid tattoo that says, say yes if never asked, which is really weird. Or say yes if nobody asked was the tattoo. What? How can you say yes if something is not asked? But... So you can Google Annie Duke say yes if nobody asked or just butt crack. You could do Annie Duke butt crack and you'll find the pictures all over the web. And it really is a picture of Annie Duke sitting at the poker table with a dirty ass. And and she's entitled of decision hygiene. (laughs) Okay, okay. So uh, for a preview of the decision making advice she shares with founders, check out our article on the review. So much here from Mental Models for improving decision hygiene, back to the decision hygiene again, whatever that is, to frameworks for navigating hiring, firing, and bet the company decisions. Oh yeah, she did bet the company, like the Epic Poker League with its million dollar free roll that enticed everyone to play that never happened. Yeah, she bet the company and she lost. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, fine, Mr. Koppelman. Fine. I will take a look at this article that you're recommending. So let's do that first. This is on uh, review.firstround.com. And we'll get 
to in a second what first round is. I know you're probably wondering what is first round. You're slogging your way through an uncertain system and outcomes and decisions are loosely linked and there's so much hidden information. Annie Duke was talking about poker, but this quote is just as apt for the game of startups. Ah, see, there we go. So you're making decisions based upon information that's only partial. See, folks, you can apply that from poker to the business world. Oh, my God. Let's see if we can say this 200 different ways. Here we go. No matter if you're on the founder's or investor's side of the table, startups look a lot like poker. They both involve big gambles. Ha-ha. The kind where it's unclear whether you'll end up with a winning hand or a bad beat story because the cards just didn't go your way. Ah, I love the cliches. There's also a series of small decisions that need to be made at lightning-fast pace and a need to keep close tabs on your competitors while not getting knocked off your own game. And if you're forced to fold, you're wondering if it was doomed from the outset or if poor execution and unforeseen forces played a role. Uncertainty swirls whenever luck plays a big hand in the outcome. And when there's so much information players don't and can't possibly hope to know, people often resort to relying on track records, gut feelings, and instincts. Without a solid decision process in place, founders and poker players alike risk amplifying the cognitive biases that frustrate all of our decisions. One such bias is what Duke calls resulting, a human impulse to equate the quality of a decision with the quality of outcome. By the way, that's called results-oriented thinking, not resulting. I have yet to come across someone who doesn't identify their best and worst results rather than their best and worst decisions, she wrote in her best-selling book, Thinking in Bets. And by the way, that's the exact book I'm talking about where she just said the same thing over and over and over again in different ways and thinks she's profound. Resulting was one of many concepts that resonated with first-round partner and co-founder Josh Koppelman when he first read the book. It sounds like he's an idiot then. Because someone who is bright and observant would notice that she's saying the same thing repeatedly and has basically one point to make. Intrigued by how we could apply Duke's frameworks to our own work of backing and advising founders who are just getting started, Koppelman got in touch. Okay, so I guess I do have to cover what First Round does. You already probably have an idea. So if you go to firstround.com, you will see that they are a venture capital firm. The front page on their webpage says, we're called first round for a reason. Your first money in is one thing, but so are your first hires, your first product, your first customers. We've helped Notion, I don't know what Notion is, Roblox, Uber, Square, and 300 others tackle these firsts and more. Whether it's pre-seed, seed, or series A, regarding the funding of uh, startups, by the way. We're building the world's best product for founders who are just getting started. If you go click on philosophy, it says, to all the founders wondering what makes us different, browse around a few VC, meaning venture capital websites these days, and you'll notice they all start to sound the same. Kind of like Annie Duke. They all say we partner with remarkable founders. We believe in the power of technology to change the world. We back exceptional companies from the very start. But that hasn't always been the case. When we started first round over 15 years ago, seed stage investing wasn't yet a thing, and most doubted it would stick around. Founders turned investors were oddballs, and a platform team that provided services beyond the check was a new idea. These days, a platform team is table stakes. Ah, see a poker reference again. 
Every VC out there promises access to individuals and networks that set up founders for success. Even multi-stage and mega growth firms now dabble in seed stage investing, backing companies that are no more than a couple of people with an idea. But talk with a few first round founders and they'll tell you how we're different. They'll tell you how we how hard and lonely the startup journey can be and how we've helped them evolve from a great founder to a great CEO. They explain how we equip them to build a better company by focusing exclusively on those first couple of years, in part because we're not simply an option to lead, their, lead to their Series A or B. They'll tell you that we believe in working sessions when you're just getting started, jam sessions, come on, jam sessions, where we go deep on a topic instead of stuffy board meetings, that their first round partner is the first person they'll text and call, their coach in the corner, and the kick in the ass when they need it the most. They'll mention that while community gets thrown around a lot these days, our efforts to connect founders across first-round companies have built them their most valuable set of peers. They'll tell you that our founders retreat, a founders retreat, they have a picture of it too. They're like hiking and crossing over streams. Very cute. They'll tell you that our founder retreat was the most valuable professional event I've ever been to, hands down, that this group of their peers not only helps them ta- tackle tactical topics, but also provides a sense of belonging. And there's a lot more, but I'm not going to read it. At the end, it says, heck, it's hard to explain how we're different when every VC says exactly the same thing. Lucky for us, founders don't say the same thing about every VC. Sincerely, team first round. There's a lot I skipped, but you kind of get the point. So this is a VC firm, and they claim that they basically prepare your entire startup for the early years, not just how to get funding. They're saying they do a lot more for you. And uh, if you click on the team link, it says, we have your back. We're founders and tech junkies, your first call, the coach in the corner, and a kick in the ass when you need it most. Yeah, they already said that. We don't split... We don't split angel seed and pre-seed into separate categories. We provide support across the board. The earlier we can invest, the more helpful we can be. And then they have a bunch of pictures of the people involved, including now Annie Duke. And that you can click on each one to get the bio. So I clicked on Annie Duke, and it says Annie Duke Special Partner, Decision Science. Annie Duke combines her academic studies and cognitive psychology, which by the way, were ages ago, with real-life decision-making experiences at the poker table to help the first-round team redefine the way in which we make investment decisions, from creating rubrics and implementing systems to reduce bias to improving our data collection so we can conduct retrospective reviews post-decision. Annie also shares her decision science expertise with our community, coaching first-round-backed founders through frameworks to help them get the very best possible decisions as they build incredible companies, whether it's the small decisions that define great products or bet the company strategic gambles. I mean, she's totally the wrong person to do this. So let's go back to the Epic Poker Fail League, or the Epic Fail Poker League, I guess. Let's go back to that. That was a horrible decision the entire way, or shall I say, a series of horrible decisions the entire way. And I can say this because I said that right when it started. I wasn't a Monday morning quarterback bashing it after it failed and ripped everyone off out of that free roll. I said it from Jump Street with the whole thing because it didn't make sense to me. This was when poker was dying, when poker on TV was dying, and when 
poker shows that were on the air and previously successful were going off the air because they couldn't maintain sponsors to make it worth airing them anymore. And then along comes the Epic Fail Poker League, which is supposed to revolutionize everything and bring poker back to TV, but they were not given spots on TV that the networks believed in. They were buying spots on TV, like an infomercial. So they had to spend all this money buying spots on TV, selling their own advertising that couldn't support previous shows that were already popular and somehow show a profit enough to be able to sponsor this million-dollar free roll for these pros that were playing in this Epic Poker League. It didn't make sense to me. They had not demonstrated from anything they did or from anything that was presently happening with other poker shows that this could ever work. It seemed like other poker shows were on a decline and disappearing And that new ones had no chance. And new ones especially had no chance if they had to take all the risk and buy their own expensive airtime and then try to sell ads to break even or better. And on top of that, they had to have a million extra dollars for this free roll. It didn't make any sense to me. It looked like they convinced idiots to invest in it, but that they were quickly going to burn through all that money and they were going to die. And that's exactly what happened. And it didn't help that the founders, Annie Duke and Jeffrey Pollack, were paying themselves over 300 k per year. So it's not even like they were taking just a percentage of the profits. They were paying themselves a salary, which, of course, was never returned. You'd think they could at least return the salaries and use that for the free roll. Nope, they just kept it. So where were the good decisions here? It's not like they tried something that was very promising and it just didn't work out. This was one that had failed written all over it from the start. You want to talk about partial information? We had it. We had the partial information that poker was declining in popularity. We had the partial information that since Black Friday, poker in the U.S. just wasn't getting people's attention anymore. We had the partial information that people were getting burnt out on poker on TV, which had been on since 2003, and the fad was dying, especially hastened by Black Friday. We, we had all this stuff going on together. And we had the partial information that TV networks were deciding that poker was not viable anymore. And therefore, it was not worth using the airtime for them because they could not sell enough lucrative advertising to make it worth their while. So why then would you buy your own spot like an infomercial and then try to sell your own ads when the networks themselves who have far more experience selling ads couldn't get it done. So we had a lot of partial information that this thing was going to be a tremendous fail, but somehow Annie didn't understand that. And the whole thing was a gigantic flop. So it filed for bankruptcy in February 2012, and that was that. And there were a lot of other dumb things. They had a code of conduct requirement in an attempt to like moralize poker where only good people could be at the table. But then they had all kinds of problems that like there were so many different ways that someone could be found to have violated the code of conduct at some point in the past. Like there were so many poker players with skeletons in their closet that they didn't know what to do. And even Howard Lederer, Annie's brother, had a code of conduct issue given what happened to Full Tilt and all the money being stolen. So they actually had to suspend Annie's own brother 
and deny membership to Chris Ferguson. And then there started to be the question, well, what about other sites that crashed? You know, are those people ineligible? And what about people who are accused of scamming in the past or cheating in the past, even if it was a long time ago? Uh, it was a whole mess. Also, Chino Reem, who was notorious for taking loans and never paying them back and knowing he couldn't pay them back. He won the first event in August 2011, and then they had to put him on probation. So that, that was a tremendous mistake. Like, how are you so stupid? Like, I know Annie isn't stupid from a cognitive standpoint. I know she has a high IQ, but from a decision-making standpoint, which she's supposed to be the queen of decision-making here, how do you put a code of conduct requirement in when you know the poker world so well, as she should? She was in the poker world before I was. And I knew very well from my 10 years in poker by that point that the last thing you want to do is put a code of conduct in place where you have to start judging who you're going to suspend based upon their past behavior. It's, it's too hard. Now, it's one thing to keep people out who've been caught red-handed cheating and not let them in the league because that's only a, a finite number of people. But, quote, code of conduct, I mean, there's so many different ways that could force people to be disqualified. So that was another gigantic fail, but that was just one of many parts. Anyway, I'm not going to go into the whole epic poker league disaster, but I was looking at the whole plan and it made no sense. I could not see any path to where it was going to succeed. It wasn't just like I thought it was questionable. I could not understand any path to where it would work. I did not believe they would ever be able to recoup the money they were spending on that TV time through advertising or through rake. It just looked like it was destined to be unprofitable. And it ended up worse than I even I thought it would be. So where were the great decisions here? She had all kinds of partial info and ignored it all. And yet she is the head of the decision-making here now, the special partner for decision science. I mean, is this nonsense or what? In 2014, Annie co-founded the Alliance for Decision Education to build a national movement that empowers teachers, school administrators, and policymakers to bring decision education to every middle and high school student. (laughs) Again, this isn't a horrible idea to try to bring into middle and high school curriculums kind of critical thinking to students to maybe introduce that concept to them so maybe they can keep themselves out of trouble. Teenagers do a lot of stupid things, and if they learn the concept of uh, critical thinking rather than through trial and error and through just the normal path of maturity, if they kind of learn it a bit earlier, maybe they can avoid some mistakes. It's not the worst idea for middle school and high school students to be taught. But she's not the one who should be doing it. It just seems like everything she does is devoid of such decision-making. Annie now spends her time writing, coaching, and speaking on a range of topics as to decision fitness, emotional control, productive design groups, and embracing uncertainty. So you notice it's all the same stuff. This is really someone with one note that's pretending it's a symphony. Her latest book, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, was released in the fall of 2020, and her previous book, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts, is a national bestseller. Her upcoming book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Oh, come on. (laughs) Is this real? Is, Is due out in October of 2022. I can't wait. Just six months away. Six short months from now. 
we can read quit the power of knowing when to walk away. It's all the same thing. How to decide simple tools, making for better choices, thinking in bets, making smarter decisions when you don't have all the information, and quit the power of knowing when to walk away. It's all the same thing. It's saying the exact same thing 200 times in three different books. Really? I'm not exaggerating. It's the same concept. You don't have all the information. Use that information you do have to make the right decision, to think about outcomes, to think about what is the likely result of each decision and how sure you are of it. And use that in all of your decision-making processes. There, I just saved you guys the money in buying these three books. That's all she's saying. Oh, and as far as the quit thing, uh, if it's not working out and every decision you're making is seemingly right, but you're just not succeeding, then walk away. Don't keep throwing good money after bad. There you go. I summarized it all. You learned everything you need to know from Annie. I guess she did have the quit thing down pat because she did walk away from the Epic Poker League, didn't give people the free roll, and kept the money. So she did know when to walk away. I'll give her that. I guess she also knew when to walk away from UB. She collected the maximum money from it and walked away about four months before Black Friday. So yeah, I guess, you know what? I'll give her that. She's good at walking away at the right time to give herself maximum benefit and everybody else maximum pain. Annie Duke is very good at leaving the party just before the bill comes due and the cops arrive and everyone gets busted and everyone's forced to clean up their mess. She's very good at that. She's very good at walking away at the perfect time to benefit herself the most. All right, fine. I will admit she's better at doing that than I am. Than a lot of people. So I guess if you want to learn that skill, then she's the one to teach you. Now, she's a partner in this first round. Remember, they call her a special partner. She's not a consultant. She's a partner. So I have to imagine that she's actually been given some kind of ownership stake there. So let's go back to this original founder of first round, this Josh Koppelman guy. Was he really that impressed by her? I don't know. I have to imagine that Josh Koppelman, who portrays himself as being so tech savvy and having his finger on the pulse of the tech companies that will work and what will not work, that he knows how to use Google. I have to imagine he knows how to Google Annie Duke. I have to imagine that he read a lot of negative things about Annie Duke and her time in poker. I have to imagine he's aware of the epic fail poker league. So why did he hire her? Did he really not Google her name? I think he did. But you see, the general public does not care about these things. The general public is impressed by someone like Annie because she speaks well. She comes off as an intellectual, even though a lot of what she's saying is psychobabble, but she makes herself sound smart and makes herself sound profound. It helps that she's female because there's not as many females doing this sort of thing as there are males. So she's kind of taking on a traditionally male role and yet is not male. And she's coming from a point of success in something that a lot of people 
used to glorify and still somewhat respect, and that is poker. So this is a woman, again, who is the much less common gender in poker. Poker is almost all dudes, and there's only a small percentage of women. That was true then, that's true now. So she was a woman who made it amongst all the boys and won bracelets and won the Tournament of Champions and was a pro poker player and made all this money for herself. And then she just decided she's going to move on and do other things. And she's using her previous research on psychology and all this other stuff she used to study before she dropped out of college. And uh, she's applying this and all her lessons from poker and how to be better at starting your new tech company and making the right decisions. And remember, you're not just hiring her. You're, you're hiring first round. And they have a very large number of people that are shown on this team. Let me go back and count them here. So it looks like about uh, 35 people or something. I'm just guessing here. Yeah, somewhere around 35. So you have this whole team of people, each with their own expertise. So you have the people who are talented at the tech itself, like you have a woman who's a senior software engineer, you have a woman who's a chief of staff, you have a talent and operations analyst. These are all different uh, people that are part of the team there, mostly female, by the way. Uh, another talent analyst, an executive assistant. They're not all partners, though. She's, she's listed as partner. A lot of them are not. A lot of them are just employees, it looks like. Uh, then you have just someone listed as partner, probably one of the founders. Another p- partner, a partnerships analyst. <laughs> what does he do? Analyze the partners? He should have been analyzing Annie. They wouldn't have, hi- they wouldn't have brought her in. Uh, then you have uh, Jared Bloom, the pitch assistant. <laughs> it's not that hard of a job. The guy just shows you how to make your pitch for funding. You have another partner. A lot of partners here. You have another senior talent analyst. You have a controller. Another partner. A CFO. Anyway, you get this whole team of people, a lot of whom are partners, and I don't understand what they're doing for you, but you have this team of 35 people, some of whom bring their own expertise to the table, and Annie's just one of them. So now they have a decisions expert there. And I believe the reason they brought her on is just so it can seem cool. If you go to this firstround.com, the whole point is they're supposed to seem edgy, cool, and kind of modern and innovative. They're not just a team that is trying to get your startup venture venture capital. They're not just a team that might invest in your startup but they're going to help you succeed from the beginning and they have experts to help you. So, wow, they have a decisions expert who brings their unique perspective from poker and their successful career in poker to the business world. Ooh, what other VC firm can do that? None, right? So it's really just for show and they feel she has the credentials to impress these startups that, might consider bringing them into the mix. That's really what this is about. A lot of this is all optics. It's more about what these startups think that a company like First Round can do for them 
rather than what first round really does do for them. Now, am I saying first round is useless and they've never helped anyone? No, I, I have no idea whether they've helped anyone. They very well might have. But it kind of looks like there's some BS and psychobabble cooked into the whole thing, even before Annie joined. Just a, the entire pitch looks really full of a lot of fluff that sounds impressive until you really think about it. I'm looking at the companies that they've worked with. The Roblox thing interests me because if you remember, I've talked about Roblox before on this show and they've made plenty of mistakes themselves. And Benjamin is very interested in Roblox. He loves Roblox. And I've actually played it with him. So I'm familiar with Roblox. I know a lot about it. I'm not a regular player by any means. It's really a game for kids. But because I have a kid and Ben's very interested in it, I learned it myself. And I'm kind of wondering what they did for Roblox. So it says here, it takes a long time to build a transcendent company and you'll often be misunderstood or undervalued along the way. No one understands that journey better than Roblox's Dave Bazuki. As we saw firsthand over 13 years of knowing of, pound, of knowing and partnering with this founder, Dave was always steadfast in his vision to create the metaverse, even when the company wasn't the household name it is today. But see, the, Roblox isn't the metaverse as is referred to today. Roblox was really just a gaming platform. Now, it was the first major gaming platform where the games were all created by third parties, where any user of it can create their own game and actually make money from their own game. But that's not quite the metaverse that's referred to today. So I'm not quite sure what they even did for them. They were talking about what the founder's vision was. By the way, this is a bit off topic, but kind of something sad happened to one of the Roblox founders. Roblox was not created just by this David Bazuki guy, but also by a second guy named Eric Cassell. And uh, Eric Cassell died at an early age, and he didn't get to see Roblox become as successful as it was. He died in 2013, before Roblox was really a household name, he died of cancer, and he was only uh, 46, or 45, actually. So not only is it sad to die at age 45, add someone here, not only is it sad to die by 45, but he never got to see his creation become huge like it was. So that's kind of crappy, but so is cancer. Trader Risky, hello. What's happened to drop... Yeah, we're just mocking Annie Duke here. I I had to wake up to that. I thought it was a nightmare. <laughs> but <laughs> so, what was this? What's the VC firm? I got to see if I'm connected to anybody there. First, this, what this is firstround.com. And that guy's not connected to Brian Koppelman at all, is he? I doubt it. Yeah, Brian Koppelman of Rounders. I think it's just the same name. Okay. I don't see anything so that would enough. indicate that. It just kind of looks like this guy found Annie, or Annie found him, and they're like, oh. That would seem kind of cool to have this decision scientist, a self-proclaimed decision scientist who was once a successful poker player and is a female. Okay, cool. It's kind of not too far from why that Wall Street firm hired Vanessa Selbst to schmooze with potential uh, clients there, not realizing that she had a very off-putting personality. 
And he do kind of has an off-putting personality too, but in a different way. Mm. And I, I will say that at least Vanessa Self didn't scam anybody. So this is much worse. Oh, sure. Yeah, well, I, I don't have much more to say about this. Uh, people, of course, mocked this Josh Koppelman guy, but he didn't really give any answers. And I think it's because he knows. I don't think this guy is so ignorant that he has no idea about her history. And, you know, they probably talked about it, and she says, you know, poker players, they're full of drama, and yeah, we, we started this league, and it was very innovative, and yeah, because of Black Friday, it didn't work out, probably made a bunch of excuses, and yeah, they're bitter about it, and they don't understand the way business works, and they just they come for your head, and they bash you, and, and then there was a company that, that had some cheating that I had nothing to do with, with the cheating, but uh, I was an investor in it, and people blame me for that, too, so these poker players, they, they, yeah, all they understand is poker, they don't understand the way the real world works, and this guy's like, yeah, 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 you know, it makes sense to me. I, I bet it was something like that. And he doesn't give a shit. He just all he wants is someone interesting to add as a partner that could bring in more customers. And he thinks he got that. That's that's really what happened here. So anyone who thinks they're gonna convince this Koppelman guy that Annie Duke is horrible and to separate from her, it's not gonna happen. I mean it, it's fine if you want to mock him and laugh at this whole thing and troll him on Twitter, but it's not gonna change his mind because I'm I'm sure he knows. I'm sure he knows. Moving on here, this is a story that was brought out on Twitter by someone I had a little history with. And I'll tell you about the history, and I will tell you what he's currently alleging. And then I'll tell you why this may be much ado about nothing, even though I was kind of with him at first. But now it's starting to look a little bit questionable. Not that the guy is wrong for bringing this concern up. It may not be as bad as it sounds, but let me tell you the whole thing. Trader Risky, have you heard of Tristan Wade, also known as Creative, who's mostly known as an online player? I have not. Okay. I had heard of him somewhat in the 2000s as a successful online guy, and he did some poker coaching, but didn't know much about him. In the 2010 World Series main event, for the first time I was running deep in it, and it was very exciting. And we were on day six, and I was still alive, and we're well, well, well into the money. We had uh, 7,319 players. We're down to about 200 people. So getting very exciting. Not only am I deep into the money, but the top prize is 10 million bucks. And even just making the final table alone will be uh, a cool... One million dollars. So that was something I was hoping I would get to, but I had some work to do because I had a short stack. I had to get some luck there to make my short stack become larger, at least average. I was hoping to get at least to average and kind of surf the wave of average at the very minimum and get to the final table. Didn't happen, but that's what I was hoping. So here I was, early day six, about 200 left, and sitting in this kind of dim room in the Amazon room and they had all these stupid logos promotional logos on the felt sponsors that the World Series got that made it hard to see chips sometimes on the table so under the gun raised and some guy in middle position cold called well I didn't see the cold call because it was on one of those idiotic logos 
So it gets back to me in the big blind, and to me it looks like the the under-the-gun player raised, and everyone folded to me, so it looks like I'm last to act, and if I fold, the hand's over. So I look down, I see 8-4 offsuit, and I turn over my 8-4 offsuit just to show I'm folding trash. I will do that at tournaments sometimes, and even in cash, to kind of demonstrate to people not to pick on my blind. Because I don't want to give the impression that I have an easy blind to steal. Because it gets harder to play against people that are constantly trying to pull moves on my blind. So I'd rather they think that I'm going to defend than I'm someone who folds all the time. It makes decisions easier when people think you're less predictable. So I don't want people to look at me and go, oh, look at this uh, middle-aged white guy. You know, He's, he's going to be a tight ass and fold everything that's not a fairly good hand in the big blind. I'm just going to steal it every time. So I will turn over things like 8-4 offsuit to show that I'm folding complete trash. Now, I won't turn over every hand I fold, because sometimes I'll fold something that isn't complete trash, but I don't want to play. So under the gun raises, I have 6-4 offsuit, or I have uh, uh, queen-8 offsuit or something. Yeah, a lot, sometimes, depending on who it is, I'll fold it. Queen-7 offsuit, you know, things like that. I don't want to play a no-limit hold'em, uh, especially if it's a situation where my stack is not deep enough to get away from a hand if I flop something, so I will fold those hands and won't show every time. But 8-4 offsuit, most people are folding. So I showed it. That's why I showed it. Well, I didn't realize somebody else was in the hand. So technically, that's against the rules because you're showing your hand before the hand is complete. And right when that happened and it was pointed out to me that someone's still in the hand, I go, oh, sorry about that. I, th- I thought I didn't see he cold called there because of the felt. I'm so sorry. I, I wouldn't have done that. And so everyone understood. Nobody was mad. The two players in the hand were not mad. Everybody said, no, we get it. It's fine. This is a very busy felt. You know, just uh, whatever. It was the first time I did that. It wasn't like I was chronically showing my hand. It was the first time I did that. And I was going to be more careful going forward. So I thought it was over. Very uninteresting situation, it appeared. And very unmemorable. I wouldn't remember it here uh, 12 years later if it were not for what Tristan Wade then did. He was not in the hand. He was at the table. And he said, ah, ah, that's a penalty. That's a penalty. I said, what? That's a penalty. You can't show your hand. I said, no, no, but it was an accident. I thought that guy wasn't it. No, 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 no. It doesn't matter. It's still a penalty. And they called the floor over. I pled my case. And the floor said, well, were there two people in the hand when you exposed it? Well, yes, but I didn't realize. Okay, but were there two people in the hand? Well, yes. And you exposed your cards. Yes? Okay, I got to give you a penalty. I go, but don't you understand it was an accident? No, I know that, but rules are rules. I have to give you a penalty. So I got a 20-minute freaking penalty on day six of the main event short stacked because of this bullshit. And it ate some of my chips. I couldn't afford this with my short stack. Now, I did last several more hours and finished 88th. So it's not like I busted right after I came back, but it definitely ate my chips and it shouldn't have. And Tristan was not in the hand. He shouldn't have gotten involved. It was very petty. He was very stupid. Now, he was very young then. I don't know his age, but he was a lot younger than me. And even I was only uh, 38 at the time. He was somewhere in his 20s. So I guess I can chalk it up to immaturity. When I was sent on the penalty, I let him know what I thought of him as I walked away. And strangely enough, Theo Tran, who is also playing day six at the same time, just minutes before or minutes after me got the exact same penalty for the exact same reason at a different table. Not because of Tristan, of course, but someone 
complained about him exposing his big blind when he thought that everyone had folded. So you see, this was a chronic problem. Within a few minutes of each other, me and Theo both had it, and he was pissed too. And they reported that in Poker News, that it was weird that two of these happened so close together, unrelated. Now, I came after Tristan about this on Twitter at the time, and he apologized a few days later. But I was still pissed. The damage was done. I accepted the apology, but I still kind of stung. And it still stings a little bit 12 years later. You know, like, I don't hate him for this, but it was still inappropriate. Still very petty. But with all that said, I do believe he's a decent guy overall. I do think he's honest. And anything that he tweets that he's concerned about I will take seriously because he does know poker well. He's been around online poker forever. He's a smart guy. And I haven't heard of any scandals involving him. So even though he acted like a jerk there at that event with that petty penalty he called for me, uh, I'm still going to take anything that he tweets that's of concern seriously. And also, as I said, it was 12 years ago, and it's very possible he grew up and wouldn't do this again. So here's what he's claiming happened at a World Series of Poker online event on November 21st, 2021. Remember, the World Series of Poker took place in the fall last year. He said, Speaking more on the issues with WSB.com, I made a final table on November 21st in the 1K online WSOP, and I finished 8th out of 774 players. On the way to the final table, I noticed some suspicious play and behavior from two accounts and reported it was happening. As play went on, these accounts disconnected at the same time, and one of them made the final table. This player then started blinding out of the final table, subsequently as I busted it, never to return. I updated WSOP online support and waited. After numerous emails with support, waiting for an update on what happened, the final response I've gotten is, our poker fraud team have performed an investigation and appropriate actions have been taken. Wait a minute, their poker fraud team? I wasn't involved in this. They actually called it a poker fraud team. Poker space fraud space team, all capitals. I should sue them for copyright infringement. But our poker fraud team have performed an investigation and the appropriate actions have been taken. I asked for more insight in my response. It's been a month. Silence. So that's why he's bringing it out now. It's been uh, slow the whole thing, to say the least. This happened in November. But his last interaction with them was in March and they just stopped answering him. The last thing they told him is that they've investigated it and appropriate actions have been taken. They said, unfortunately, as stated previously, we're unable to reveal any additional information regarding other players and also what actions were taken. Now, Trader Ruski, from what little they told him there, doesn't it sound like something was done? It sounds like there's something behind it. Right, because they could easily say, we received your report, we looked into it, And we saw no behavior here that was breaking the rules or any laws of of either the World Series or the state of Nevada. And uh, therefore, uh, there's no action we can take on your complaint. Thank you for reporting it to us. 
Like that wouldn't be violating anyone's privacy because they're basically saying we don't see anything wrong here, so it's all fine. Like what? Is someone going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You told them it's all fine. It's a violation of my privacy. No. There's nothing in any kind of gaming regulation preventing them from revealing that they've taken no action and that they've found nothing irregular. Now, if they did find something irregular and took action, then it does become a question of how much they can reveal by law, and I'm not exactly sure what the law says about that. So there's not that much commentary I can make on that, and he doesn't exactly know either. But this email highly implies, you never know with WSOP.com because the support staff is not very good, to say the least, and some of it's not even in the U.S. But it really sounds like that somebody that something was done. We've performed our investigation and the appropriate action has been taken. Has been taken. No action, you can't say has been taken. Hey, uh, what did you do today? Oh, uh, I did the appropriate things and the things I needed to do have been done. Oh, what were those? Oh, actually nothing. I did nothing. Well, that wouldn't make any sense, right? When he says something, action's been taken, that means you've done something. So this really sounds like they took some kind of action. So then he pointed out something else. He said, look up the event, referring to on the Hendon mob. The third place finisher is unknown. Why? Why isn't every player identified that cashes in a, an online World Series of Poker event? There's three players who cash that are unknown. No idea if this is relevant, but what were the appropriate actions taken? Regardless, I reported suspicious activity, which support led me to believe rightfully so, and now I'm not getting an update on the results of the findings. I don't know if someone was breaking the rules and their money was confiscated. What happened? Nothing. So now what? Will WSOP.com address the issue? There were other people affected by this, not just me. All of us customers who pay a lot for the company's services. We deserve to know what happened and what has been done about it. At what point has it become an issue for the Nevada Gaming Board? I'm a huge advocate of regulated online poker and typically love the WSB brand, but moments like this make me question who's actually looking after the players. Unfortunately, the poker community knows all too well that we have to do that ourselves. So what's up? And then someone responded saying, message the gaming control board. And he said, I plan on doing so. Thank you. The person who said that doesn't work for WSB.com, but they were advising that he goes to gaming and he said he plans on doing so soon. Well, I looked up this Handed Mod page, and indeed, third place is listed as unknown player, and 32nd is listed as unknown player, and 95th is listed as unknown player. Now, the third and 32nd finishers were both from Germany, which may not be a coincidence, and the 95th place finisher was from Lithuania. Now, if these guys were qualified or were disqualified from che- for uh, cheating, then that would mean 66K roughly was confiscated from the prize pool. I would think this should go back to other finishers. Now, this unknown player doesn't mean they were disqualified, but it could. And now support is ghosting Tristan and won't give him any further answers. So what is happening here? Well, this sounds pretty sinister on the surface. It sounds like three people got disqualified and that they won't tell him that that's what happened. And the... 66K, which may have been confiscated, the fate of that is unknown. So I thought that at first, but 
I've since gotten some clarification here, which, not from WSP, of course, but I've since gotten some clarification for some people reading that thread and noticing my involvement in it when I was commenting on it, that does shed a little bit of light here on the entire situation. First of all, apparently privacy rights in the EU allow people to contact the Hinden mob and get their name changed to unknown player. Now, why would someone do that? Well, there's many reasons. It could be that they're going through a divorce. It could be that uh, they owe people money. It could be that they're afraid they're going to get robbed or extorted for money. I mean, I can't see why you'd want to hide that you've got a 3K min cash, but, you know, maybe someone is. So it is possible someone just doesn't want their name up there. I've even known people that don't want it publicly Googleable that they play poker because it can look bad for their profession, that they, they don't want to be seen as a degenerate gambler. I've, I've heard of that, too. I've actually known people that used to play poker that stopped, or at least uh, stopped playing tournament poker because they didn't want their results listed and having people suspect that they were degenerate gamblers. And these were people who were not degenerate gamblers, but they just didn't want the bad look, so they stopped playing, which I thought was an overreaction, but I, you know, I kind of understand in a way. So whatever it is, you have a right by law in the EU to email Handed Mob and have them change you to unknown player. However, I was provided I was provided a link for the WSOP.com official site, which does show the name of these finishers. And none of these are anyone that's well-known. It's two German guys and a Lithuanian guy I've never heard of before. So that doesn't tell me much, but it does say that this wasn't a change on WSOP's side. So maybe these guys were not disqualified. Also, I received contact from one of the people that believes that Tristan was talking about him. So one of these supposed maybe cheaters actually contacted me today and told his side of the story. Huh, interesting, huh? So I'm not going to say who it is because this person uh, doesn't want that known. But this person said that I can mention that they contacted me and it was someone who was having connection issues and it was someone who made it fairly deep and that probably was one of the people that Tristan was talking about. And he said that he was having a lot of issues with the Rio internet and that it kept disconnecting him and that uh, then he had to try to tether himself to his phone to use his phone connection and then that wasn't very good. So he said that that's what was going on there, that he wasn't colluding with anybody, that there was nobody else in his room, nobody else used his computer and he was not disqualified in any way and that he received payment for his cash and that he's never been banned or disciplined in any way or ever accused of cheating by the World Series of Poker. This person said he also contacted Tristan directly and told the same thing to him. And he said that Tristan did not really refute it, that this was possible. So he said it wasn't even that Tristan said, hey, you're a liar. I don't believe you. You're a cheater. He said Tristan said, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's very possible. That's true. But, you know, my real issue is that WSB.com is not being transparent. Now, 
to Tristan's credit, he didn't name this guy or give any hints as to who it was or who any of the people involved were. But this guy is saying that he knows Tristan was talking about him and he was totally innocent. He was just having connection problems, which I kind of believe. Now, why then, if this guy didn't get any kind of discipline, if he's telling the truth, and if these three guys who were in the EU, if they uh, are only not listed on Hindenmob because they asked to be not listed there for privacy reasons, then why would appropriate action have been taken? Who was it taken against? And you have to wonder that. Now, I will say, in case you track down who the third-place finisher, the 32nd-place finisher, or the 95th-place finisher are, because this is on WSB.com's website, that none of those three people were the ones who contacted me. It was somebody else. That's all I'll say. So it is possible that one or more of these three people were disqualified. And that this person, who was also disconnecting, was unrelated to this whole thing. So maybe there was someone who was having connection issues separate to something shady that was going on, or, and this would be weird, but maybe the connection issues that looked weird to Tristan were actually innocent, but upon looking into the whole tournament, they found other people who were breaking other rules and took action against them. And maybe this third-place finisher who got disqualified, maybe he was disqualified and he asked for his name to be removed for that reason. Maybe it was him and the 32nd-place guy. They both got disqualified and they had their names taken off hand in mob, so if word ever gets out that the third-place finisher was a cheater, that people don't look it up on hand in mob and see who it is. I'm just guessing. It could have been any of these things. It's very possible that third place did nothing wrong and 32nd place did nothing wrong and that uh, people are blaming them for nothing. So what gets me most perplexed about this whole thing is it really sounds like from WSOP.com's wording that something was done to someone for something. So what's going on here? Trader Risky, do you have any comment that you want to make here? I think karma's a bitch. <laughs> For who, though? For WCB.com? For the cheaters, if there were any? Well, no. Well, I, I thought the guy that out that uh, dropped a dime on you got, got oh, screwed. Oh, for no? him. Yeah, well, you know what? Um, I don't know if he got screwed here or not. And I, I don't wish bad things for Tristan Wade. Now, if he got a penalty for something petty, I would kind of laugh at that. I'll admit that. But uh, I don't wish bad things beyond that. And I don't know why he did that. It's not like he was so worried about where I was going to go in the tournament. I was like a short stack among 200 people. I just think he was being petty. I was like, I didn't know what the fuck he was doing. Uh, he actually addressed right. this. He addressed your thing or this? No, he addressed my thing uh, because he saw my post on Poker Fraud Alert because I linked to it. And he apologized again and says he doesn't remember it and he's surprised that he did this and he definitely wouldn't do the same thing today. So it's possible he doesn't remember anymore because it's, it's much more significant to me than to him because he's the one who called it and I'm the one who received it. And I think I believe that 12 years later that he wouldn't act the same way. It, would, it, it was so weird. I, didn't, I, I just couldn't get why he did that. He was like being a stickler for rules for no reason. They, and everybody, every single person at the table, even him, believed it was an accident. He didn't even try to make the case at the time that I was bullshitting. Like, why would I show it otherwise? Why, why would I just choose that time to flash 8-4 offsuit to everybody? 
Like what? It made no logical sense that I would have done this maliciously. Or it's not like it's the fifth time it happened. It was the only time it happened. So, I don't know what to say here, but I will make another comment about WCB.com in general. There is no manager. There's no visible manager. There may be someone managing, but there's no visible manager. Maybe it's that girl, uh, I'm forgetting her name now because she's so not visible, but the one who kind of took over when Bill Reaney left and she also didn't want to be the public-facing manager. And there, there really is no known visible manager that you can go to who's in charge there. It's just always, quote, support. That's it. Since Bill Reaney left, that's it. And I think Bill Reaney scared everybody who worked there because he was someone who couldn't handle criticism, either of him or WSP.com itself. And he was very passive-aggressive, and he blocked people, and he just kind of hid away from everybody and didn't want to do his job whenever he was criticized or the site was criticized, and he just couldn't take it. So he probably complained to everybody in the office that this job is terrible, that trolls constantly harass you on social media. And by the way, it wasn't trolls. The people that were complaining most, mostly were in the right. Mostly they had very legitimate complaints and were doing so respectfully. He just couldn't take it. And I've talked about that before. But I think he probably scared everyone in the, in the office that if they take over his job and become the public-facing manager, that they are going to get just raked over the coals on Twitter. So probably everybody was afraid to take that position. And so now they're all hiding from being the public-facing manager, and then there's no one to go to about this. Imagine having a site as large as WSB.com, and it's trying to grow. Imagine having that, and with no public-facing manager that players can go to. It's crazy. So you got to just email support and hope for the best. Get someone in a foreign country. It's nuts. They can't find one person in that whole office even for extra money, who's willing to say, I am the manager, come to me? I swear, if I lived in Vegas now, if I still lived in Vegas, I would go to Ty Stewart's office. I would say, this is insane. It needs to have a public-facing manager who's empowered to solve things and listen to people. I will volunteer. Make me the manager. People can abuse me on Twitter. It's fine. I get bashed on Twitter anyway, so I'm used to it. I get bashed on my own forum. I'm used to it. So make me the manager. Seriously. Like... Find someone who's willing to be the manager and take criticism on Twitter. It's not that hard. And interact with people and listen to their concerns. Now, I realize that they are governed by laws established by Nevada Gaming and can't just do what they want. So if there's certain things they can't reveal due to state law, then there's certain things they can't reveal. And then they can point people to this law and to these gaming regulations and say, this is why we can't reveal it. We'll tell you as much as we can. Like, all people want is to make sure WSOP.com is listening and telling them the maximum that they're allowed to know. If the law prohibits more than that, well, then your issue is with the state of Nevada and not with WSOP.com. And poker players are smart enough to know that, especially pros. But just to not want to say anything more than appropriate actions were taken and then ghosting the person complaining, that's not the right way to handle it. At the very least, say, we're not going to respond to future emails due to such and such regulation of Nevada gaming. We cannot tell you such and such for such and such reason. Like, like tell him. Don't just stop responding after strongly implying that something was done. 
So who knows what happened here? It's very possible nothing happened and nothing was found. And it's just an idiot who didn't want to give away whether something was done. Because they're afraid that giving away whether something was done or not done can then be used for people to deduce information. So maybe they're afraid that if they tell people that nothing was done in some cases, that if they don't say nothing was done, in other cases, people could deduce something was done and then figure out that something happened. But, you know, privacy rights only go so far. And if there's no hints given as to what occurred, there's no way this could be a violation of regulations. But if it is, they should say so. They should quote the regulation and explain why. But communication has always been terrible from WZB.com. By the way, remember we had the reigning at the time, not reigning, but the leaderboard, uh, the, the person who was first placed on the leaderboard for player of the year last year, and he was being unfairly banned from Caesar's properties over a misunderstanding. And even though he got unbanned from WZB.com, which caused the whole thing, that he still wasn't unbanned from Caesars and his whole mess, and I gave him some advice here. And he, he got himself unbanned, and he eventually did become player of the year. Talking about that uh, Brock Lesnar player, and that, of course, is not his real name, but that was his screen name on WSOP.com. We, we had him on here. But recently, he's actually been complaining about WSOP.com being a ghost town. This is Mike Holtz the player of the year last year. And just recently he's been complaining it's a ghost town and that basically they don't listen to the players and he wants it to succeed, but that it's just, they ignore everything and everyone. This is their freaking player of the year saying that they're awful. I mean, is that embarrassing or what? So I guess finally someone called him and had some discussions with him, but they need a public facing manager who can take care of these things. And this is the type of thing that happens when they don't have it. Moving to more local news, at least local to me, the Bicycle Casino, which is presently not only the most active card room in the L.A. area, but I believe the most active card room in the world, has been sold and is going to be changing its name. The Bicycle has had some good things and bad things lately. On the good side, they did what seemed like the impossible and took Commerce's limit poker action. So all the middle and upper stakes limit games have moved over there, both Hold'em and Mixed. And also, some of the bigger no-limit games have moved over there. So really, all the middle and high-stakes action in L.A. has, has pretty much gone to the bike. There's a little elsewhere, but Commerce is the shell of its former self and that big high-limit room they built in 2002 is now used for California gaming and not even poker anymore, which is pretty sad. And Have you played at the bike much, uh, Drew? Not much, but I did play there a few weeks ago. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, I played there probably twice. I was always Hustler or Commerce for me, but yeah, my friend Jonathan went there, and I wonder if he was a big part of pulling players over. Hmm, that's, that's I, think, good... I think he works there now because he was kind of running the limit. Oh, games, I, I think, think I know who he is. Is he an Asian guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I know who it is. I know who he uh, is. I, I I met him. So, uh, yeah, the bike did get the limit players over there. They took Commerce's action, and 
I believe they have the most average tables running of, of any card room in the world presently. There's not a super dominant leader like Commerce used to be, but I do believe they're the leader. And from that standpoint, they've done well. They have had some scandals over the years. They've been fined for turning a blind eye to money laundering. In fact, a lot of money laundering in the mid-2010s. And then, much more recently, high-stakes player Gal Yifrak was found by the feds to be laundering money through the bike, though at this time, the bike is not accused of any wrongdoing. It's very possible that he was doing this without their knowledge. In the other case that they were fined for, it was found that they were culpable in turning a blind eye to it. But in this case, uh, it's very possible Gall just did it without it being caught. And he was a legit high-stakes player there, so it's a lot, higher, a lot harder to catch that. But still, once again, they're embroiled in a, a money laundering situation. But they have been bought, and there really hasn't been that much news about this. They have been bought by a company called the John Park Trust. And the John Park Trust owns a group of casinos called Park West Casinos. And those are in Northern California. And they've now expanded into Southern California by buying what's known as the gambling unit of the Bicycle Hotel and Casino. Now, they need to be granted a license for them to operate it because uh, I guess the license isn't transferable. And the article I'm reading about this is from back in March, so it's possible this already happened because it does say that Bell Gardens, which is the city where the bike is in, has scheduled a special council meeting to deal with the casino's change of ownership and request of business license following the transactional approval and issuance of state permits by the California Gambling Control Commission on March 24th. So I, I don't know exactly what... Oh, no, sorry. That was talking about what already happened on March 24th. So yeah, this was written on April 7th. So I guess this is still pending the licensure, but it looks like they're probably going to get it. It was said that there was nothing found that seems to be an issue, but they still have not granted it yet. The Bureau of Gambling Control, which is part of the California Office of the Attorney General, recommended that this gets approval, and they did not find any issues with the individuals requesting this license. The Bureau of Gambling Control also said that uh, employees with valid registrations issued by the Bell Gardens Police Department directly employed by uh, the bike may maintain the registration status at the close of the transaction and their renewals would be carried. So basically, once they get the licensure, then the uh, employees will automatically get that as well and will also be able to renew it. So it looks like not every employee will have to go through this all over again, but that once the new ownership gets the licensure, then everybody working there will also maintain their existing licenses. The new ownership wants their 
ParkWest Casino brand to be part of it. So it's going to change from the Bicycle Hotel and Casino to ParkWest Bicycle Casino. It's going to be kind of weird. I even told Benjamin this. He said, what? That's a weird name. That's that's not like the bicycle. The bicycle is memorable. Park West is weird. I should agree with him. Who's going to say, I'm going down to Park West. What? You know, the bike. Oh, okay. I'm going to Park West Bicycle Casino. That doesn't roll off the tongue very well. But that's the... There, there's an application that's been submitted to approve this name change as well. And... They're also looking for two management employee licenses for trust beneficiary and owner John Park and for Michael Vasey, the new officer and director. And also it has to be approved for Park West Casinos, Inc., the John Park Trust, John Park and Emily Park. And Emily Park is John's wife. So it kind of seems like this rich Korean guy named John Park started this Park West Casinos and got some casinos in Northern California. I'm not sure which ones. And now has bought the bike. But it looks like he does not own the building. And he may or may not own the hotel now because uh, it said he bought the gambling unit of the Bicycle Hotel and Casino. So it really looks like they only bought the right to operate and profit from the gambling portion and that everything else there remains with whatever previous ownership there was. Or maybe it was owned separately to begin with. So this includes like food outlets and the hotel and, and the physical property. This is probably not changing hands at all. But it does look like a new ownership company is involved or about to be involved with running the part of the bike that most of us really care about. And that is the casino. So I wonder if there's going to be any changes there besides the name to Park West Bicycle Casino. They have not indicated that anything else is going to change. They haven't claimed they're going to restructure anything or do anything else along those lines. It may just be an ownership change that is kind of invisible to the customer aside from the new name. The bike also had an issue uh, a few decades ago. In 1990, the federal government appropriated 36.2% of its holdings following a jury trial that found that uh, $12 million of the $22 million that was used for its construction was actually laundering by drug kingpins from Florida. Wow, so the bike was actually built with money laundering, and money laundering continues there to this day. <laughs> so I guess Gallie Frock knew where to launder money. The place was built with laundered money, and he was still laundering money up until when the feds busted him. Hmm. Does the government still own 36% of it? No. They sold its share to Ladbroke Racing Corporation not too long after that, and they got out of the casino business. So basically, they took 36% of the bike back in 1990 as kind of a seizure because apparently it was built with drug money from Florida. Very nice. That would have made a good episode of Miami Vice, which was just off the air at that time in 1990. That was just when Miami Vice ended. 
too bad. Could have been a good episode. I don't know if they're going to change anything regarding the oversight of uh, money laundering. Like, I was kind of surprised that Golly Frock was able to do it after all the other trouble they've had there. You'd think they would be extra vigilant to stop money laundering, but I guess not. Efrock was accused of trading large sums of cash for big casino chips there. And then he would pretend like he won the casino chips playing cash, the cash games there, and then he would uh, bring that to the cage and get checks, which he would then deposit in his account, and then use that money in his account to buy real estate, when in reality all the money really came from cash winnings from illegal slot machines, according to what the feds are alleging. And by the way, there's already been two out of uh, four defendants there pleading guilty. Not Gall yet, but two others in, in that whole thing have already pled guilty, so I have a feeling he will be pleading guilty as well. But yeah, looks like the bike has new ownership, and it's just a matter of getting the license is squared away, and I have to imagine there's some contingency with this sale that the full sale won't be made. Anyway, I'll be at the bike again. I'll tell you if I notice anything different once this uh, full change goes through. Something else that was pointed out, which I don't know if it's related or not, or if it's just kind of a response to Hustler Casino Live's new dominance in the live streaming world. They really were foolish to let Ryan Feldman go. Shows you what a good producer can do for you and what the absence of him can also do for you in a negative way. But uh, remember I've talked about the Bally brand that it's everywhere and doesn't mean much anymore? Well, now Live at the Bike is Bally's Presents Live at the Bike. <laughs> what that means, I don't know. But uh, Live at the Bike apparently was sold to Bally Sports. So I guess that's technically what it means. It was mentioned on the stream, according to Poker Fraud Alert Radio listener and forum poster Joe D. And apparently it might even be televised at some point. They're trying to bring a bit of a higher budget entity into the mix. Live at the Bike has always been a separate company from the bike. However... Ryan Feldman was also an employee of the bike, and both of them kind of just kicked him to the curb, and that caused him to then form his own company and start one at Hustler, which very quickly became dominant and now is the more watched of the two streams. And we had Ryan on here for a long time, shortly before Hustler Casino Live got going. A good interview. But it is interesting that this has now become Bally's Presents Live at the Bike. And maybe this will give them some viewership back, especially if this appears on TV on one of the Bally Sports stations, because there are some Bally Sports stations that are at least associated with the Bally Sports Corp- uh, with the, with uh, the Bally Corporation. And I'm, I'm not actually sure if this is sold to the Bally Corporation or Bally Sports. The whole Bally thing is so confusing. But yeah, we've got Bally's presents live on the bike which probably is not related to this sale, because, again, Life of the Bike is separate from the bike, which is confusing in itself, but it's always been that way. Life of the Bike basically approached the bike a number of years ago and said, would you like to have this partnership? And they said, sure. It became a very well-liked and long-lasting stream. And then they made a mistake of letting Ryan Feldman go, and you don't do that. 
when the guy has a capability of starting a better product with a competitor and beating you. By the way, speaking of Hustler Casino Live, something happened that uh, nobody's talking about. I'm surprised nobody's talking about it. But the Poker Bunny, who's been someone that a lot of people have been uh, paying attention to, for better or worse, she started to behave in a very odd fashion on Twitter, like even more odd than usual. And this past weekend, the Poker Bunny deleted her Twitter account and is now gone. And she's the 23-year-old girl who appears on a lot of the Hustler Casino live streams, has admitted that someone is staking her, though she hasn't identified who, but I've heard rumors as to who it is, and it's not even someone in this country, supposedly. And she shows a lot of skin, and she identifies that she is autistic, which she may actually be. She engages in kind of some strange behavior, and she's very controversial. We haven't talked about her much on this show, but she deleted her social media, which is kind of weird. But that was following this big meltdown. And when I saw that happened, I got a little concerned, like, May something else have happened that is much worse than just deleting social media, but someone expressed concern on Twitter and someone else responded that they know her backer and that she's fine. She just decided to get off social media because she can't handle it. So, okay. I mean, that was probably a wise decision for her to leave social media. But that that whole thing is a pretty weird situation in itself. But what was most surprising to me was that there's been such little talk about her abruptly leaving Twitter when there was so much talk about her when she was on Twitter. So it went from, like, constant poker bunny discussion to, like, everyone acting like she doesn't exist because she deleted her Twitter. Very weird. Right now, she's still gone. All right. I have an update about the lodge at Hualapai. And that awful situation there, there's been some developments with that. Trade Risky, do you remember this terrible story of this trashy, methy couple that was going around robbing bars in Las Vegas? And they, they robbed like nine bars in a relatively short period of time, like maybe over uh, uh, like two months. Yeah, I think something happened with the last one. Right. So, so the guy got canned or something. No, much worse. Much worse. The bartender who was robbed at gunpoint, the ninth robbery by the same couple. He was robbed at gunpoint. It was right on camera there. I've I've watched the video. He had a gun pointed at him. He looked very scared, as is understandable, with a weirdo walking in there pointing a gun at you. And he very slowly got the money out of the register and gave it to the guy pointing a gun at his head. And the robber then ran out, and fortunately nobody was physically hurt. And what happened from that? The owners called him in and told him that the only way he can keep his job is if he signs a document allowing them to deduct the stolen money from his paycheck 
until all the stolen money is paid back. I mean, this sounds like a fictitious movie villain who's like a, a cold-hearted guy you would never find in real life that, uh, like, the, like the cliche, terrible boss with no heart who is forcing someone to pay back money that was robbed from the business with this guy having a gun pointed to his head. And instead of being asked, how are you? Or, hey, take some time off. Or, hey, I'm glad you're okay. Uh, no, you owe us $4,000 because you got robbed at gunpoint at a freaking bar. But they made him sign that to keep his job. Well, he actually signed it, and they deducted it from his paycheck. He claimed that otherwise uh, it was a good job, and he didn't want to lose it, so he just tolerated it. And then when he moved out of Vegas and was losing the job anyway, he uh, felt kind of foolish for letting them do this to him, and he made it public, which was then picked up by local media, and then there was a lot of outrage at Lodge at Wallapai for the way they treated this guy who went through this traumatic event, and they took the money from him when this is not his responsibility. It is not the bartender's responsibility to lay down his life to not get robbed. When a guy walks in with a gun and points it at his head and says, give up the money, then that's the way it works. You got to give up the money. You don't say, no, guy with a gun, I am not giving you this money. And uh, shoot me. Go ahead. Shoot me because uh, it's more important that my bosses keep their $4,000 than my life. No, that's not the way it works when you're a bartender. So uh, the city of Vegas, when I say the city, I mean people in Vegas, such as Brandon Drexel Gerson, were outraged by this. And the Elijah Hualpai really took a hit of the reputation on the chin. Isn't that right, Brandon? Is this the ACR fraud show? It was, but now this is the Elijah Hualpai fraud show. Jesus. So I've been there. I used to go there a lot back in the day. Yeah. What what did you think of that story when you read about that? Isn't that awful? Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So the reason we're talking about it now, this is something that came out uh in yeah, September. Yeah, I know the whole story. But uh there's a recent development. He's not taking the money and he's suing them and uh, Well, you're that giving away the whole thing here. That's not nice in the first seconds of the show. Oh, well, I, <laughs> you asked me, well, if I knew with the development, okay. Well, okay, so well, here's the development. That you can we, edit it in the archives. Yeah, okay. Then. So there is a, a new development here. Well, how about a hold on? How about a hello, Brandon? How are you? Do I mean a little something here? I was trying no. to introduce you in that way. I was trying to say that. Oh, I just woke up. I'm sorry. How 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 is uh, the fraud show tonight? It's it's pretty long. I had to take a few breaks because my throat was hurting. But you know, we're we're getting through. How are you feeling? Are you over your cold? No, not completely. That's why I had to take a few breaks. But. Oh, jeez. Now, how's that trader Ruski? Yo, Yo buddy. buddy, what's happening? <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> I got his text. I just saw it when I woke up. Anyhow, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, go on with uh, this. Uh, how many more segments are left in the what have you? Uh, not many. But yeah, we'll stick around and uh... here's what happened uh, at, at the time he was saying that he just wants it to be made public, but he's not going to sue them. It's just, you know, he just kind of wants to move on. That's what this guy, Edward Parker, who was forced to pay the money back, said. And a lot of people are saying, come on, man, sue them because you've got a slam dunk case. The reason that Lodger Hualapai felt that they could do this was that there is a provision in labor law in Nevada to where you can deduct from the paycheck when an employee causes a loss for the business. So, uh, but but it, it's pretty narrow 
in the ability to do this. So even things that are accidents, you can't necessarily do this. But like, let's say an employee just has a temper tantrum and uh, throws a tray of food on the ground because he's pissed off. Well, the employer would have a right to deduct that from their paycheck, the value of the food that was destroyed, because the employee should not do that. So that's the type of way it can be applied. But you cannot apply it when two robbers who've robbed eight other places that have nothing to do with him. These two robbers did not know him. He was not in on it with them, and they were arrested. And it was proven that these were just serial robbers who were hitting nine places in a short period of time. This was the ninth one. Well, listen, you want to talk about, uh, remember back in the day, natural-born killers, like a, a, a real just corrupt, I don't know what word you want to use, couple do you know the backstory on these two? The two that robbed the place. Yeah, I said there were like some prison breaks in the past, and, and just yes, to... the girl, the girl tried to break the guy out of prison. Yes, and she, and she this was like back in the early two thousands, but she had no rap sheet back then, and she literally tried to break the boyfriend out, got caught, and then went to prison for a long time just for that. Like it's pretty crazy. Like but they, but they didn't, modern day. You know what? Though they kept getting in trouble for things, and they weren't getting long enough sentences. This is also a cautionary yeah. tale. For I'm surprised you knew about that. Yeah, good. no, I was interested in this case, and and they, they, it was amazing how many times they kept getting caught, basically doing the same things, and just not spending very long in prison. And you see what ended up happening. So this guy clearly had nothing to do with any of this. This was not a buddy of theirs or anything like that. And it wasn't very long until they were arrested, because remember, this was the ninth of nine places that were robbed. So you can't even say that this Lodger Wallopi just erroneously believed that he was in on it, because very quickly it was very clear he wasn't, because they arrested the ones who did it, and they found that they robbed eight other places. So that should have been it. At that point, even if they had him sign that paper, they should have said, never mind, here's the money back. We know you had nothing to do with it. So... At the time, he was just saying, look, I'm putting this out there for everyone to know, but I've moved out of state. I'm starting a new chapter of my life. Sorry, guys, I'm not doing anything. But I guess enough people kept urging him to do something about it. So first, he filed a complaint with the Labor Commission in Nevada, and the Labor Commission sided with him, of course, and awarded him $5,528. I'm not sure where they came to that figure, but that's what they awarded him. So he had a right to collect 5528 from Lodge Walpi. And he declined it. Now, why did he decline it? Because he decided that, forget the labor board complaint, that it's nice that he already won that, but he decided that, yeah, I am going to sue them and get what I can. So he realized that 5528, if he got that from the labor board, he can do much better than that in court, and that this is a slam dunk case, which it is. So he got lawyers, and he basically was probably advised by the lawyers that he can do way better than that in litigation and they're probably right and I have a feeling Elijah Walpi is going to settle this because what are they going to say in court how can they possibly justify this especially given that the people were arrested very shortly afterwards and it became very clear he wasn't involved and this would be it would be rubbing salt in the community's wounds all over again if this has a long dragged out court case over this matter and it'll just seem awful attempting to attack him in court and attack his credibility when everybody knows the truth that he had nothing to do with this and he was the victim here in two ways. So I I think they are just going to have to settle here 
And I guess some attorney convinced them, what the fuck? Why are you not suing them? They totally wronged you here. They, I mean, they really, really fucked you over. They charged you for getting held at gunpoint. And apparently he also expressed concern to them prior to the, being robbed that there were robberies in the area and that he's worried and they need to get security and they didn't do it. So he should have been suing them, if anything. <laughs> they shouldn't have been charging him. So they, Just they would for a get... point of reference, I don't know if you said it, the lodge is basically in Summerlin. It, it, it is in a good area. It's not like it's the ghetto or you know a high crime area, but you work one of those kind of places long enough on graveyard, you're eventually going to get robbed. I mean, it, it just that's when those things tend to happen. Yeah. Now, when you walk in there, does everybody say Drexel? <laughs> Back in the day, they might. Have. I used to go there a lot about 15 years ago, but no, not not anymore. It's not uh, not like Cheers, but yeah, it, it's kind of surprising because it's in a good area. I mean, it's right on the outskirts of Summerlin. It's it's about. Uh, uh, I don't know, maybe a mile and a half uh, east of Red Rock Casino. Okay. So, yeah. But no, that's a crazy story. I don't know what the hell they were thinking. Well, I know what they were thinking, actually. That I do know. Because there must have been an issue here where employees were doing shit and then blaming customers who, quote, got away. So, you know, people died well, okay, and the main thing with these jobs are this, and this this is what they blamed him for. When you're working a graveyard shift at one of, and there's like literally several hundred of these type places, uh, you know, they're bars. I mean, there's literally this model uh, is just, I guess, a time proven, you know, successful model. It's a bar. It's open 24 hours. They have food, which is better than, you know, it's kind of like Denny's, a Denny's kind of menu, but better. Some of them are actually better, you know, better quality. And they have gaming and they have 15 machines. And then they usually have, you know, pool tables, but there's literally hundreds of these. When you're registered, and this is one of the main things for these employees that work these shifts, when your register gets over a certain amount, you're supposed to go in the back and they have a, a, a time drop safe. You're never supposed to keep more than two or $300 in your register. Okay. And I guess nowadays, you know, like pe more people pay with credit cards and stuff, but it's still a bar. So people are, you know, cash and there's video poker. So with this particular case, their main claim was, okay, against uh, in regards to the negligence is he had way too much money in his drawer. And when you start one of these jobs, you literally have to sign a piece of paper agreeing to making sure you drop X amount of dollars. So like I said, it's usually like two to $300. It's all you're allowed to keep in cash. So in the event you got get robbed, then you know you're not you're not going to have a lot of cash. And then when you pay somebody for a jackpot or whatever it may be, uh, you know, gaming wise, that also comes out of a machine that dispenses it that you have no access to. Like it literally dispenses the exact amount, so you can't. You know, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, and I hadn't thought of it that way. I'm not defending them here. Well, I but... know that for a fact. So anyhow, that was the one thing they could have nailed him on. Because he did have more cash than he was supposed to have at hand. I don't remember how much more it was, but uh, he certainly, you know. And, and I, you know, you get busy. You don't want to leave. You have customers, you know, so on and so forth. You can't get in the back and, and drop it. But that's what they were going after him on. Okay. So. See, I didn't – I this is what I had thought. And I know that uh, there's also a separate concern is that, uh, as I was starting to say, that employees – can make the claim that bad things that happened there were beyond their control. So, like, they have a buddy 
that comes in and pretends to rob them. And in reality, the, the whole thing, they're, they're setting it up in the first place. And they're going to split it later. And they, quote, give up the money. And then they give, uh, you know, they claim they don't remember the details well, whatever. And then uh, then they split it later or or a much lesser version. They let someone dine and dash. Oh, sorry, we didn't know they're going to do that. What can we do? And it's just their friends. So um, I know some of these places have a concern that the only way to stop this is to make employees responsible, financially responsible for certain things that happen there. And, and this is a way to do it. Uh, I hadn't thought of this angle that you're telling me about here that they have to drop it in the time lock safe. But I still don't believe, and, and from what I've seen of the legal analysis, I still don't believe that they can compel him to pay that back because uh, I don't think that rises to enough of a level of negligence, nor is that his main function of his job. This is not uh, someone who's coming there in an armored vehicle to take the cash and let it get stolen. This is just uh, one thing he's told to do there. I hadn't even seen this before. It's, it's interesting that you found this because in all the articles I've read, including this one I read most recently, it didn't say that. But I believe you, though. It's, it's a, I'm sure that'll be their, their defense. That's the only reason they could go after him. That's the only thing. And I read it, and it was an interview with uh, the owner. Or, or maybe it was a spokesperson for, for the lodge because there's you know it's a franchise. Or there's several of them, I should say. But yeah. And that, that's very, very commonplace with those kind of jobs, because if you don't do that, you could have thousands and thousands of dollars on you. So, you know, they want to limit the liability, which makes sense. You know, that absolutely makes sense, right? And I've seen it even like in Seven Eleven, where it has a sign about time lock safe, uh, never more than uh, $20 in register or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that would be one claim, but I don't think it's strong enough. I don't think they'd win this. And in fact, the Labor Commission agreed with him and already awarded him over $5,000, which he rejected. So I think they're going to lose this. And again, I don't think they want this to go to court. It's still going to look very bad. Even if they want to claim, well, he, he didn't put in the time lock as he was supposed to. It just re- looks really callous to do this. And I, I would think after something like this happens, once they determine that this was just something he didn't do when he was supposed to, I would say the worst thing they, they really could do at that point would be fire him and say that uh, you didn't, handle the money properly and it got stolen by these criminals so even though you weren't working with these criminals and didn't want this to happen uh, this was uh, partially result of you not putting the money away so you can't work here anymore and i would say that would be a valid reason to fire him but not to make him pay back the money right so that lawsuit is uh happening and my guess is they're going to settle last thing i have and then i can see if brandon wants to bring anything up further there was yet another shooting at Legends Poker Room in Houston. I'm not talking about the one where a guy came in with a gun and was about to rob the place and a brave security guard was able to uh, tackle him. And even though the gun went off in the struggle, that nobody ended up getting shot. I'm not talking about that one. That, ha- that did happen before, but th- that's not the one I'm talking about here. Uh, Here we have another robbery. (laughs) So the gun went off 12 times in the one that happened in January. And the only one who got hurt was the security guard who dislocated his shoulder. But we had another situation with uh, shooting there. And this time shots were fired into the building from the outside. 
This is Legends Poker Room in Houston. This is the one that was close to Johnny Chan's room that closed down. Though it had nothing to do with that room. They were the competition. And uh, apparently someone fired a series of bullets into Legends Poker Room. This is according to PokerNews.com. And players took cover under poker tables for safety as the bullets were coming into the room. In fact, uh, a picture was posted of uh, players hiding under the table. I guess someone whipped out their phone and took a picture of it. One person said that a bullet came within one foot of his head. That bullet whizzed by his head and missed him by one foot. And despite that, within a short time of bullets being fired into Legends Poker Room, they continued with the games. (laughs) I have to say, especially because they didn't arrest the guy for it. Someone just fired a gun in there and disappeared. At that point, I would say... You know what? I am quitting, and I will be back at some point in the future to cash out these chips, and then never again. That's what I would say. I would not go right back to playing, but that's what they did. Fifteen cash games were going at Legends, and police arrived at around 11.30, about 30 minutes after the shooting occurred. There were 20 shell casings found, so they're probably like, 20 bullets fired into the building. Crazy. And apparently there was a suspicious individual hovering around the cashier's cage. This person was asked to leave. He was never identified. And then 15 minutes later, someone was firing the bullets into Legend's poker room. And it's pretty surprising with 15 tables worth of people there that nobody was hit. Though one guy said it came within one foot of his head. That could have been a death, obviously. And someone in the poker room who didn't want to give their name said it ended up being that shots were fired from outside through the walls and got into room that way. Luckily, nobody was hit. It's really a miracle that most of the bullet holes I saw were sitting at chest height. Once it was over, we all got up and checked. Nobody was hurt. Poker News also posted a picture someone took of a bullet hole in one of the screens they had that was showing the Lakers and Phoenix Suns game that was running at the time. So now a, a bullet hole in that. And that apparently Legends Poker Room was not very gracious about the whole thing. People were taking photos and video and were told in, quote, an aggressive manner to stop recording. <laughs> People were also told that They're not allowed to post anything about this on social media, though a few players took pictures anyway and posted them. One player said, the employee very aggressively asked players if they wanted to continue playing and was shouting around to find a dealer to start dealing. That's when I found someone to buy my chips for cash as I'm leaving town and don't want to go back to cash out. Cops were there doing their thing, but after about 15 minutes also left. So this is the second shooting there since January. There was also an altercation there where Sammy Farha was attacked by an angry dealer after Farha had uh, talked trash to him and had previously gotten him fired at uh, Johnny Chan's old room. But uh, that one was less of a concern to people because apparently Farha was very abusive to dealers in Texas and had a reputation for that, including this dealer himself. 
and that everyone was tired of it and that many people applauded Farha being punched there with a lot of people feeling he had it coming for all the dealer abuse that he had doled out. But uh, that's one thing. But two attacks with guns in the period of three months is a pretty bad thing there. There have also been a lot of allegations about the ownership of Legends Poker and that he was previously under investigation in California. And, in fact, a competitor in the Houston area did a whole piece bashing Legends, and it was a piece promoting their room, Prime Social. So it was clearly a paid piece put together by consultants. But the piece was mainly bashing Legends and interviewing the owner and hitting with really tough questions about his past, which he didn't want to answer. So pretty shifty place over there. I would not play at Legends. I would pick any other room in Houston except for Legends, unless you'd like to get shot at, then it's a great place to play. How can you go back to playing poker after that, though? I've seen it at the Rio where the fire alarm goes off, as seems to happen every World Series at some point, and people just ignore it and keep playing. But it's one thing, a fire alarm, nothing for shots to ring out. Yeah. I could I could not continue playing after shots rang out. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's go back and talk about the All-American Dave thing. Uh, basically, Dave announced that they're closing for good. And then after that... Uh, it was brought up by someone, hey, what about our balances carried over from last year? And he's like, uh, yeah, you're not going to be getting that. And he basically said the, the business is broke, he's broke, and can't pay anyone. And he also claimed that he also didn't make any promises to pay in the future. In fact, he wouldn't make any statement like... Wow, when did this happen? This just happened tonight at 5.30 p.m. And Wow, the, he's broke, huh? Not only broke, but uh, you know, he, he just absolutely cannot deliver any food to the World Series and that uh, the union is responsible. But the, the, to me, the bigger story here is the absolute refusal to give any refunds, even if later he gets back on his feet. I'm not saying necessarily with the same business, but let's say he starts another business unrelated to all this and gets successful. He wants to still not pay anyone back. He wants to just uh, say, hey, look, you guys, it goes down with the business. That's the way it is. If a business fails, then I'm not going to be responsible which I think is messed up. There's some poker players who, who think that's fine. They say, you know, if the business goes down, that's the way it is. You know, give, give the guy some sympathy. You know, don't saddle him with this in the future. But I say this is not a big corporation. This is one guy that people kind of felt like they had a relationship with and trusted him to buy these plans in advance and carry them over from year to year. So they trusted him. And for him to say, oh, yeah, your balances, you're never going to get them back no matter what. I, I think that's messed up. I think that's not repaying people's trust in him with action in kind. And I've actually had discussions with him privately about this. He he messaged me. I didn't message him. And I'm trying to urge him to come out and at least pledge that if he gets back on his feet at some point, even if he doesn't restart this business, to make his best effort to pay people back. And he also came under fire because in Fiji... Uh, there was pictures of him being in Fiji as recently as two days ago. And people are like, what? You have, a, you have the money to go to Fiji, but you claim you're broke? And then he had to explain to everybody that he had a cheap rental place there and that he was shutting it all down and, uh, and just taking their stuff back because they're broke and he wasn't vacationing there. That's his claim. So I don't know. Maybe he is broke. And he has... 
I'm sure been devastated. But broke selling thirty five dollar chicken breasts. Well, that's what some people are asking. There's some, and this is a good question. What's a good question is, where did all the money go? Because he doesn't really have expenses when it's not during World Series, and it's not like they dropped this on him in the middle of the series when he he's going to have a bunch of food that goes to waste or whatever. They told him three months in advance, which isn't a lot of notice. But he didn't buy food. He didn't hire employees. Like, like what expenses were there that? he incurred from them not allowing him to operate this year. This may have stopped him from future profit. Did he have another business, a restaurant? Or no, was no, it was just this food. It kind of looks like he was making so much during those few months that he was supporting himself on that the rest of the year. He doesn't say he's not doing anything else, but it kind of looked like that. And he did say it's, it, it's closed down. All American Dave's food truck is gone forever. He, he announced that tonight. And okay, that, that's the end of it. And it wasn't his decision. It was out of his control. But to say that everybody's balances, they're just never getting back no matter what happens, I, I think is crappy. I think at the very least. How much did you have on there, Jeff? How much did I have on there? I had uh, the number you would probably expect. Zero point zero. I, I okay, was and, to... and Brandon did get his change back, right? That's not yes. owed? Yes. Make sure. Okay, got it. Yeah, I was too cheap to ever get it. Also, it's going to sound strange. I, I know, I, that was a joke. Okay, I, I think I've mentioned it before, but I'm not a big fan of rice. I just don't really don't like rice. And there's tons of rice in like so many of these dishes. So it just kind of seemed like a waste to me. I'm just not a, a rice fan. And people say, why, why don't you like rice? It has no flavor. And I say, I just don't like the texture. I've just never liked rice. But even without the rice, it just... It just seemed like it was more expensive than I wanted to pay for what isn't a very large meal. But that's fine. You know, that was my personal choice, but I, I thought it was good to have there. Yeah, so I have no complaints about the service he was providing to the World Series. I just don't like the way this is ending. Wow. Yeah, that's... It's, it's very polarizing. There, there's some people I wonder on, what that amount is. Well, that's people are, like so. So there's a few questions, right? There's a few questions yeah. here. Number one, what's the total amount? As you said, uh, some someone claimed they had over a thousand dollars on deposit, but Dave said that's not true. That nobody has a thousand, but uh, others have said they have five hundred, and he's not disputing that. And what's the over under on the total? I'd say fifty k is the over under. Wow. And then the. Other question was what I had just mentioned. Where was all the money going? Like, what were the expenses when it wasn't World Series time? And an associated question was, if the World Series backed down and said, okay, you can operate here, how could he have operated if he had no money? How is he saying, we're totally broke, we have nothing, so sorry, guys, you don't get your money back, but if we were allowed to operate, we would. Well, with what money? Now, maybe he could claim he'd get other investors or take loans, and now he can't do that since he can't operate. I guess that would probably be the answer, but it is a good question where all the money went and why he was spending this money that was on deposit of players. Now, this isn't quite the same. Some people are comparing it to full tilt. This isn't quite the same because you were buying a service and uh, basically paying in advance in a way. But as was found from previous tweets that he made, people were encouraged to carry this over from year to year and 
told that uh, he'll always be there for them. So I think it's kind of crappy. If he really is out of money, it really is crappy to just say, well, too bad. The business is gone, so so is your money. When you're the... And what do you mean they were encouraged, Rob? They wouldn't they'd ask for their money back and they wouldn't give it to them? They well, just said, we encourage you to leave well, Ryan Feldman said that. Ryan Feldman said that people were not even even allowed at the end of the 2021 World Series to get back the remainder and that it had to carry over. But also someone found a tweet from 2020 where he said, we're not sure when the World Series is coming back because of COVID, but whenever it does, we'll be here. Don't worry about your balances. Wow. Which Over a decade and he's gonna he just ruined his reputation. Right. Well, some people, believe it or not, are on his side about this and say, oh, come on, it's insensitive. The man just poured out his heart, uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, it's two separate things. You know, you can feel bad for what happened to him with the World Series, but for him to just callously say, sorry, the money's gone and you're never going to get back, he didn't use those words, but that was the message, uh, no matter what happens with him in the future. So I, I keep telling him, what you got to say is, I'm broke right now. I can't afford to pay anyone back right now. I can't pull money where it doesn't exist. But as soon as I'm on my feet and I'm doing okay again, then I will pay people back as much as I can. And that's my pledge to you. And then do it. Not just say it and then uh, not do it, but actually say that and do it if and when that happens. But yeah, as you said, it just kind of ruins the reputation because people felt like they kind of had like a relationship with him. With his, uh, yeah, he was the business. This wasn't just a cold business that went under, and you don't you don't really get to know the people running it. And it's a large corporation that goes under, and you have credit with them, and you can't recover it. Then there, you're not mad at any individual. That's just kind of shitty. But what can you do? Here, he was all American Dave's. I mean, it's named after him. So when you are getting business all these years from your connection with a community you can't leave it like this even if you think you can get away with it legally which you probably can you still shouldn't but you know i've told him i've told him how i felt i've told him publicly i told him privately and as i said he messaged me i didn't message him and i gave my suggestions and maybe he'll sleep on it and we'll see what happens i guess he was just given the final no from the world series uh here last night that's when it broke about 12 hours ago. Wow. I mean, couldn't he set up in that hotel behind uh, Bally's? In the, in the I don't think that's even the issue. He don't got no money. to. No, no, that's not. No, it's beyond that. Well, they, now they, we know that. We didn't know that before. No, but it's not about money there. They won't let him deliver there. They've told him he can't deliver there, period. And that's what they were telling right. him. But he, they, couldn't, he couldn't be like Lenny and open up his uh, coat. <laughs> maybe too old to reference for both of you. <laughs> uh, no, see, I, he can't do it behind anyone's back there because it's it's it'll get caught and he gets. Sued I don't. You don't get, have no money to open up no bologna and cheese shop. Well, that's true too. But even without that, I could see why he wouldn't want to do it if they say no, you can't. If they say you're you're yeah. not allowed, and anyone who tries it is going to get banned, I can see why he wouldn't try to do that. It wouldn't last very long. But so, like, I don't. I understand his circumstance, and he, he's also claiming he lost money last year. Who knows if that's true, but he claims he lost money last year because he couldn't actually have the food truck on site. He actually had to deliver from off-site, which I didn't notice because I only played one event, so I guess I didn't really think about it. But apparently he was off-site all of last year's series, 
and wasn't able to operate with a profit anyway, so he claims. But here's the big problem. When you are holding people's money on deposit, even if they're putting it in advance for services, once you see that this is not going to work, then you, you just shut down and you say, okay, you know, uh, we're out of money. Now I have to start dipping into the funds people pay, paid for future meals and uh, we're shutting down and here's your money back. You, you don't keep going, going, going until it's all out and then say, sorry, guys, no more money left. But if you do, then at least pledge to give the money back later. That's how I feel here. It kind of sounds like you believe that too, Brandon. Yeah. I've, I've never been a believer of, oh, well, the business and me are two different things. So if the business goes down and people get fucked, oh, well, that's the business. But me personally, I don't have to pay you back. I've never liked that. Uh, unless it's like a very large corporation, that's a different story. But, but I mean, would, we're talking like 15 years almost, his reputation. Like that's that's just... You know what I mean? Unless he's leaving Vegas and they they staked him a number of times in the main event. These, these customers did. Do you know that? No, I didn't. That's interesting. Oh, wow. He's played the main event like three or four times and it was all on their dollar. Yeah. Well, I think he is leaving the community. I think he knows he's never going to be able to serve at the World Series again and that's over. So I, I, he probably is looking from that standpoint like if I burn this bridge, it's not going to cost me financially, but I would think that after all this time and all the relationships that he formed that this wouldn't be the way he'd end it. But I think he miscalculated. I think he really believed that he could just post the sob story, given that it really was done beyond his control, and that everyone would just understand their money's gone. And, like, a lot of people aren't understanding. There's actually more people who are on his side on this matter than I thought there would be. But, you know, some poker players, they just are kind of delusional about what the right thing to do is in a lot of situations. And I, I mean, how, how much would it hurt to just say, okay, look guys, as long as I'm broke, I can't pay you. But once I'm in a good place again, let me start uh, paying you at that point And you have my word, I'll do it. What's wrong with saying that? What's wrong with doing that? Then if he never gets back on his feet, then he never has to pay and people understand. And if he does, then he does pay them. And people, I'm sure, will be patient if it looks like he's making a good faith effort to pay people back. And and that should be that. So, yeah, pretty wow. pretty sad ending there to All-American Dave. Who saw that coming? I was not picturing that one. But sometimes surprising things happen. It's a new era of the World Series of Poker at Bally's in Paris. By the way, I saw a picture of one of those rooms that we'll be playing in, and I did not like the picture of one of these rooms. Like, half of it has a very low ceiling. It kind of looks claustrophobic. And I hadn't thought about that until I looked at that ceiling and I go, wait a minute. Even that awful warehouse they once stuck me in has a high ceiling. It just feels weird to be crammed into a place also with a low ceiling. Like, some of these ceilings are lower than the ceilings in my house, it looks like. Well, you're a very tall man, too. Don't forget that. That's not... That's true. In fact, I can tell you that unless the picture is misleading, it really looks like I could easily jump up and touch the ceiling if I wanted to in the portion of that room. It kind of looks like part of the room has a low ceiling, part has a high ceiling. So that'd be kind of a bad beat to be placed at the low ceiling table. And it looks kind of dark and shadowy for that reason. I don't know. Maybe when it's all lit up for the series itself, it won't look like that, but... I don't like the idea of a World Series event being in a room with a low ceiling. It just doesn't feel right. Like, wow. why, even, why even is there a low ceiling in a ballroom? How does that happen? It just doesn't make sense. 
I'm sure there'll be things that people notice at Paris and at Bally's that they don't like compared to the Rio. Negreanu was actually saying that he's going to miss the Rio. He just tweeted this, that it's sad that he's not going back to the Rio. And he uh, is going to miss it. And I don't know about that, because the Rio did have a lot of downsides. It will be nice to be center strip. It will be nice to have a lot more food options, though not all American Dave. It'll be nice to have a lot more places you could stay and still be walking distance from there. So there'll be some nice things about the move, but I'm sure there'll be things that you kind of wish you were at the Rio, including, as I mentioned on a previous show, one of the things about the Rio that which was better was that if you wanted to go from the Rio to other local businesses on the west side of town, it wasn't hard to do. Where on the Strip, you have to hassle with all that traffic to even get out of there. Where at the Rio, you could jump in the car pretty quickly and get to something local. So I will yeah. miss that. Well, that's all I got. You got anything else here? I'm just still trying to take in this All-American Dave, what have you. That's incredible. It can't be a lot of money. Mate. What, what would, I mean, what would you guess it is? I mean, I know there's no way to even know, but what best guess? What are you saying it is? No, I think it's around 50K is my guess. 50K? That much? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's why I think he doesn't want to pledge to refund it because, okay, picture this. Picture you're broke from your business and you know it wasn't really your fault that they just uh, changed venues and they first he comes back from the pandemic at the same venue and they won't let him set up shop there and then they move to the next venue and they say you can't come at all and you cannot deliver food here. So just they pull the rug out from under him after years of being there, which kind of sucks, which I've said before. So I don't blame him for that, obviously. That's unfortunate for him, and he kind of got done dirty by the World Series via the Union. So, okay, uh, that part I understand. But uh, think if this happens to you. Think if you're Dave, and think if you've spent the money believing that you're going to have this income every year, and now all of a sudden you don't. And then now you don't have any money, and you know you're not going to make money this year because you can't operate. And then you owe 50K to people for services you never provided. So you kind of have this monkey on your back. You think, okay, whatever I do next, I'm going to have to pay all this money back first. Like I'm going to owe this to people. I'm starting off in the hole. I can't even get a fresh start. I'm starting off in the freaking hole. And that's got to be what he's thinking. That's not the right way to think of it. But that probably is what he's thinking. He doesn't want to. It's hard enough to start from zero. He's starting in the hole where he owes people. And he's like, why can't I be like all their businesses that when they fail, they just move on? How come I have to worry about my obligation to everybody individually? But I've yeah. answered that. It's because he had the success he did because of the relationship he built with the community. That's why. So you can't get the good of that and then turn your back on everybody when you get the bad. Yeah. Well, it's very shocking. You want to start so, so you know what? So maybe you should start a GoFundMe page for him. <laughs> so, so listen. So yeah. So maybe in essence, do you think he basically was like it was a hail mary for him to try to open this year at Paris just to get unstuck? I mean, like Peter to pay Paul, that kind of thing. Like you know what I mean? He was going to use I me. Mean, you know, get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, like, I well, wasn't yes. gonna tell he wasn't gonna tell any, okay, so in other words, if they would have allowed him to open, he wasn't gonna tell anyone that he was broke or having financial problems and then he would just, you know, try to fake it and buying make that it. Day old chicken. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, right. I mean, I, this is the thing, I get it, you know. I, I was in the restaurant business, you know, a long, long time ago. Uh so I know, you know, the the 
margins for profit are very, very small, but the amount of money he still was upcharging what he was selling, I mean, he should have, have made some money. There's no way that was unprofitable for 10 plus years. Well, that's the I'm thing. I'm going to look back. Well, I know he played in the main event at least three times. Well, okay. And he I, was saved every time. So that's even shittier. Well, right. And like, I'll, I didn't even know that, but yeah, that's, that is shittier if that's true. Just Google All American Dave main event. I mean, it's there. I've read it. I remember well, you, reading You're sure they put him in, though? Anything. He didn't put himself in? No, no, because he'd always do a little thing on Twitter thanking everyone. Oh, wow. For putting him in. No, a thousand percent. Well, you know what? Why don't you look at that now while I. Do some of the other topics real fast that I can talk about and see if uh, – I mean, you'll find it. It's there. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say in closing about this thing with, with him that he probably spent kind of believing that this money was going to go on forever and that didn't leave himself a lot of reserves. And then when he hit some harder times last year with – not being able to be on site, which probably cost him more and made fewer sales. and So he probably made a lot less and then – Maybe coming into this year, he was broke and was going to just borrow to be able to uh, get everything going again. And I wonder if anyone's going to sue him. But I don't think they can win because the truth is here that what they were, this wasn't premeditated. Like this wasn't where he was scamming people or or wasn't like uh, like I. There was a situation where my parents had bought uh, some cards for a restaurant which they sold at a discount for future meals and the very very shady owner was selling these cards like two weeks before they knew they were going to shut the whole thing down and uh which is very very unethical so you're you're buying these cards at a discount for future meals that they know aren't going to take place it's kind of like a real hail mary to rob peter to pay paul and uh, they never ended up suing this owner because they were just flat broke and they wouldn't have gotten anything out of it, so they just gave up. But uh, Dave didn't do that. When Dave was taking these plans, he didn't know the World Series was going to outright refuse to let him serve. So none of this was premeditated or sold under false pretenses. Yeah. And the way it works is when a business crashes like this and they owe people products or services, it's basically considered a liability and it's a liability for the business. And as long as that business doesn't start back up again, it's just kind of tough luck on everybody. So I, hey, I believe- listen, do, do me a favor. I'm sorry. I have to take a call real fast. Uh, I won't be long, but it's important. Uh, it's for someone business, something on the East coast. You guys talk, don't hang, don't okay. hang the radio. Cause I do have a couple of Vegas topics. Give me about seven minutes. Seven I'll, minutes. I'll okay. Skype back in. Okay. If, is that okay? That's fine. Please. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Right. So I, I think that, he just didn't leave himself with enough margin for error here and was probably spending at too high of a rate, taking too much money out of the business. And none of this is illegal, but it set him up for failure when things didn't continue as he expected. It's also not understood why he didn't take these PPP loans, or if he did, then why is he in such dire straits? Because there were these forgivable loans for businesses exactly in this spot. Who knows? Uh, There's probably more to the situation than we realize. I don't think any of this was intentional. I think he would love to keep going, but he can't, and now it's a matter of what gets made right. Okay, I'm going to do a little uh, bonus topic here, actually, just because we're waiting for Brandon to come back. A person signed up to Poker Fraud Alert and made a post 
entitled GG Poker is a Joke. And their claim is that they have missing money from GG Poker. They claim that they are missing like 326 or no, they're, they're missing $479 out of uh 832 that they put on there that they lost 300 something but that $479 is missing and that they've run it through analysis sites like Poker Tracker and that GG Poker is not giving them meaningful responses in support other than just saying no you don't understand things like Poker Tracker don't take rake into account and that's where it went. So uh, those aren't reliable tools. So this person brought up these concerns on Poker Fraud Alert, and uh, they were wondering what to do about this. So this person also brought up a number of other issues. Oh, you know, I'm concerned about uh, about the pattern of, of the hands that are dealt and... Uh, how often my aces and kings lose and how many times sets get me when I have aces and uh, you know the allegations about Joey Ingram for back in the day that don't make a lot of sense. So, like, the person put a lot of things out there that aren't really uh, verifiable at all and probably aren't even true about GG Poker supposedly being crooked. And he posted this long wall of text about that. So I said, okay, let's forget this here. Just put all that rigging stuff aside and allegations that you can't prove aside. Let's focus on the black and white. And the reason I'm telling you guys this, other than just to pass time till Brandon comes back, is that this is the way you should approach these things if you have an issue with a poker site, especially an unregulated one. So if there's something concrete like missing money, don't start rambling about things being rigged and aces losing too often and you know who's in on this who's in on that no 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 no. when you speak to support you've got to be very clear what you want so first of all you have to do some critical thinking if the amount of money missing is 479 dollars it probably isn't them doing it on purpose and this is not like on ACR where the, you could see a withdrawal was done. This is where it's just missing. It probably wasn't done on purpose. And if they're going to rig the site, they're not going to rig games like yours. They're going to rig the bigger games. And they'll put in house players and nobody will be the wiser if they do it well. That's what they'll do. They're not going to go after your little games. So you got to realize that too. That you're not the target. You're not the likely target of any rigging that would take place. So get that out of your head. And what you need to do when you communicate with support is to demand hard data that you can then compare to your own data and see if you can figure out the discrepancy. Because it's very possible this guy just isn't calculating right. And you have to allow for that too, that maybe you're wrong. Maybe you have the wrong info. So I said, this is what he should write. I wrote him a sample letter and I told him to send something very much like this to support. I told him to write this. Dear GG Poker, I understand what you're telling me, and I'm not claiming that Poker Tracker and similar tools are perfect. However, after looking at everything, including rake paid, I still cannot figure out where $479 of my money has gone. For my own peace of mind, I would like to request the following reports from you. Between April 9th at 12.01 a.m. 
GMT and April 11th at 12.01 a.m. GMT, which is a 48-hour period, I would like how much I sat down for at each poker table, how much I had when I stood up from each poker table, and please list each table separately, and my total blackjack win and loss during this period, because he played blackjack on there too. I will check these against my own hand histories, and I'll let you know any discrepancies. Sincerely, whatever. That's what he should send them. He's asking for hard information. You sat down at this table at this time on this date with this amount, and you stood up and you left with this amount. And then he can compare it to his own hand history. Is that true? Yes? Okay. Well, then this table's okay. And then go through each one. The beginning and the end on each one. Look at his info and their info and find where is the discrepancy, and then he can figure out what happened. Because it's possible there's some glitch that shorted him money. I'm not saying it's impossible. Hello? I yeah. Back. Uh, okay, so I'm just so, finishing this topic here. Yeah. So, so listen, real, real fast, just to let you know, I may have to go again. I'm, I'm closing on a property today in, oh, wow. in South Florida, and there's uh, today's a closing, so they were just calling me. Obviously, it's 9 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. that time. So I just have a couple of Vegas things I can talk about, and then I, you know, in case I get cut off, uh, okay, well, I'm just going to say quickly, I was just doing a very quick topic right. here. But, but, okay. but so, just so you know, if I say I have to go, I'm sorry, I have to go. Okay, so I go understand, ahead. I understand. All right, thank so you. So I suggested that he just ask for that. Leave everything else out, and if they won't give it to him, I told him to come back and to tell me, and then I'll try to see who I can get a GG poker to to look into it. But that's that's the way you need to proceed with these things when these things occur. What you don't want to do is complicate the issue with, with uh, allegations of how often aces hold up and uh, you know how the random number generator is. That's, that's all immaterial to this. So that, that's my advice to anyone in this type of spot is just to get hard data. And that was the advice I was giving to people who were having these withdrawals made without their permission on ACR. I t- said, ask them for the IP address and the Bitcoin address that was used to get this money. And let's go from there. And if they won't give it, that speaks volumes too. All right, Brandon, go ahead. So, not really a very new, uh, news noteworthy week in Vegas, but one thing, and you may have touched on this or talked about it today. Uh, what do you know? What is going to take place in Las Vegas come April twenty seventh? No, I didn't talk about that. I got to think <laughs> what that would be. The Palms is reopening. Oh yeah, I do know about that. Yeah, I didn't talk about it though. So it's monumental in the, in the sense that this Palms is. You know, you can, for better or worse, it is, in my opinion, an iconic casino, even though it's only been around uh, a little over 20 years. I mean, would you call it, would you consider it iconic? <clears throat> uh, somewhat, maybe like modern iconic. You know, yeah, well, you know, because of the real world, and a lot of people credit it with with partially, if you know, of making Vegas what it is today. You know, you have to remember, even 20 years ago, Vegas still was somewhat taboo, and it wasn't this young hip hot place for young people to go which it is now i mean i think you know depending on the days of the week that you go you, you'll see a, a under 50 under 40 crowd more than you see you know the older generations but anyhow so a lot of it is you know attributed to the fact that when the palms was at its peak you know they had the real world and that just got so much attention i remember back in i don't know what year it was 2003 2004 whatever it was just getting calls from friends from college and people back east that 
you know, oh, you know, I'm watching this on TV. Have you been to the Palms? Have you seen this? You know, just, you know, Britney Spears was just rolling around in there and there were celebrities. I remember one night and I'm not a big club person. I was at uh, Rain, which was their nightclub back then. And uh, was, there were some people from work and I've never been a big club person. But anyhow, uh, just out of the blue, an impromptu Britney Spears concert, I guess you'd call it, just took place where she, you know, didn't know she was even there on the premises uh, grabbed a microphone, started singing. You know, she was, I don't know if she dated him, but she definitely was very, very close at one point with, uh, Gavin Maloof. And there were rumors that she was dating him, but who knows? And they were running around together, hanging out, partying. So anyhow, what's notable about the Palms reopening on April 27th is that it is going to be the first ever Indian owned and managed casino in Las Vegas. Now, if you remember, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me. I'm just reading off memory here or talking off memory uh it's it's not Pachanga. I, I what's the tribe go ahead and google that for me please so i sound like i know what i'm talking about uh, San Manuel. The tribe, yes that's right i knew that san manual so now there is a bit of of similarity in the fact that the hard rock when they closed and it was bought by uh the virgin guy richard branson they hired a casino or they i hired an indian tribe excuse me to manage the casino they hired mohegan sun but they have no say over the hotel they have no say over the restaurants all they do is just run the casino yeah it's a mistake that's, that's, that's a big mistake yeah, yeah it is i agree but anyhow so this san miguel try is it miguel or manual it's san manuel san manuel excuse me okay so san manuel not only purchased it but they are gonna the tribe is gonna completely own and operate the hotel the restaurants, uh, you know, everything, every amenity in that place, uh, which is interesting. It's never happened before. And some people think this might be a trend, you know, now because Hard Rock has come in and they bought Mirage and they're going to be, by all accounts, they're going to be doing the same thing. They're going to be owning and operating it. Now, a lot of people are a little suspicious or hesitant to, to see, I'm just speaking on what I've heard, uh, an Indian casino come in and fully own a property only because of past experiences and a lot of it may just be embellished you know over time stories of people having bad experiences in indian casinos but i guess the one difference uh and, you know and you can contribute you can talk about that because i think you, you experienced something like that recently or somewhat recently correct where you had a bad experience in yeah indian i casino. did yes yeah uh but the one thing that i retort with when people say that to me is the fact well you know this is still going to fall under the umbrella of the Nevada Gaming Commission. So, you know, you're. The, I mean, they can't just, you know, eliminate your rights or do things any different than any other casino in Vegas can do, um, you know, because it's still under that umbrella of Nevada Gaming. So, anyway, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Their website is up and running. Um, they're already accepting reservations. And I don't uh, know this for sure, but I, I, I guess, or I'm assuming, the timing of it opening is coinciding with the NFL draft here. So I think that, that they wanted to rush and do that. Now, when I say that, uh, for those that don't even know that story, for the first time uh, in history, the NFL draft is going to be held in Vegas. In fact, they're closing the strip from Thursday to Sunday. And they're only going to be uh, – they're basically doing what they do for a few hours or you know, maybe not even half a day. On New Year's Eve, they're going to be doing that for four straight days from Thursday to Sunday night. And again, closing the strip down with the only exception for a few hours in the middle of the night, they're going to reopen the strip to allow delivery trucks in for rest, you know, for restaurants and just whatever, you know, 
vendors need to come into di- different casinos. So that's going to be a nightmare. So if you live here in Vegas, it's going to be on that Thursday. So it's going to be the 28th until the 1st, the 28th of May. I'm sorry, the 28th of April till May 1st is when the draft is. And the Palms, again, is opening the day before. So I'm pretty sure that's the timing is for that reason. I mean, you, you don't normally open a casino, a reopening or even an opening, whatever, maybe on a Wednesday. Uh, but definitely if you're coming out here or you live here, beware. The strip will be closed. It's going to be a nightmare to get around. Um, but the NFL draft will be taking place here for the first time. It was supposed to be here uh, t- two years ago, but it got rescheduled because of the pandemic. They ended up, some of you may recall, in 2020 doing a virtual draft instead of having, for the first time ever, they did not have a live draft. So that's going to be here. Um, it's going to be all over. There's several locations where they're going to just be setting up draft day sort of festivities and um the red carpet opening, you know, whatever you want to call it, where they open. And when NFL players are drafted, will take place in front of the Bellagio. They're going to be having literally a red carpet, I read, uh, that leads from the strip through like near the fountains at the Bellagio when players are drafted. At least in the first round, they're going to, you know, walk right in front of the fountain, you know, on a red carpet and, you know, with the backdrop of the strip. So it should be pretty interesting. So anyhow, uh, so that's going on, and the Palms, if you guys are interested, if anyone, you know, wants to stay there, uh, the rooms have been remodeled. I'm still not sure what they're doing at restaurants. I tried looking on their website, and a lot of it still is, like, coming soon, so, you know, I don't know what's going to be open. I don't know if they're keeping some of the same restaurants that they had before, um, but anyhow, you know, it's just a place to think about. It's, it's off of West Flamingo. It's not on the Strip. Uh, but you may at times, I kind of think like similar to Virgin, uh, it's going to be booked for the most part, you know, moving forward during the weekends. Uh, but during the week, you might be able to find some value in terms of, you know, getting cheaper rooms because there's so many rooms there. And that was part of the problem they had before. You know, they spent millions, uh, about a hundred million plus renovating the place and fixing up rooms and they just couldn't they couldn't fill the rooms they just couldn't other than like special occasions weekends things like that so you know might be a place to find like a nice 50 60 dollar a night room you know relatively new obviously it's going to be clean um but there's no mention what the inside is going to look i haven't seen anything you know they had a a pretty big food court back in the day and they had some notable features there's not going to be any poker um which you know, funny enough, the Palms had like a real checkered pass with poker. They had poker from the from the pre-boom, you know, when I moved out here in 2002. Uh, and then they closed it. Then they reopened it several times. They famously held the uh, Epic Poker League there. Um, yeah, we talked about that right tonight. Now, we actually yeah. talked about the Epic, uh, the Epic Poker League with the Annie Duke topic. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, all right. Other thing that was really, really interesting do you know who Robert Taylor is? I'm sure you don't. We talked about him, but you don't know who he is. No. Robert Taylor was a gentleman that won a jackpot a couple months ago at the Palm, or I'm sorry, at uh, Treasure Island. But unfortunately, the machine malfunctioned and he didn't know he won a jackpot. Oh, I do know that story. Never mind. I know that story. Yes. And he wasn't he wasn't using a player's card. Do you remember we talked yes, about this? Yes. Yes. And they, and they, uh, tracked, they tracked yeah they him tracked down? him down with with rideshare data. Yes, they did. Very, very good. So anyhow, he did an article, or he did an interview, rather, with uh, the Las Vegas Sun and the Las Vegas Review Review Journal this week. And 
in the article, he had stated that initially when they called, he hung up on them because he thought it was a scam, <laughs> which I thought was funny. <laughs> he, you know, he thought it was, you know, somebody trying to scam him. Oh, you just want a million dollars. So, and yeah, there was an interview with him and he just describes how he didn't believe them. He was just waiting for them to ask him for his credit card number and hung up on them. Well, it's, it's a good thing back. that they weren't offering him a free auto warranty. Yeah. I get so many of those calls about the auto warranty. They like yeah. at least two a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and this isn't even really notable other than I just found it kind of interesting. So the res- resort worlds uh is trying to be an eco friendly type casino and they've taken that even as far as their pest control. So last week they released out front around the property where all their greenage is over a hundred thousand ladybugs, which apparently ladybugs eat these certain insects that they need to use pesticide to kill. And I guess this is a new thing where people just or businesses release these lady and just what you think. It's those cute little pretty ladybugs. Yeah. You know what? Uh, Benjamin used to like ladybugs when he was a little kid. And of course. And so they eat aphids which do eat yeah, the vegetation. Yeah, that was the word they used. Yes, yes, that was it. The aphids are these, tiny, are these tiny green bugs, and ladybugs eat them. So, yes, ladybugs are sometimes used to bring down the aphid population. And yep. uh, ladybugs also don't bite, so they're easy for kids to play with, and they're kind of cute. So, uh, Hold on. i got to take this call. Go ahead and keep talking. Okay. Hold on. More, more calls about the uh, place in Florida. But ladybugs, you, you can buy them in large quantities from, like, hardware stores for, like, big hardware stores like Home Depot, I think. You can buy, like, 1,500 or more, 5,000 or something ladybugs for relatively cheap. And uh, we actually did this for Benjamin when he was much younger, and he was shocked. He comes home, and we uh, presented him with thousands of ladybugs. And, you know, eventually we released them all out into the backyard and hope they can find something to eat. Uh, We actually also got, like, a kit to raise ladybugs from their eggs. But they had a warning for this ladybug habitat not to release them out into the wild unless it is uh, averaging more than 55 degrees outside because they can't move. They can't fly at that point. And if it gets uh, more below 55, they can't move at all or they die. And that's common with a lot of bugs since they're cold-blooded and they get their body heat from the environment, unlike people who make their own body heat. Bugs really start to struggle when it gets below 55 degrees. If they're not somewhere where they can hibernate even temporarily, then they can be in trouble. So they warn not to release the ladybugs if the average temperature of the day is less than 55. I once saw an interesting little uh, unintentional science experiment involving that 55 degrees where the dog that I had him until last year. Uh, Whenever he would eat outside during the spring and summer, after he was done, the ants would go attack his bowl very fast 
and then I'd have to wash it out and clean the ants away. But uh, there was kind of a cold spell in May, and uh, it got below 55 degrees at the time he was usually eating. So that night, he had zero ants. Like, it was 54 degrees, and there were no ants at all on his food after he left it. And then the next night, it warmed up a little bit, and it was 57 at the same time, and it was filled with ants. So I got to see that in practice, where at 57, the ants came and got all over the food. At 54, they did not. So it really is around 55 that they start to struggle. So there's actually that warning about the ladybugs. In fact, if it was easy to bring your house down below 55 degrees, then that would be an easy way to get rid of bugs. But the problem is, it's not trivial to do that. Because there really isn't any air conditioning that can bring a house down that cold. And if it's the winter time where the house will get that cold naturally, then the bugs wouldn't be there anyway. That's why that's an impractical way to get rid of bugs. You can't bring the temperature down in the house low enough. But yeah, I read about the ladybugs that were released at Resorts World. I don't know if Brandon's coming back. The truth is, I don't know how long I can wait for him because, one, I don't know how long it's going to be, and two, I'm tired here. It's been a long time, and even my voice is starting to go from all this talking. How come the longest show, the longest poker show by a wide margin in the world is the one that doesn't do it for money? You ever think about that? Oh, I'm he, back. He just, barely, he just barely got back before I shut it down. Just about to. Sorry about that. I might have one more call, but if I do, we'll just end it. So, we're all okay. So we talked about ladybugs. So the other thing interesting is Steve Wynn and his attorneys are still even now, and he's been out of the casino business for almost three years, maybe a little over. I think it was 2018, so maybe close to four. He's still fighting with the Nevada gaming uh, with Nevada gaming regulators over his punishment. So in essence, I won't get into all this because it's kind of long and complicated, but basically he doesn't have a gaming license in Nevada anymore. So his attorneys are basically saying, well, you can't find him. You can't do anything to him. He doesn't hold a license. They're still trying to find, to, to impose a half a million dollar penalty on him, and he's fighting it, which is kind of ironic because you know he spent more than half a million dollars just on attorney fees doing this, so it must just be you know a, a, the principle of it. Um, but anyhow, so originally it was ruled by uh, the courts in Nevada that they could not fine him half a million dollars because he did not have a gaming license. Uh, this, the gaming regulators appealed that, and then a district court ruled last week uh, that he could be punished. So now it looks like they're going to appeal that, and this is still going to go on. I mean, who knows? It might actually go to the Nevada Supreme Court or even higher, you know. So – it's only half a million dollars, and it's been going on since uh, the original fine was in December of 2019. So we're talking now almost two and a half years. So would you say it's pretty a pretty much safe assumption he spent more than that just in uh, attorney fees? Yeah, alone? probably. Yeah, I think he just doesn't want to pay it. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, so let's see. Uh, a guy from Scotland. I don't know what casino. Let me find it real fast. But a guy from a Scottish tourist the other day was playing Let It, or I'm sorry, was playing Ultimate Texas Hold'em. He was playing a game that you and I have played before. And uh, let's see. I just want to see the casino it was at. I'm pretty sure it was a Caesars. 
property. No, it was at the Plaza, actually. Excuse me. So he was playing for the first time ever. They were teaching him the game. And within five minutes of him playing, what do you think happens? He hit a jackpot. He got dealt a royal flush in diamonds. And his $5 bet garnered him $280,000. You know, that's kind of fun. Uh, You know, I'm sure that's a good trip for him. So, uh, yeah, so that happened, uh, let's see, two days ago. And it was announced last week. This will be the last thing. It was announced last week. And I'm not a race car driving guy. Uh, It was announced last week that a Formula One race will be coming to Nevada. uh, Gosh, I don't know. It's either next year in 2023 or 2024 that will be held on the strip. Uh, which a lot of people are like, what the hell? You're gonna, you know, th- those are the cars that go like 300 miles an hour. You know, those are like the real, the fastest out of all the racing cars. So anyhow, there's going to be an, uh, I guess they call these F1 races, Formula One. There's going to be a Formula One race on the strip. It's already been signed and sealed and delivered sometime over the next two years. Um, let's see. I'll look real fast and see if I can find it. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, don't you? Yeah, do you I saw that. that. That's kind of weird. And they're going to be yeah, shutting down a lot of the strip to do this, and a lot of people are objecting to it. Here, let me see. Uh, it is going to be, okay, so it is going to be next year. It's going to be in 2023 in November. Um, so, yeah, anyhow, that's all I have. And sorry if I was a little unorganized tonight. I, like I said, I woke up and immediately called radio. Then I have this other thing that's going on at the same time. So, but thank you for uh, keeping me up to date. Thanking, thank me, or thank you for having me on the show. And, when when might uh, we be back on radio? Uh, we're probably looking at uh, sometime like next week, Friday, that sort of thing. Okay. Well, will you let me know in advance, yeah, please? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I'm glad you're. You sound good. So you sound like you're feeling better, which is good. You know, like you couldn't tell in your voice. That, it's just uh, a little harder to talk now than it normally is, and I had to take a few breaks, and that's why I was going to shut it down if you didn't come back fairly quickly because I'm oh, kind of out of energy. Yeah. Oh no! It last thing, uh, just so I'll say this. Uh, on Tuesday, so two days ago this week, there was a massive protest of casino employees in Atlantic City. And what they were protesting was uh, they are trying to get changed a law in New Jersey where there is no indoor smoking in the entire state except for there is an exemption for casinos in Atlantic City. And these casino workers, are, you know, rightfully so, are upset about that. So they had a massive peaceful of course you know but massive protest because they're trying to get the law changed that will make all new jersey casinos non-smoking which listen it's a very big upward battle i mean that's it's likely not going to happen because you know casinos you know kind of know or they do know that gambling smoking drinking it all kind of goes hand in hand and you know that market is already uh you know in, in, in trouble enough and you take away the fact that people can't smoke, then they're likely going to go somewhere else. Maybe not the locals that, that live there. But anyhow, so listen, I have, I'm, I'm getting a call. I have to take you close the show, and I will see everyone next Friday. All okay? right. Thank you, Brandon, okay. for coming on, and uh, we will talk to you later. Got it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, just me now. Trader Risky had to leave. Brandon had to leave. So I shall close it out by myself. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I hope I brought you enough material. We were gone for a while, but gave you a long show when I came back.
Before I shut this down, I want to give you the answer as to how I got that Weird Al birthday message, complete with chorus singing behind him, where it was wishing me a happy 50th birthday. And I told you this was not something that was bought for me, nor did I buy it for myself, nor did I steal this from another Todd who is turning 50. None of those things are what happened. I actually made this for myself on a pretty amazing site, and you can do it for yourself. And this, I've never seen anything like this before. It's really, really good. So Blue Mountain, which is a very, very old online card company. I mean, I remember my 1990s girlfriend was sending me Blue Mountain cards in like 96 or 97, and they were pretty crude back then. But this thing is the opposite of crude. You'll be shocked at how realistic this thing looks. I'm not exactly sure how they made it. It does seem to be kind of like deep fake technology, I guess, but presumably Weird Al cooperated with this. I'm sure they didn't just steal his likeness. And he probably recorded a lot of this beforehand, but all the names and the singing and the chorus, I believe that is all computer generated. And you could only hear it on the radio, but you can actually see this in video and you can watch the lip movement actually matches the words that Weird Al and the chorus behind him are saying and singing. It's pretty amazing. So I'm going to give you another example of one. I'm not going to play the whole thing, but here's one I made for Brandon. Oh, hey, Brandon. How you doing? Al here. Listen, um, I know you're super busy. You got a lot going on. Uh, I really hate to bother you, but... Um, well, there, there's something I've been meaning to tell you, and I'm afraid it just can't wait any longer. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Brandon. Isn't that pretty impressive? Amazing. So you can go do this for yourself. It's free. BlueMountain.com. And you can search for these smash-ups, they call them. Or you could just Google Weird Al Birthday Blue Mountain. All one word, Blue Mountain. And you will find it. And it's very easy to customize. And you can watch it. And you can show it to your friends and family and freak them out. And make them think that Al did this elaborate custom birthday video for you, especially if it's near your birthday. Unfortunately, it is not that near my birthday, and it's not near Brandon's birthday either. But I decided to bring this out to the public here, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So give it a try on BlueMountain.com. And no, they're not a sponsor, though. If they'd like to be, I'll take their money. I definitely will. So we're finishing this up here on Thursday morning, April 14th. Try to get up into the archives when I can. Probably, as I was mentioning, March 22nd will be the next show. Not March, April 22nd will be the next show. March 22nd, that'd be a long wait. It'll be another 11 months. I won't make you wait that long. But yeah, April 22nd, Friday, probably be the next show. Highly unlikely to be before that. 
and then maybe we can stick to Friday for a while. But who knows? I want to thank Trader Ruski for his time on here. For And I'd like to thank Brandon for the topics he brought to us, especially right after he woke up. I'd like to thank All-American Dave for announcing this on the day of radio so we could have an extensive discussion about this the night it occurred. Thank you for delaying that announcement so we could be timely. And remember, I know this feels like a million years since they talked about the topic, but ACR, they had a pretty bad breach with accounts that were getting their money withdrawn by thieves. And even though this didn't happen to a mass number of people, it happened to enough. And we just didn't get a good enough explanation. And remember, Poker Fraud Alert will be the site that will get answers and will defend you and will make sure these things get addressed. Because we don't have affiliate links or poker site advertising. Isn't that nice? Alright. I can't believe it. It's actually 40 degrees where I am right now. In the middle of April. Hmm. Oh well. See you next week. Shalom.